Brain They came upon the first corpse, a mile from the crossroads. He swung beneath the limb of a dead tree whose blackened trunk still bore the scars of the lightning that had killed it. The carrion crows had been at work on his face, and wolves had feasted on his lower legs where they dangled near the ground. Only bones and rags remained below his knees, along with one well-chewed shoe, half covered by mud and mould. "'What's he have in his mouth?' asked Podrick. Brian had to steel herself to look. His face was grey and green and ghastly, his mouth open and distended. Someone had shoved a jagged white rock between his teeth. "'A rock or salt?' said Septon Merribolt. Fifty yards further on they spied the second body. The scavengers had torn him down, so what remained of him was strewn on the ground beneath a frayed rope looped about the limb of an elm. Brain might have ridden past him unawares, if Dog had not sniffed him out, and loped into the woods for a closer smell. "'What do you have there, Dog?' Sir Hyle dismounted, strode after the dog, and came up with a half-helm. The dead man's skull was still inside it, along with some worms and beetles. "'Good steel,' he pronounced, "'and not too badly dinted. "'Though the lion's lost his head. "'Pod, would you like a helm? "'Not that one. It's got worms in it. "'Worms wash out, lad. <laughs> "'You're squeamish as a girl.' Brain scowled at him. "'It's too big for him. "'He'll grow into it.' "'I don't want to,' said Podrick. Sir Hyle shrugged and tossed the broken helm back into the weeds, lion crest and all. Dog barked and went to lift his leg against the tree. After that, hardly a hundred yards went by without a corpse. They dangled under ash and alder, beech and birch, larch and elm, hoary old willows and stately chestnut trees. Each man wore a noose around his neck and swung from a length of hempen rope and each man's mouth was packed with salt. Some wore cloaks of grey, or blue, or crimson, though rain and snow had faded them so badly that it was hard to tell one colour from another. Others had badges sewn on their breasts. Brian spied axes, arrows, several salmon, a pine tree, an oak leaf, beetles, bantams, a boar's head, half a dozen tridents, Broken men, she realized, dregs from a dozen armies, the leavings of the lords. Some of the dead men had been bald and some bearded, some young and some old, some short, some tall, some fat, some thin. Swollen in death, with faces gnawed and rotten, they all looked the same. On a gallows tree, all men are brothers. Brian had read that in a book, though she could not recall which one. It was Hyle Hunt who finally put words to what all of them had realized. These are the men who raided salt pens. May the father judge them harshly, said Merybald, who had been a friend to the town's aged septum. Who they were did not concern Brain half so much as who had hanged them. The noose was the preferred method of execution for Beric Dondarian and his band of outlaws, it was said. If so, the so-called Lightning Lord might well be near. Dog barked, and Septon Merribold glanced about and frowned. Um, shall we keep a brisker pace? 
The sun will soon be setting, and corpses make poor company by night. These were dark and dangerous men alive. I doubt that death will have improved them. There we disagree, said Sir Hyle. These are just the sort of fellows who are most improved by death. All the same, he put his heels into his horse, and they moved a little faster. Farther on, the trees began to thin, though not the corpses. The woods gave way to muddy fields, tree limbs to gibbets. Clouds of crows rose screeching from the bodies as the travellers came near and settled again once they had passed. These were evil men, Brian reminded herself, yet the sight still made her sad. She forced herself to look at every man in turn, searching for familiar faces. A few she thought she recognised from Harrenhal, but their condition made it hard to be certain. None had a hound's head helm, but few had helms of any sort. Most had been stripped of arms, armour, and boots before they were strung up. When Padrick asked the name of the inn where they hoped to spend the night, Septon Merribold seized upon the question eagerly, perhaps to take their minds off the grisly sentinels along the roadside. The old inn, some call it. There's been an inn there for many hundreds of years, though this inn was only raised during the reign of the first Jeheris, the king who built the king's road. Jeheris and his queen slept there during their journeys, it is said. For a time the inn was known as the Two Crowns in their honour, until one innkeep built a bell tower and changed it to the Bell Ringer Inn. Later it passed to a crippled knight named Long John Heddle, who took up ironworking when he grew too old to fight. He forged a new sign for the yard, a three-headed dragon of black iron that he hung from a wooden post. The beast was so big, it had to be made in a dozen pieces, joined with rope and wire. When the wind blew, it would clank and clatter, so the inn became known far and wide as the Clanking Dragon. Is the dragon sign still there? asked Podrick. No, said Septon Merribold. When the smith's son was an old man, a bastard son of the fourth Aegon rose up in rebellion against his true-born brother, and took for his sigil a black dragon. These lands belonged to Lord Darry then, and his lordship was fiercely loyal to the king. The sight of the black iron dragon made him wroth, so he cut down the post, hacked the sign to pieces, and cast them into the river. One of the dragon's heads washed up on the quiet isle many years later, though by that time it was red with rust. The innkeep never hung another sign, so men forgot the dragon and took to calling the place the River Inn. In those days the trident flowed beneath its back door, and half its rooms were built out over the water. Guests could throw a line out of their window and catch trout, it said. There was a ferry landing here as well, so travellers could cross to Lord Haraway's town and Whitewalls. We left the trident south of here, and have been riding north and west, not toward the river, but away from it. Aye, my lady, the septon said, the river moved. Seventy years ago it was, or was it eighty? It was when old Masha Heddle's grandfather kept the place. It was her who told me all this history. 
A kindly woman, Masha, fond of sour leaf and honey cakes. When she did not have a room for me, she would let me sleep beside the hearth, and she never sent me on my way without some bread and cheese and a few stale cakes. Is she the innkeep now? asked Podrick. No, the lions hanged her. After they moved on, I heard that one of her nephews tried opening the inn again, but the wars had made the roads too dangerous for common folk to travel, so there was little custom. He brought in whores, but even that could not save him. Some lord killed him, as well, I hear. Sir Hyle made a wry face. I, I never dreamed that keeping an inn could be so deadly dangerous. It's being common-born that is dangerous when the great lords play their game of thrones, said Septon Merribald. Isn't that so, Dog? Dog barked agreement. So, said Podrick, does the inn have a name now? The small folk call it the Crossroads Inn. Elder brother told me that two of Masha Heddle's nieces have opened it to trade once again. He raised his staff. If the gods are good, that smoke rising beyond the hangmen will be from its chimneys. They could call the place the Gallows Inn, Sir Hyle said. By any name, the inn was large, rising three stories above the muddy roads. Its walls and turrets and chimneys made of fine white stone that glimmered pale and ghostly against the grey sky. Its south wing had been built upon heavy wooden pilings above a cracked and sunken expanse of weeds and dead brown grass. A thatch-roofed stable and a bell tower were attached to the north side. The hell's sprawl was surrounded by a low wall of broken white stones overgrown by moss. At least no one has burned it down. At salt pans they had found only death and desolation. By the time Brian and her companions were ferried over from the quiet isle, the survivors had fled, and the dead had been given to the ground. But the corpse of the town itself remained, ashen and unburied. The air still smelled of smoke, and the cries of the seagulls floating overhead sounded almost human, like the lamentations of lost children. Even the castle had seemed forlorn and abandoned. Grey as the ashes of the town around it, the castle consisted of a square keep girded by a curtain wall, built so as to overlook the harbour. It was closed tight as Brian and the others led their horses off the ferry, nothing moving on its battlements but banners. It took a quarter hour of dog barking and Septon Merribold knocking on the front gate with his quarterstaff before a woman appeared above them to demand their business. By that time the ferry had departed, and it had begun to rain. I am a holy Septon, good lady, Merribold had shouted up, and these are honest travellers. We seek shelter from the rain, and a place by your fire for the night. The woman had been unmoved by his appeals. The closest inn is at the crossroads to the west, she replied. We want no strangers here. Be gone. Once she vanished, neither Meribel's prayers, dog's barks, nor Sir Hyle's curses could bring her back. In the end they had spent the night in the woods beneath a shelter made of woven branches. 
There was life at the Crossroads Inn, though. Even before they reached the gate, Brian heard the sound. A hammering. Faint but steady. It had a steely ring. A forge, Sir Hyle said. Either they had themselves a smith, or the old innkeep's ghost is making another iron dragon. He put his heels into his horse. I hope they have a ghostly cook as well. A crisp roast chicken would set the world aright. The inn's yard was a sea of brown mud that sucked at the hooves of the horses. The clang of steel was louder here, and Brian saw the red glow of the forge down past the far end of the stables, behind an ox cart with a broken wheel. She could see horses in the stables, too, and a small boy was swinging from the rusted chains of the weathered gibbet that loomed above the yard. Four girls stood on the inn's porch watching him. The youngest was no more than two, and naked. The oldest, nine or ten, stood with her arms protectively about the little one. Girls, Sir Hyle called to them, run and fetch your mother. The boy dropped from the chain and dashed off toward the stables. The four girls stood fidgeting. After a moment, one said, We have no mothers, and another added, I had one, but they killed her. The oldest of the four stepped forward, pushing the little one behind her skirts. Who are you? she demanded. Honest travellers seeking shelter. My name is Brian, and this is Septon Merrybold, who is well known through the Riverlands. The boy is my squire, Podrick Payne. The knight, Sahail Hunt. The hammering stopped suddenly. The girl on the porch looked them over, weary, as only a ten-year-old can be. I'm Willow. Will you be wanting beds? Beds and ale and hot food to fill our bellies, said Sir Hyle Hunt as he dismounted. Are you the innkeep? She shook her head. That's my sister Jane. She's not here. All we have to eat is horse meat. If you come for horse, there are none. My sister run them off. We have beds, though. Some feather beds, but more are straw. And all have fleas, I don't doubt said Sir Hyle. Do you have coin to pay? Silver? Sir Hyle laughed. Silver? For a knight's bed and a haunch of horse? Do you mean to rob us, child? We'll have silver, else you can sleep in the woods with the dead men. Willow glanced toward the donkey and the casks and bundles on his back. Is that food? Where did you get it? Maidenpool, said Merriwold. Dog barked. Do you question all your guests this way? asked Sir Hyle. We don't have so many guests. Not like before the war. It's mostly sparrows on the roads these days, or worse. Worse? Brian asked. Thieves, said a boy's voice from the stable. Rubbers! Brian turned and saw a ghost. Renly? No hammer blow to the heart could have felt her half so hard. My lord, she gasped. Lord, the boy pushed back a lock of black hair that had fallen across his eyes. I'm just a smith. He's not Renly, Brian realized. Renly is dead. Renly died in my arms. A man of one and twenty. This is only a boy. A boy who looked as Renly had the first time he came to Tarth. No, younger. His jaw is squarer. 
his brows bushier. Renly had been lean and lithe, whereas this boy had the heavy shoulders and muscular right arm so often seen on Smith's. He wore a long leather apron, but under it his chest was bare. A dark stubble covered his cheeks and chin, and his hair was a thick black mop that grew down past his ears. King Renly's hair had been that same coal-black, but his had always been washed and brushed and combed. Sometimes he cut it short, and sometimes he let it fall loose to his shoulders, or tied it back behind his head with a golden ribbon. But it was never tangled or matted with sweat, and though his eyes had been the same deep blue, Lord Renly's eyes had always been warm and welcoming, full of laughter, whereas this boy's eyes brimmed with anger and suspicion. Septon Merribold saw it too. We mean no harm, lad. When Masha Heddle owned this inn, she always had a honey cake for me. Sometimes she even let me have a bed if the inn was not full. She's dead, the boy said. The lion's anger. Oh, hanging seems your favourite sport in these parts, said Sir Hyle Hunt. Would that I had some land hereabouts, I'd plant hemp, sell rope, <laughs> and make my fortune. All these children, Brian said to the girl Willow, are they your uh, sisters, or brothers, kin and cousins? No, Willow was staring at her in a way that she knew well. They're just, I don't know. The sparrows bring them here. Sometimes others find their own way. If you're a woman, why are you dressed up like a man? Septon Merribold answered, Lady Brian is a warrior maid upon a quest. Just now, though, she's in need of a dry bed and a warm fire. As are we all, my old bones say, it's going to rain again and soon. Do you have rooms for us? No, said the boysmith. Yes, said the girl Willow. They glared at one another. Then Willow stomped her foot. They have food, Gendry. The little ones are hungry. She whistled, and more children appeared, as if by magic. Ragged boys with unshorn locks crept from under the porch, and furtive girls appeared in the windows overlooking the yard. Some clutched crossbows, wound and loaded. They could call it Crossbow Inn, Sir Hyle suggested. Orphan Inn would be more apt, thought Brain. What? You help them with those horses, said Willow. Will, put down that rock. They've not come to hurt us. Tansy, Pate, run get some wood to feed the fire. John Penny, you help the septon with those bundles. I'll show them to some rooms. In the end, they took three rooms adjoining each other, each boasting a feather bed, a chamber pot, and a window. Brian's room had a hearth as well. She paid a few pennies more for some wood. Will I sleep in your room or Sir Hyle's? Podrick asked as she was opening the shutters. This is not the quiet oil, she told him. You can stay with me. Come the morrow, she meant for the two of them to strike out on their own. Septon Merribold was going on to Nutton, Riverbend, and Lord Haraway's town. But Brian saw no sense in following him any farther. He had dog to keep him company, and the elder brother had persuaded her that she would not find Sansa Stark along the trident. I mean to rise before the sun comes up, 
while Sir Hyle is still sleeping. Brian had not forgiven him for Highgarden, and as he himself had said, Hunt had sworn no vows concerning Sansa. Where will we go, sir? I mean, my lady. Brian had no ready answer for him. They had come to the crossroads, quite literally. The place where the King's Road, the River Road, and the High Road all came together. The High Road would take them east, through the mountains, to the Vale of Aaron, where Lady Sansa's aunt had ruled until her death. West ran the River Road, which followed the course of the Red Fork to Riveron and Sansa's great-uncle, who was besieged but still alive. Or they could ride the King's Road north, past the Twins, and through the Neck with its bugs and marshes. If she could find a way past Moat Caelan, and whoever held it now, the King's Road would bring them all the way to Winterfell. Or I could take the King's Road south, Brian thought. I could slink back to King's Landing, confess my failure to Sir Jamie, give him back his sword, and find a ship to carry me home to Tarth, as the elder brother urged. The thought was a bitter one. Yet there was part of her that yearned for Evenfall and her father, and another part that wondered if Jamie would comfort her should she weep upon his shoulder. That was what men wanted, wasn't it? Soft, helpless women that they needed to protect. Sir, my lady, I asked, where are we going? Down to the common room, to supper. The common room was crawling with children. Brian tried to count them, but they would not stand still even for an instant, so she counted some of them twice or thrice, and others not at all, until she finally gave it up. They had pushed the tables together in three long rows, and the older boys were wrestling benches from the back. Older hair meant ten or twelve. Gendry was the closest thing to a man grown, but it was Willow shouting all the orders as if she were a queen in her castle and the other children were no more than servants. If she were eyeborn, command would come naturally to her, and deference to them. Brian wondered whether Willow might be more than she appeared. The girl was too young and too plain to be senseless dark, but she was of the right age to be the younger sister, and even Lady Caitlin had said that Arya lacked her sister's beauty. Brown hair, brown eyes, skinny, could it be? Arya Stark's hair was brown, she recalled, but Brian was not so sure of the colour of her eyes. Brown and, and brown, was that it? Could it be that she did not die at salt hands after all? Outside the last light of day was fading. Inside, Willow had four greasy tallow candles lit, and told the girls to keep the hearth fire burning high and hot. The boys helped Podrick Payne unpack the donkey, and carried in the salt cud, mutton, vegetables, nuts, and wheels of cheese, while Septon Merribold repaired to the kitchens to take charge of the porridge. Alas, my oranges are gone, and I doubt that I shall see another till the spring, he told one small boy. Have you ever had an orange, lad? Squeezed one, and sucked down that fine juice? When the boy shook his head, no, the septon mussed his hair. Then I'll bring you one come spring, if you'll be a good lad and help me stir the porridge. 
Sir Hyle pulled off his boots to warm his feet by the fire. When Brian sat down next to him, he nodded at the far end of the room. There are bloodstains on the floor over there where Dog is sniffing. They've been scrubbed, but the blood soaked deep into the wood, and there's no getting it out. This is the inn where Sandor Clegane killed three of his brother's men, she reminded him. It is that, Hunt agreed. But who is to say that they were the first to die here, or that they'll be the last? Are you afraid of a few children? A four would be a few. Ten would be a surfeit. This is a cacophony. Children should be wrapped in swaddling clothes and hung upon the wall until the girls grow breasts and the boys are old enough to shave. I feel sorry for them. All of them had lost their mothers and fathers. Some have seen them slain. Hunt rolled his eyes. Oh, I forgot I was talking to a woman. Your heart is as mushy as our septum's porridge. Can it be somewhere inside our sword's wench is a mother just squirming to give birth? What you really want is a sweet pink babe to suckle at your teat. Sir Hyle grinned. You need a man for that, I hear. A husband, preferably. Why not me? If you still hope to win your wager, what I want to win is you. Lord Selwyn's only living child. I've known men to wed lackwits and suckling babes for prizes a tenth the size of Tarth. I am not Rinley Baratheon, I confess it, but I have the virtue of being still amongst the living. Some would say that is my only virtue. <laughs> Marriage would serve the both of us, lands for me, and a castle full of these for you. He waved his hand at the children. I am capable, I assure you. I've sawed at least one bastard that I know of. Have no fear, I shall not inflict her upon you. The last time I went to see her, her mother dust me with a kettle of soup. A flush crept up her neck. My father's only four and fifty, not too old to wed again and get a son by his new wife. Oh, that's a risk. If your father weds again, and if his bride proves fertile, and if the babe's a boy, oh, I've made worse wages. And lost them. Play your game with someone else, sir. So speaks a maid who has never played the game with anyone. Once you do, you'll take a different view. In the dark, you'll be as beautiful as any other woman. Your lips were made for kissing. They are lips, said Brian. All lips are the same. And all lips are made for kissing, Hunt agreed pleasantly. Leave your chamber door unbarred tonight, and I will steal into your bed and prove the truth of what I say. If you do, you'll be a eunuch when you leave. Brian got up and walked away from him. Septon Marybald asked if he might lead the children in a grace ignoring the small girl crawling naked across the table. Aye, said Willow, snatching up the crawler before she reached the porridge. So they bowed their heads together and thanked the father and the mother for their bounty, all but the black-haired boy from the forge, who crossed his arms against his chest and sat glowering as the others prayed. Brian was not the only one to notice. When the prayer was done, 
Septon Merribold looked across the table and said, Do you have no love for the gods, son? Not for your gods. Gendry stood abruptly. I have work to do. He stalked out without a bite of food. Is there some other god he loves? asked Hyle Hunt. The Lord of Light, piped one scrawny boy, nigh to six. Willow hit him with a spoon. Ben Big Mouth, there's food. You should be eating it, not bothering me lords with talk. The children fell upon their supper like wolves upon a wounded deer, quarrelling over codfish, tearing the barley bread to pieces, and getting porridge everywhere. Even the huge wheel of cheese did not long survive. Brian contented herself with fish and bread and carrots, while Septon Merribold fed two morsels to dog for every one he ate himself. Outside a rain began to fall. Inside the fire crackled, and the common room was filled by the sounds of chewing and Willow smacking children with her spoon. One day that little girl will make some man a frightful wife, Sir Hyle observed. That poor princess boy, most like. Someone should take him some food before it's all gone. You're someone. She wrapped a wedge of cheese, a heel of bread, a dried apple, and two chunks of flaky fried cod in a square of cloth. When Podrick got up to follow her outside, she told him to sit back down and eat. I will not be long. The rain was coming down heavy in the yard. Brian covered the food with a fold of her cloak. Some of the horses whinnied at her as she made her way past the stables. They are hungry, too. Gendry was at his forge, bare-chested beneath his leather apron. He was beating on a sword as if he wished it were a foe, his sweat-soaked hair falling across his brow. She watched him for a moment. He has Renly's eyes and Renly's hair, but not his build. Lord Renly was more lithe than brawny, not like his brother Robert, whose strength was fabled. It was not until he stopped to wipe his brow that Gendry saw her standing there. What do you want? I brought supper. She opened the cloth for him to see. If I wanted food, I would have eaten some. Our smith needs to eat to keep his strength up. Are you my mother? No. She put down the food. Who was your mother? What's that to you? You were born in King's Landing. The way he spoke made her certain of it. Me and many more. He plunged the sword into a tub of rainwater to quench it. The hot steel hissed angrily. How old are you? Ryan asked. Is your mother still alive? And your father, who was he? You asked too many questions. He set down the sword. My mother's dead. And I never knew my father. You're a bastard. He took it for an insult. I'm a knight. That sword will be mine own once it's done. What would a knight be doing working at a smithy? You have black hair and blue eyes, and you were born in the shadow of the Red Keep. Has no one ever remarked upon your face? What's wrong with my face? It's not as ugly as yours. In King's Landing, you must have seen King Robert. He shrugged. Sometimes, at Tawny's, from afar, once at Baylor Sept. The gold cloaks shoved us aside so he could pass. 
Another time I was playing near the mudgate when he come back from a hunt. He was so drunk he almost rode me down. A big fat shot he was, but a better king than these sons of his. They are not his sons. Stannis told it true. That day he met with Renly. Joffrey and Tommen were never Robert's sons. His boy, though. Listen to me, Brian began. Then she heard dog barking, loud and frantic. Someone is coming. Friends, said Gendry, unconcerned. What sort of friends? Brian moved to the door of the smithy to peer out through the rain. He shrugged. You'll meet them soon enough. I may not want to meet them, Brian thought as the first riders came splashing through the puddles into the yard. Beneath the patter of the rain and dogs barking, she could hear the faint clink of swords and mail from beneath their ragged cloaks. She counted them as they came. Two, four, six, seven. Some of them were wounded, judging from the way they rode. The last man was massive and hulking, as big as two of the others. His horse was blown and bloody, staggering beneath his weight. All the riders had their hoods up against the lashing rain, save him alone. His face was broad and hairless, maggot white, his round cheeks covered with weeping sores. Brian sucked in her breath and drew oath-keeper. Too many, she thought with a start of fear. There are too many. Gendry, she said in a low voice. You'll want a sword and armor. These are not your friends. They're no one's friends. What are you talking about? The boy came and stood beside her, his hammer in his hand. Lightning cracked to the south as the riders swung down off their horses. For half a heartbeat, darkness turned to day. An axe gleamed silvery blue, light shimmering off mail and plate, and beneath the dark hood of the lead rider, Brian glimpsed an iron snout and rows of steel teeth snarling. Gentry saw it too. Him? Not him. He's Elm. Brian tried to keep the fear from her voice, but her mouth was dry as dust. She had a pretty good notion who wore the hound's helm. The children, she thought. The door to the inn banged open. Willow stepped out into the rain, a crossbow in her hands. The girl was shouting at the riders, but a clap of thunder rolled across the yard, drowning out her words. As it faded, Brian heard the man in the hound's helm say, Loose a quarrel at me, and I'll shove that crossbow up your cunt, and fuck you with it. Then I'll pop your fucking eyes out, and make you eat them. The fury in the man's voice, drove Willow back a step, trembling. Seven? Brian thought again, despairing. She had no chance against seven. She knew. No chance, and no choice. She stepped out into the rain, oathkeeper in hand. Leave her be! If you want to rape someone, try me! The outlaws turned as one. One laughed, and another said something in a tongue Brian did not know. The huge one, with a broad white face, gave a malevolent hiss. The man in the hound's helm began to laugh. You're even uglier than I remembered. I'd sooner rape your horse. Horses is what we want, one of the wounded men said. Fresh horses and some food. There are outlaws after us. Give us your horses and we'll be gone. 
We won't do ye harm. Fuck that. The outlaw in the hound's helm yanked a battle-axe off his saddle. I want to cut her bloody legs off. I'll set her on her stumps so she can watch me fuck the crossbow girl. With what? taunted Brian. Shagwell said they cut your manor off when they took your nose. She meant it to provoke him, and it did. Bellowing curses, he came at her, his feet sending up splashes of black water as he charged. The others stood back to watch the show, as she had prayed they might. Brain stayed as still as stone, waiting. The yard was dark, the mud slippery underfoot. Better to let him come to me. If the guards were good, he'll slip and fall. The guards were not that good, but her sword was. Five steps? Four steps? No! Brain counted. An oath-keeper swept up to meet his rush. Steel crashed against steel as her blade bit through his rags and opened a gash in his chainmail, even as his axe came crashing down at her. She twisted aside, slashed at his chest again as she retreated. He followed, staggering and bleeding, roaring rage. Whore! He boomed. Freak! Bitch! I'll give you my dog to fuck, you bloody bitch! His axe whirled in murderous arcs, a brutal black shadow that turned silver every time the lightning flashed. Brian had no shield to catch the blows. All she could do was slide back away from him, darting this way and that as the axe head flew at her. Once the mud gave way under her heel and she almost fell, but somehow she recovered herself, though the axe grazed her left shoulder that time and left a blaze of pain in its wake. You got the bitch! One of the others called, and another said, Let's see her dance away from that one. Dance she did, relieved that they were watching. Better that than have them interfere. She could not fight seven, not alone, even if one or two were wounded. Old Sir Goodwin was long in his grave, yet she could hear him whispering in her ear. A man will always underestimate you, he said and their pride will make them want to vanquish you quickly, lest it be said that a woman tried them sorely. Let them spend their strength in furious attacks while you conserve your own. Wait and watch, girl. Wait and watch. She waited, watching, moving sideways, then backwards, then sideways again, slashing now at his face, now at his legs, now at his arm. His blows came more slowly, as his axe grew heavier. Brian turned him, so the rain was in his eyes, and stepped back two quick steps. He wrenched his axe up once more, cursing, and lurched after her, one foot sliding in the mud. And she leapt to meet his rush, both hands on her sword hilt. His headlong charge brought him right unto her point. An oath-keeper punched through cloth and mail and leather and more cloth deep into his bowels and out his back rasping as it scraped along his spine. His axe fell from limp fingers, and the two of them slammed together. Brian's face mashed up against the dog's head helm. She felt the cold, wet metal against her cheek. Rain ran down the steel in rivers, and when the lightning flashed again, she saw pain and fear and rank disbelief through the eye slits. Sapphires, she whispered at him, and she gave her blade a hard twist that made him shudder. His weight sagged heavily against her, and all at once 
It was a corpse that she embraced. There, in the black rain, she stepped back and let him fall. And Biter crashed into her, shrieking. He fell on her like an avalanche of wet wool and milk-white flesh, lifting her off her feet and slamming her down into the ground. She landed in a puddle with a splash that sent water up her nose and into her eyes. All the air was driven out of her, and her head snapped down against some half-buried stone with a crack. No! was all that she had time to say before he fell on top of her, his weight driving her deeper into the mud. One of his hands was in her hair, pulling her head back. The other groped for her throat. Oathkeeper was gone, torn from her grasp. She had only her hands to fight him off. But when she slammed a fist into his face, it was like punching a ball of wet white dough. He hissed at her. She hit him again, 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 smashing the heel of her hand into his eye, but he did not seem to feel her blows. She clawed at his wrists. But his grip just grew tighter, though blood ran from the gougers where she scratched him. He was crushing her, smothering her. She pushed at his shoulders to get him off her, but he was heavy as a horse, impossible to move. When she tried to knee him in the groin, all she did was drive her knee into his belly. Grunting, Biter tore out a handful of her hair. My dagger! Brian clutched at the thought, desperate. She worked her hand down between them, fingers squirming under his sour, suffocating flesh, searching until they finally found the hilt. Biter locked both his hands about her neck and began to slam her head against the ground. The lightning flashed again, this time inside her skull. Yet somehow her fingers tightened, pulled the dagger from its sheath. With him on top of her, she could not raise the blade to stab, so she drew it hard across his belly. Something warm and wet gushed between her fingers. Biter hissed again, louder than before, and let go of her throat just long enough to smash her in the face. She heard bones crack, and the pain blinded her for an instant. When she tried to slash at him again, he wrenched the dagger from her fingers and slammed a knee down onto her forearm, breaking it. Then he seized her head again and resumed trying to tear it off her shoulders. Brian could hear dog barking, and men were shouting all about her, and between the claps of thunder she heard the clash of steel on steel. Sir she thought, so I'll has joined the fight. But all that seemed far away and unimportant. Her world was no larger than the hands at her throat and the face that loomed above her. The rain ran off his hood as he leaned closer. His breath stank like cheese gone rotten. Brain's chest was burning, and the storm was behind her eyes blinding her. Bones ground against each other inside of her. Biter's mouth gaped open, impossibly wide. She saw his teeth, yellow and crooked, filed into points. When they closed on the soft meat of her cheek, she hardly felt it. She could feel herself spiralling down into the dark. I cannot die yet, she told herself. There's something I still need to do. Biter's mouth tore free, full of blood and flesh. He spat, grinned, and sank his pointed teeth into her flesh again. This time he chewed and swallowed. He is eating me, she realized, but she had no strength left to fight him any longer. She felt as if she were floating above herself, 
watching the horror as if it were happening to some other woman, to some stupid girl who thought she was a knight. It'll be finished soon, she told herself. Then it will not matter if he eats me. Biter threw back his head and opened his mouth again, howling and stuck his tongue out at her. It was sharply pointed, dripping blood, longer than any tongue should be, sliding from his mouth out and out and out, red and wet and glistening. It made a hideous sight, obscene. His tongue is a foot long, Brain thought, just before the darkness took her. Why? It looks almost like a sword. Jamie The brooch that fastened Sir Brendan Tolly's cloak was a black fish, wrought in jet and gold. His ringmail was grim and grey. Over it he wore greaves, a gorget, gauntlets, pauldron, and paulines of blackened steel, none half so dark as the look upon his face as he waited for Jamie Lannister at the end of the drawbridge. Alone atop a chestnut courser, caparisoned in red and blue. He loves me not. Tully had a craggy face, deeply lined and windburnt, beneath a shock of stiff grey hair. But Jamie could still see the great knight, who had once enthralled a squire with tales of the Ninepenny Kings. Honor's hoofs, clattered against the planks of the drawbridge. Jamie had thought long and hard about whether to wear his gold armour or his white to this meeting. In the end he'd chosen a leather jack and a crimson cloak. He drew up a yard from Sir Brynden, and inclined his head to the older man. Kingslayer, said Tolly. That he would make that name the first word from his mouth spoke volumes, but Jamie was resolved to keep his temper. Blackfish? he responded. Thank you for coming. I assume you have returned to fulfill the oaths you swore, my niece, Sir Brendan said. As I recall, you promised Caitlin her daughters in return for your freedom. His mouth tightened. Yet I do not see the girls. Where are they? Must he make me say it? I do not have them. Oh, pity. Do you wish to resume your captivity? Your old cell is still available. We have put fresh rushes on the floor. Uh, and a nice new pail for me to shit in, I don't doubt. That was thoughtful of you, sir, but I fear I must decline. I prefer the comforts of my pavilion. Whilst Caitling enjoys the comforts of her grave. I had no hand in Lady Caitlin's death, he might have said, and her daughters were gone before I reached King's Landing. It was on his tongue to speak of Brian and the sword he'd given her. But the blackfish was looking at him the way that Eddard Stark had looked at him when he found him on the Iron Throne with a mad king's blood upon his blade. I came to speak of the living, not the dead, of those who need not die, but shall, unless I hand you river run. Is this where you threaten to hang Edmure? Beneath his bushy brows, Tully's eyes were stone. My nephew! as marked for death no matter what I do. So hang him, then be done with it. I expect Ed Muir is as weary of standing on those gallows as I am of seeing him there. 
Raymond Frey is a bloody fool. His mummer show with Edmure and the gallows had only made the blackfish more obdurate. That was plain. You hold Lady Sybil Westerling and three of her children. I'll return your nephew in exchange for them. As you returned Lady Caitlin's daughters? But Jamie did not allow himself to be provoked. An old woman and three children for your liege lord? That's a better bargain than you could have hoped for. Sir Brynden smiled a hard smile. You do not lack for gall, Kingslayer. Bargaining with oathbreakers is like building on quicksand, though. Cat should have known better than to trust the likes of you. It was Tyrion she trusted in, Jamie almost said. The imp deceived her, too. The promises I made to Lady Caitlin were wrong for me at sword point. And the oath you swore to Ares. He felt his phantom fingers twitching. Ares is no part of this. Will you exchange the Westerlings for Edmure? No. My king entrusted his queen to my keeping, and I swore to keep her safe. I will not hand her over to a fray noose. The girl has been pardoned. No harm will come to her. You have my word on that. Your word of honor? Sir Brynden raised an eyebrow. <laughs> Do you even know what honor is? A horse? I will swear any oath that you require. Oh, spare me, Kingslayer. I want to. Strike your banners and open your gates, and I'll grant your men their lives. Those who wish to remain at Riveron in service to Lord Emmon may do so. The rest shall be free to go where they will, though I will require them to surrender their arms and armor. I wonder how far will they get, unarmed, before outlaws set upon them. You dare not allow them to join Lord Berwick. We both know that. And what of me? Will I be paraded through King's Landing to die like Eddard Stark? I will permit you to take the black. Ned Stark's bastard is the Lord Commander on the wall. The blackfish narrowed his eyes. Did your father arrange for that as well? Caitlin never trusted the boy, as I recall, no more than she ever trusted Theon Greyjoy. It would seem she was right about them both. <laughs> oh, no, sir, I think not. I'll die warm, if you please, with a sword in my hand running red with lion blood. Tully blood runs just as red, Jamie reminded him. If you will not yield the castle, I must storm it. Hundreds will die. Hundreds of mine, thousands of yours. Your garrison will perish to a man. I know that song. Do you sing it to the tune of the reigns of Castamere? My men would sooner die upon their feet fighting than on their knees beneath a headsman's axe. This is not going well. This defiance serves no purpose, sir. The war is done, and your young wolf is dead, murdered in breach of all the sacred laws of hospitality. Phrase work, not mine. Call it what you will. It stinks of Tywin Lannister. Jamie could not deny that. My father is dead as well. May the father judge him justly. Now there's an awful prospect. I would have slain Rob Stark in the Whispering Wood, if I could have reached him. Some fools got in the way. Does it matter how the boy perished? He is no less dead, and his kingdom died when he did. You must be blind as well as maimed, sir.
Lift your eyes and you will see that the dire wolf still flies above our walls. I've seen him. He looks lonely. Harrenhal has fallen. Seaguard and Maidenpool. The Brackens have bent the knee, and they've got Titus Blackwood penned up in Raventree. Piper, Vance, Mouton, all your bannermen have yielded. Only River Run remains. We have twenty times your numbers. Twenty times the men require twenty times the food. How well are you provisioned, my lord? Oh, well enough to sit here till the end of days, if need be, whilst you starve inside your walls. He told the lie as boldly as he could, and hoped his face did not betray him. The blackfish was not deceived. The end of your days, perhaps. Our own supplies are ample, though I fear we did not leave much in the fields for visitors. We can bring food down from the twins, said Jamie, or over the hills from the west, if it comes to that. If you say so, far be it from me to question the word of such an honourable knight. The scorn in his voice made Jamie bristle. There is a quicker way to decide the matter. A single combat? My champion against yours? I was wondering when you would get to that. Sir Brynden laughed. Who will it be? Strungbor? Adam Marbrandt? Blackwall de Frey? He leaned forward. Why not you and me, sir? That would have been a sweet fight once, Jamie thought. Fine fodder for the singers. When Lady Caitlin freed me, she made me swear not to take arms again against the Starks or Tullys. A most convenient oath, sir. His face darkened. Are you calling me a coward? No, I'm calling you a cripple. The blackfish nodded at Jamie's golden hand. We both know you cannot fight with that. I had two hands. Would you throw your life away for pride? A voice inside him whispered. Some might say a cripple and an old man are well matched. Free me for my vow to Lady Caitlin, and I will meet you sword to sword. If I win, River Run is ours. If you slay me, we'll lift the siege. Sir Brynden laughed again. <laughs> Much as I would welcome the chance to take the golden sword away from you and cut out your black heart. Your promises are worthless. I will gain nothing from your death but the pleasure of killing you, and I will not risk my own life for that, as small a risk as that may be. It was a good thing that Jamie wore no sword, elsewise he would have ripped his blade out, and if Sir Brynden did not slay him, the archer on the walls most surely would. Are there any terms you will accept? He demanded of the blackfish. From you? Sir Brynden shrugged. No. Why did you even come to treat with me? A siege is deadly dull. I wanted to see this stump of yours and hear whatever excuses you cared to offer up for your latest enormities. They were feebler than I hoped. You always disappoint, Kingslayer. The blackfish wheeled his mare and trotted back toward Riveron. The portcullis descended with a rush, its iron spikes biting deep into the muddy ground. Jamie turned Honor's head about for the long ride back to the Lannister siege lines. He could feel the eyes on him, the Tully men upon their battlements, the frays across the river. If they are not blind, they'll all know he threw my offer in my teeth. He would need to storm the castle. 
Well, that's one more broken vow to the Kingslayer. Just more shit in the bucket. Jamie resolved to be the first man on the battlements, and with this golden hand of mine, most like the first to fall. Back at camp, little Lou held his bridle, whilst Peck gave him a hand down from the saddle. Do they think I'm such a cripple that I cannot dismount by myself? How did you fare, my lord? asked his cousin, Sir Devon. No one put an arrow in my horse's rump, elsewise there was little to distinguish me from Sir Ryman. He grimaced. So now he must needs turn the red fork redder. Blame yourself for that blackfish. You left me little choice. Assemble a war council. Sir Adam, Strongbore, Forley Prester, those river lords of ours, and our friends of Frey, Sir Ryman, Lord Emmon, whoever else they care to bring. They gathered quickly. Lord Piper and both Lords Vance came to speak for the repentant lords of the Trident, whose loyalties would shortly be put to the test. The West was represented by Sir Davin, Strongbore, Adam Marbrandt, and Forley Prester. Lord Emmonfrey joined them with his wife. Lady Jenner claimed her stool with a look that dared any man there to question her presence. None did. The Frey sent Sir Walder Rivers, called Bastard Walder, and Sir Ryman's firstborn Edwin, a pallid, slender man with a pinched nose and lank, dark hair. Under a blue lambswool cloak, Edwin wore a jerkin of finely tooled grey calfskin, with ornate scrollwork worked into the leather. I speak for House Frey, he announced. My father is indisposed this morning. Sir Davin gave a snort. Is he drunk? or just green-sick from last night's wine. Edwin had the hard, mean mouth of a miser. Lord Jamie, he said, must I suffer such discourtesy? Is it true? Jamie asked him. Is your father drunk? Frey pressed his lips together and eyed Sir Ilian Payne, who was standing beside the tent flap in his rusted mail, his sword poking up above one bony shoulder. He, my father, has a bad belly, my lord. Red wine helps with his digestion. He must be digesting a bloody mammoth, said Sir Davin. Strongbore laughed, and Lady Jenner chuckled. Enough, said Jamie. We have a castle to win. When his father sat in council, he let his captain speak first. He was resolved to do the same. How shall we proceed? Hang Edmure Tully for a start urged Lord Emmonfrey. That will teach Sir Brinton that we mean what we say. If we send Sir Edmure's head to his uncle, it may move him to yield. Uh, Brinton Blackfish is not moved so easily. Carl Vance, the Lord of Wayfarer's Rest, had a melancholy look. A wine-stained birthmark covered half his neck and one side of his face. His own brother could not move him to a marriage bed. Sir Devon shook his shaggy head. We have to storm the walls, as I've been saying all along. Siege towers, scaling ladders, a ram to break the gate. That's what's needed here. I will lead the assault, said Strongbore. Give the fish a taste of steel and fire. That's what I say. They are my walls, protested Lord Emmon, and that is my gate you would break. He drew his parchment out of his sleeve again. King Tommen himself has granted me. 
And we've all seen your paper, Uncle, snapped Edwin Frey. Why don't you go wave it at the Blackfish for a change? Storming the walls will be a bloody business, said Adam Marbrandt. I propose we wait for a moonless night and send a dozen big men across the river in a boat with muffled oars. They can scale the walls with ropes and grapnels and open the gates from the inside. I will lead them, if the council wishes. Folly, declared the bastard Walter Rivers. Sir Brendan is no man to be cozened by such tricks. The blackfish is the obstacle, agreed Edwin Frey. His helm bears a black trout on its crest that makes him easy to pick out from afar. I propose that we move our siege towers close, fill them full of bowmen, and feign an attack upon the gates. That will bring Sir Brendan to the battlement, crest and all. Let every archer smear his shafts with night's oil and make that crest his mark. Once Sir Brendan dies, river on his hours. Mine, piped Lord Emmond. Riveron is mine. Lord Carl's birthmark darkened. Will the night's oil be your own contribution, Edwin? A mortal poison, I don't doubt. The blackfish deserves a nobler death, and I'm the man to give it to him. Strongbore thumped his fist on the table. I will challenge him to single combat. Mace or axe or longsword makes no matter. The old man will be my meat. Why would he deign to accept your challenge, sir? asked Sir Forley Preston. What could he gain from such a duel? Will we lift the siege if he should win? I do not believe that. Nor will he. A single combat would accomplish nought. I have known Brendan Tully since we were squires together in service to Lord Derry, said Norbert Vance, the blind lord of Vetranta. If it please, my lords, let me go and speak with him and try to make him understand the hopelessness of his position. He understands it well enough, said Lord Piper. He was a short, rotund, bow-legged man with a bush of wild red hair, the father of one of Jamie's squires. The resemblance to the boy was unmistakable. Man's not bloody stupid, Norbert. He has eyes and too much sense to yield to such as these. He made a rude gesture in the direction of Edwin Frey and Walder Rivers. Edwin bristled. If my lord Piper means to imply... I don't imply, Frey. I say what I mean straight out, like an honest man. What would you know of the ways of honest men? You're a treacherous, lying weasel like all your kin. I'd sooner drink a pint of piss and take the word of any fray. He leaned across the table. Where, where is Mark? Answer me that. What have you done with my son? He was a guest at your bloody wedding. And our honest guest. It shall remain, said Edwin, until you prove your loyalty to his grace, King Tommen. Five knights and twenty men-at-arms went with Mark through the twins, said Piper. Are they your guests as well, Frey? 
as some of the knights, perhaps. The others reserved no more than they deserved. You'd do well to guard your traitor's tongue, Piper, unless you want your heir returned in pieces. My father's counsels never went like this, Jamie thought, as Piper came lurching to his feet. Say that with a sword in your hand, Frey, the small man snarled. Or do you only fight with smears of shit? Edwin's pinched face went pale. Beside him, Walter Rivers rose. Edwin is no man of the sword, but I am Piper. If you have any more remarks to make, come outside and make them. This is a war council, not a war, Jamie reminded them. Sit down, the both of you. Neither man moved. Now! Walter Rivers seated himself. Lord Piper was not so easy to cow. He muttered a curse and strode from the tent. Shall I send men after him to drag him back, my lord? Sir Davin asked Jamie. Send Sir Ellen, urged Edwin Frey. We only need his head. Carl Vance turned to Jamie. Lord Piper spoke from grief. Mark is his firstborn son. Those knights who accompanied him to the twins were nephews and cousins all. Traitors and rebels all, you mean, said Edwin Frey. Jamie gave him a cold look. The twins took up the young wolf's cause as well, he reminded the phrase. Then you betrayed him. That makes you twice as treacherous as Piper. He enjoyed seeing Edwin's thin smile curdle up and die. I have endured sufficient counsel for one day, he decided. We're done. Siege your preparations, my lords. We attack at first light. The wind was blowing from the north as the lords filed from the tent. Jamie could smell the stink of the fray encampments beyond the tumblestone. Across the water, Edmure Tully stood forlorn atop the tall grey gallows, with a rope around his neck. His aunt departed last, her husband at her heels. Uh, Lord Nephew, Emmon protested, this assault on my seat, you must not do this. When he swallowed, the apple in his throat moved up and down. You must not. I... I forbid it. He had been chewing sour leaf again. Pinkish froth glistened on his lips. The castle is mine. I have the parchment signed by the king, by little Tommen. I am the lawful lord of Riveron, and... Not so long as Edmure Tully lives, said Lady Jenna. He is soft of heart and soft of head. I know, but alive, the man is still a danger. What do you mean to do about that, Jamie? It's the blackfish who is a danger, not Edmure. Leave Edmure to me. Sir Lyle, Sir Illyn, attend me, if you would. It's time I paid a visit to those gallows. The tumblestone was deeper and swifter than the Red Fork, and the nearest ford was leagues upstream. The ferry had just started across with Walder Rivers and Edwin Frey when Jamie and his men arrived at the river. As they awaited its return, Jamie told them what he wanted. Sir Ilian spat into the river. When the three of them stepped off the ferry on the north bank, a drunken camp follower offered to pleasure Strongbow with her mouth. Here, pleasure my friend, Sir Lyle said, shoving her towards Sir Ilian. Laughing, the woman moved to kiss pain on the lips then saw his eyes 
and shrank away. The paths between the cookfires were raw brown mud, mixed with horse dung and torn up by hooves and boots alike. Everywhere Jamie saw the twin towers of House Frey displayed on shields and banners, blue and grey, along with the arms of lesser houses, sworn to the crossing. The heron of Erinford, the pitchfork of Haig, Lord Charlton's three sprigs of mistletoe. The arrival of the Kingslayer did not go unnoticed. An old woman selling piglets from a basket stopped to stare at him. A knight with a half-familiar face went to one knee, and two men-at-arms, pissing in a ditch, turned and sprayed each other. "'Should Jamie!' someone called after him, but he strode on without turning. Around him he glimpsed the faces of men he'd done his best to kill in the Whispering Wood, where the Freys had fought beneath the direwolf banners of Rub Stark. His golden hand hung heavy at his side. Ryman Frey's great rectangular pavilion was the largest in the camp. Its grey canvas walls were made of sewn squares to resemble stonework, and its two peaks evoked the twins. Far from being indisposed, Sir Ryman was enjoying some entertainment. The sound of a woman's drunken laughter drifted from within the tent, mingled with the strains of a wood harp and a singer's voice. I will deal with you later, sir, Jamie thought. Walter Rivers stood before his own modest tent, talking with two men at arms. His shield bore the arms of House Frey, with the colours reversed, and a red bend sinister across the towers. When the bastard saw Jamie, he frowned. There's a cold, suspicious look, if ever I saw one. That one is more dangerous than any of his true-born brothers. The gallows had been raised ten feet off the ground. Two spearmen were posted at the foot of the steps. You can't go up without Sir Ryman's leave, one told Jamie. This says I can, Jamie tapped his sword hilt with a finger. The question is, will I need to step over your corpse? The spearmen moved aside. Atop the gallows, the Lord of Riveron stood staring at the trap beneath him. His feet were black and caked with mud, his legs bare. Edmure wore a soiled silken tunic striped in tully, red and blue, and a noose of hemp and rope. At the sound of Jamie's footsteps, he raised his head and licked his dry, cracked lips. Kingslayer. The sight of Sir Ilion widened his eyes. Better a sword than a rope. Do it, pain. Sir Ilion, said Jamie. You heard Lord Tully. Do it. The silent knight gripped his great sword with both hands. Long and heavy it was, sharp as common steel could be. Edmure's cracked lips moved soundlessly. As Sir Ilion drew the blade back, he closed his eyes. The stroke had all pain's weight behind it. No! Stop! No! Edwin Frey came panting into view. My father comes fast as he can. Jamie, you must— My lord would suit me better, Frey, said Jamie. And you would do well to omit must from any speech directed at me. Sir Ryman came stumping up the gallow steps in company with a straw-haired slattern as drunk as he was. Her gown laced up the front but someone had undone the laces to the navel, so her breasts were spilling out. They were large and heavy, with big brown nipples. 
On a head, a circlet of hammered bronze sat askew, graven, with runes and ringed with small black swords. When she saw Jamie, she laughed. Who in seven hells is this one? The Lord Commander of the King's Guard, Jamie returned with cold courtesy. I might ask the same of you, my lady. Lady? I'm no lady. I'm the Queen. My sister will be surprised to hear that. Lord Ryman crowned me his very self. She gave a shake of her ample hips. I'm the Queen of Whores. No, Jamie thought. My sweet sister holds that title, too. Sir Ryman found his tongue. Shut your mouth, slut! Lord Jamie doesn't want to hear some harlot's nonsense. This fray was a thick-set man with a broad face, small eyes, and a soft, fleshy set of chins. His breath stank of wine and onions. Making queen, Sir Ryman? Jamie asked softly. Stupid. As stupid as this business with Lord Edmure. I gave the blackfish warning. I told him Edmure would die unless the castle yielded. I had this gallows built to show them that Sir Ryman Frey does not make idle threats. At Seaguard, my son Walder did the same with Patrick Malister, and Lord Jason bent the knee. But uh, the blackfish is a cold man. He refused us, so. You hang Lord Edmure, the man reddened. My uh, lord grandfather, if we hang the man, we have no hostage, sir. Have you considered that? Only a fool makes threats he's not prepared to carry out. If I were to threaten to hit you unless you shut your mouth, and you presume to speak, what do you think I'd do? Sir, you do not under— Jamie hit him. It was a backhand blow delivered with his golden hand but the force of it sent Sir Ryman stumbling backward into the arms of his whore. You have a fat head, Sir Ryman, and a thick neck as well. Sir Ilian, how many strokes would it take to cut through that neck? Sir Ilian laid a single finger against his nose. Jamie laughed. An empty burst? <laughs> I say three. Ryman Frey went to his knees. I have done nothing but drink... And whore, I know. I'm heir to the crossing, you can't— I warned you about talking. Jamie watched the man turn white. A sot, a fool, and a craven. Lord Walder had best outlive this one, or the phrase are done. You are dismissed, sir. D dismissed? You heard me. Go away. But where shall I go? To hell or home, as you prefer. See that you're not in camp when the sun comes up. You may take your queen of whores, but not that crown of hers. Jamie turned from Sir Ryman to his son. Edwin, I'm giving you your father's command. Try not to be so stupid as your sire. That ought not to pose much difficulty, my lord. Send word to Lord Walder. The crown requires all his prisoners. Jamie waved his golden hand. Sir Lyle, bring him. Edmure Tolly had collapsed face down on the scaffold when Sir Ilian's blade sheared the rope in two. A foot of hemp still dangled from the noose about his neck. Strongbore grabbed the end of it and pulled him to his feet. A fish on a leash, he said shortly. Here's a sight I never saw before. The Freya stepped aside to let them pass. A crowd had gathered below the scaffold, 
including a dozen camp followers in various states of disarray. Jamie noticed one man holding up a wood harp. You, singer, come with me. The man doffed his hat. As my lord commands. No one said a word as they walked back to the ferry, with Sir Ryman Singer trailing after them. But as they shoved off from the riverbank and made for the south side of the tumblestone, Edmure Tully grabbed Jamie by the arm. Why? A Lannister pays his debts, he thought, and you're the only coin that's left to me. Consider it a wedding gift. Edmure stared at him with weary eyes. A wedding gift? I am told your wife is pretty. She'd have to be, for you to bet her while your sister and your king were being murdered. I never knew. Edmure licked his cracked lips. There were fiddlers outside the bedchamber, and Lady Roslyn was distracting you. She... they made her do it. Lord Walder and the rest. Roslyn never wanted... she wept. But I thought it was... the sight of your rampant manhood. I that would make any woman weep, I'm sure. She is carrying my child. No, Jamie thought. That's your death she has growing in her belly. Back at his pavilion he dismissed Strongbow and Sir Elian, but not the singer. I may have need of a song shortly, he told the man. Lou, heat some bathwater for my guest. Pierre, find him some clean clothing. Nothing with lions on it, if you please. Peck, wine for Lord Tully. Are you hungry, my lord? Edmure nodded, but his eyes were still suspicious. Jamie settled on a stool while Tully had his bath. The filth came off in grey clouds. Once you've eaten, my men will escort you to Riveron. What happens after that is up to you. What do you mean? Your uncle is an old man. Valiant, yes, but the best part of his life is done. He has no bride to grieve for him, no children to defend. A good death is all the blackfish can hope for. But you have years remaining, Edmure, and you are the rightful lord of House Tolly, not him. Your uncle serves at your pleasure. The fate of Riveron is in your hands. Edmure stared. The fate of Riveron? Yield the castle and no man dies. Your small folk can go in peace or stay to serve Lord Emmon. Sir Brynden will be allowed to take the black along with as many of the garrison as chose to join him. You as well, if the wall appeals to you, or you may go to Castle Rock as my captive and enjoy all the comforts and courtesy that befits a hostage of your rank. I'll send your wife to join you if you like. If her child is a boy, he will serve House Lannister as a page and a squire, and when he earns his knighthood, we'll bestow some lands upon him. Should Roslyn give you a daughter, I'll see her well dowered when she's old enough to wed. You yourself may even be granted parole once the war is done. All you need do is yield the castle. Edmure raised his hands from the tub and watched the water run between his fingers. And if I will not yield, must you make me say the words? Pierre was standing by the flap of the tent with her arms full of clothes. His squires were listening as well, and the singer. 
Let them hear, Jamie thought. Let the world hear. It makes no matter. He forced himself to smile. You've seen our numbers, Edmure. You've seen the ladders, the towers, the trebuchets, the rams. If I speak the command, my cars will bridge your moat and break your gate. Hundreds will die. Most of them your own. Your former bannermen will make up the first wave of attackers, so you'll start your day by killing the fathers and brothers of men who died for you at the Twins. The second wave will be Freys. I have no lack of those. My Westermen will follow when your archers are short of arrows and your knights so weary they can hardly lift their blades. When the castle falls, all those inside will be put to the sword. Your herds will be butchered. Your guard's wood will be felled. Your keeps and your towers will burn. I'll pull your walls down and divert the tumble stone over the ruins. By the time I'm done, no man will ever know that a castle once stood there. Jamie got to his feet. Your wife may whelp before that. You'll want your child, I expect. I'll send him to you when he's born. With a trebuchet. Silence followed his speech. Edmure sat in the bath. Pia clutched the clothing to her breasts. The singer tightened a string on his harp. Little Lou hollowed out a loaf of stale bread to make a trencher, pretending that he had not heard. With a trebuchet, Jamie thought. If his aunt had been there, would she still say Tyrion was Tywin's son? Edmure Tully finally found his voice. I could climb out of this tub and kill you where you stand, Kingslayer. You could try, Jamie waited. When Edmure made no move to rise, he said, I'll leave you to enjoy your food. Singer, play for our guests while he eats. You know the song, I trust. The one about a rain? Ah, my lord, I know it. Edmure seemed to see the man for the first time. No, not him. Get him away from me. Why? It's just a song, said Jamie. He cannot have that bad a voice. Cersei Grand Maester Pycelle had been old for as long as she had known him, but he seemed to have aged another hundred years in the past three nights. It took him an eternity to bend his creaking knee before her, and once he had, he could not rise again until Sir Osmond jerked him to his feet. Cersei studied him with displeasure. Lord Kyburn informs me that Lord Giles has cuffed his last. Yes, Your Grace, I, I did my best to ease his passing. Did you? The Queen turned to Lady Merriweather. I did say I wanted Rosby alive, did I not? You did, Your Grace. Sir Osmond, what is your recollection of the conversation? Are you commanded Grand Maester Pycelle to save the man, Your Grace? We all heard. Pycelle's mouth opened and closed. Your Grace must know I did all that could be done for the poor man, as you did for Joffrey and his father, my beloved husband. Robert was as strong as any man in the Seven Kingdoms, yet you lost him to a boar. Oh, and let us not forget John Aaron. No doubt you would have killed Ned Stark as well, if I had let you keep him longer. 
Tell me, maester, was it at the Citadel that you learned to wring your hands and make excuses? Her voice made the old man flinch. No man could have done more. Your Grace, I, I have always given leal service. When you counseled King Ares to open his gates as my father's host approached, was that your notion of leal service? That I misjudged. Was that good counsel? Your Grace must surely know what I know is that when my son was poisoned, you proved to be of less use than Moon Boy. What I know is that the crown has desperate need of gold, and our Lord Treasurer is dead. The old fool seized upon that. I, I shall draw up a list of men suitable to take Lord Giles's place upon the council. A list? Cersei was amused by his presumption. I can well imagine the sort of list you would provide me. Greybeards and grasping fools, and Garth the Gross. Her lips tightened. You have been much in Lady Marjorie's company of late. Yes, yes, I. Queen Marjorie has been most distraught about uh, Sir Loris. I provide her grace with sleeping draughts and uh, other sorts of potions. No doubt. Tell me, was it our little queen who commanded you to kill Lord Giles? C -c kill? Grand Maester Bicel's eyes grew as big as boiled eggs. Your grace cannot believe it. It was his cough. By all the gods, I... Her grace would not... She bore Lord Giles no ill will. Why would Queen Marjorie want him... Dead? Why to plant another rose on Tommen's council? Are you blind or bought? Rosby stood in her way, so she put him in his grave. With your connivance. Your Grace, I swear to you, Lord Giles perished from his cough. His mouth was quivering. My loyalty has always been to the crown, to, to the realm, to, to House Lannister. In that order? Pycelle's fear was palpable. He is ripe enough, time to squeeze the fruit and taste the juice. If you are as leal as you claim, why are you lying to me? Do not trouble to deny it. You began to dance attendance on Maid Marjorie before Sir Loras went to Dragonstone, so spare me further fables about how you want only to console our good daughter in her grief. What brings you to the Maiden Vault so often? Not Marjorie's vapid conversation, surely. Are you courting that pox-faced scepter of hers? Diddling little Lady Bulwer? Do you play the spy for her, informing on me to serve her plots? I, I, I obey. Her maester takes an oath of service. A grand maester swears to serve the realm. Your grace, she, she is the queen. I am the queen. I, I meant she is the king's wife, and I know who she is. What I want to know is why she has need of you. Is my good daughter unwell? Unwell? The old man plucked at the thing he called a beard, that patch growth of thin white hair sprouting from the loose pink wattles under his chin. Not, not unwell, your grace, N not of such. My oaths forbid me to divulge. Your oaths will be a small comfort in the black cells, she warned him. I'll hear the truth, or you'll wear chains. 
Pycelle collapsed to his knees. I beg you, I was your Lord Father's man, and a friend to you in the matter of Lord Aaron. I could not survive the dungeons, not again. Why does Marjorie send for you? She desires, she, she, say it, he cringed. Moon tea, he whispered. Moon tea for, I know what moon tea is for. There it is. Very well. Get off those sagging knees and try to remember what it was to be a man. Pycelle struggled to rise, but took so long about it that she had to tell Osmond Kettleblack to give him another yank. As to Lord Giles, no doubt our father above will judge him justly. He left no children. No children of his body, uh, but there is a ward, not of his blood. Cersei dismissed that annoyance with a flick of her hand. Giles knew of our darn need for gold. No doubt he told you of his wish to leave all his lands and wealth to Tommen. Rosby's gold would help refresh their coffers, and Rosby's lands and castle could be bestowed upon one of her own as a reward for leal service. Lord Waters, perhaps. Arrain had been hinting at his need for a seat. His lordship was only an empty honour without one. He had his eye on Dragonstone, Cersei knew. But there he aimed too high. Rosby would be more suitable to his birth and station. Lord Giles loved his grace with all his heart, Pycelle was saying. But his ward will doubtless understand, once he hears you speak of Lord Giles's dying wish. Go, and see it done. If it please, your grace. Grand Maester Pycelle almost tripped over his own robes in his haste to leave. Lady Merriweather closed the door behind him. Moon tea, she said, as she turned back to the queen. How foolish of her. Why would she do such a thing, take such a risk? The little queen has appetites that Tommen is yet too young to satisfy. That was always a danger when a grown woman was married to a child. Even more so with a widow. She may claim that Renly never touched her, but I will not believe it. Women only drank moon tea for one reason. Maidens had no need for it at all. My son has been betrayed. Marjorie has a lover. That is high treason, punishable by death. She could only hope that Mace Tyrell's prune-faced harridan of a mother lived long enough to see the trial. By insisting that Tommen and Marjorie be wed at once, Lady Olena had condemned her precious rose to a headsman's sword. Jamie made off with Sir Ilian Payne. I suppose I shall need to find a new King's Justice to snick her head off. I'll do it, offered Osmond Kettleblack with an easy grin. Marjorie's got a pretty little neck. A good sharp sword will go right through it. It would, said Diana. But there is a Tyrell army at Storm's End and another at Maidenpool. They have sharp swords as well. I am awash in roses. It was vexing. She still had need of Mace Tyrell, if not his daughter. And at least until such time as Stannis is defeated, then I shan't need any of them. But how could she rid herself of the daughter without losing the father? Treason is treason, she said. But we must have proof. 
something more substantial than moon tea. If she is proved to be untrue, even her own Lord Father must condemn her, or her shame becomes his own. Kettleblack chewed on one end of his moustache. We need to catch them during the deed. How? Kyburn has eyes on her day and night. Her serving men take my coin and bring us only trifles. Yet no one has seen this lover. The ears outside her door hear singing, laughter, gossip. Nothing of any use. Marjorie is too shrewd to be caught so easily, said Lady Merriweather. Her women are her castle walls. They sleep with her, dress her, pray with her, read with her, sew with her. When she is not hawking or riding, she is playing come into my castle with little Alessane Bulwer. Whenever men are about, her scepter will be with her, or her cousins. She must rid herself of her hens sometime, the queen insisted. A thought struck her. Unless her ladies are part of it as well, not all of them, perhaps, but some. The cousins? Even Taina sounded doubtful. All three are younger than the little queen, and more innocent. Wantons clad in maiden's white. That only makes their sins more shocking. Their names will live in shame. Suddenly the queen could almost taste it. Tainer, your lord husband, is my justice here. The two of you must sup with me this very night. She wanted this done quickly before Marjorie took it in her little head to return to High Garden or sail to Dragonstone to be with her wounded brother at death's door. I shall command the cooks to roast a boar for us, and, of course, we must have some music to help with our digestion. Tainer was very quick. Music? Just so. Go and tell your lord husband and make arrangements for the singer, Cersei urged. Sir Osmond, you may remain. We have much and more to discuss. I shall have need of Kyburn, too. Sad to say, the kitchens proved to have no wild boar on hand, and there was not time enough to send out hunters. Instead, the cooks butchered one of the castle sows, and served them ham studded with cloves and basted with honey and dried cherries. It was not what Cersei wanted, but she made do. Afterward they had baked apples with a sharp white cheese. Lady Taina savoured every bite. Not so Orton Merriweather, whose round face remained blotched and pale from broth to cheese. He drank heavily and kept stealing glances at the singer. A great pity about Lord Giles, Cersei said at last. I dare say none of us will miss his coughing, though. No, no, I think not. We shall have need of a Lord Treasurer. If the veil were not so unsettled, I would bring back Peter Baelish, but I am minded to try Sir Harry's in the office. He can do no worse than Giles, and at least he does not cough. Sir Harry's is the king's hand, said Taina. Sir Harry's is a hostage, and feeble even at that. It is time that Tommen had a more forceful hand. Lord Orton lifted his gaze from his wine-cup. Forceful, to be sure. He hesitated. Who, um, you, my lord? It is in your blood. Your grandson took my own father's place as hand to Ares. 
replacing Tywin Lannister with Owen Merriweather had proved to be akin to replacing a Destrier with a donkey, to be sure. But Owen had been an old Don man when Ares raised him, amiable if ineffectual. His grandson was younger and, well, he has a strong wife. It was a pity Tyena could not serve as hand. She was thrice the man her husband was, and far more amusing. She was also mearish-born, and female, however, so Orton must needs suffice. I have no doubt that you will be more able than Zahari's. The contents of my chamber-pot are more able than Zahari's. Will you consent to serve? I, yes, of course, your grace does me a great honour. A greater one than you deserve. You have served me ably as justiceer, my lord, and will continue to do so through these trying times ahead. When she saw that Merriweather had grasped her meaning, the queen turned to smile at the singer. And you must be rewarded as well for all the sweet songs you have played for us whilst we ate. The gods have given you a gift. The singer bowed. Your grace is kind to say so. Not kind, said Circe, merely truthful. Tyena tells me that you are called the Blue Bard. I am your grace. The singer's boots were supple blue calfskin, his breeches fine blue wool. The tunic he wore was pale blue silk slashed with shiny blue satin. He had even gone so far as to dye his hair blue, in the Tyrushi fashion. Long and curly, it fell to his shoulders and smelled as if it had been washed in rose water. From blue roses, no doubt. At least his teeth are white. They were good teeth, not the least bit crooked. You have no other name? A hint of pink suffused his cheeks. As a boy, I was called what? A fine name for a ploughboy, less fitting for a singer. The bluebird's eyes were the same colour as Robert's. For that alone she hated him. It is easy to see why you are Lady Marjorie's favourite. Oh, Grace is kind. She says I'll give her pleasure. Oh, I'm certain of it. Might I see your lute? If it please your grace. Beneath the courtesy there was a faint hint of unease, but he handed her the lute all the same. One does not refuse the queen's request. Cersei plucked a string and smiled at the sound. Sweet and sad as love, tell me what. The first time you took Marjorie to bed, was that before she wed my son or after? For a moment he did not seem to understand. When he did, his eyes grew large. Your, your grace has been misinformed. I swear to you, I, I never— Liar! Cersei smashed the lute across the singer's face so hard the painted wood exploded in shards and splinters. Lord Orton, summon my guards and take this creature to the dungeons. Orton Merriweather's face was damp with fear. This, oh, infamy! He dared seduce the queen! I fear it was the other way around, but he is a traitor all the same. Let him sing for Lord Kyburn. The blue bard went white. No! Blood dripped from his lip where the lute had torn it. Oh, never! When Merriweather seized him by the arm, he screamed, Mother, have mercy, no! I am not your mother!
Cersei told him. Even in the black cells, all they got from him were denials, prayers, and pleas for mercy. Before long, blood was streaming down his chin from all his broken teeth, and he wet his dark blue breeches three times over. Yet still the man persisted in his lies. Is it possible we have the wrong singer? Cersei asked. Well, all things are possible, your grace. Have no fear. This man will confess before the night is done. Down here in the dungeons, Kyburn wore rough-spun wool and blacksmith's leather apron. To the blue bard, he said, I am sorry if the guards were rough with you. Their courtesies are sadly lacking. His voice was kind, solicitous. All we want from you is the truth. I've told you the truth, the singer sobbed. Iron shackles held him hard against the cold stone wall. We know better. Kyben had a razor in his hand, its edge gleaming faintly in the torchlight. He cut away the blue bard's clothing until the man was naked, but for his high blue boots. The hair between his legs was brown. Cersei was amused to see. Tell us how you pleasure the little queen, she commanded. I never, I sang, was all I, I sang and played, her ladies will tell you. They were always with us, her cousins. How many of them did you have carnal knowledge of? None of them. I, I'm just a singer, please. Kyburn said, Your grace, mayhaps this poor man only played for Marjorie while she entertained other lovers. No, please, she never. I sang. I, I only sang. Lord Kyburn ran a hand up the blue bard's chest. Does she take your nipples in her mouth during your love play? He took one between his thumb and forefinger and twisted. Some men enjoy that. Their nipples are as sensitive as a woman's. The razor flashed. The singer shrieked. On his chest, a wet red eye wept blood. Celsi felt ill. Part of her wanted to close her eyes, to turn away, to make it stop. But she was a queen, and this was treason. Lord Tywin would not have turned away. In the end, the blue bard told them his whole life, back to the first name day. His father had been a cooper, and what was raised to that trade. But as a boy, he found he had more skill at making lutes and barrels. When he was twelve, he ran away to join a troop of musicians he had heard performing at a fair. He had wandered half the reach before coming to King's Landing in hopes of finding favour at court. Favour? Kyburn chuckled. Is that what women call it now? I fear you found too much of it, my friend, and from the wrong queen. The true one stands before you. Yes. Cersei blamed Marjorie Tyrrell for this. If not for her, what might have lived a long and fruitful life, singing his little songs and bedding pig girls and crofters' daughters? Her scheming forces on me. She has soiled me with her treachery. By dawn, the singer's high blue boots were full of blood, and he had told them how Marjorie would fondle herself as she watched her cousins pleasuring him with their mouths. At other times he would sing for her, while she sated her lusts with other lovers. Who were they? the queen demanded. And the wretched what named Sir Talad the Tall, Lambert Turnbury, Jalabar Zoe, 
the Redwind Twins, Osney Kettleblack, Hugh Clifton, and the Knight of Flowers. That displeased her. She dare not besmirch the name of the hero of Dragonstone. Besides, no one who knew Soloris would ever believe it. The Red Winds could not be a part of it either. Without the Arbor and its fleet, the realm could never hope to rid itself of this urine crow's eye and his accursed iron men. All you are doing is spitting up the names of men you saw about her chambers. We want the truth. The truth? What looked at her with the one blue eye that Kyban had left him. Blood bubbled through the holes where his front teeth had been. I, I might have misremembered. Horace and Hubber had no part of this, did they? No, he admitted. Not them. As for Sir Loris, I'm certain Marjorie took pains to hide what she was doing from her brother. She did, I remember now. Once I had to hide under the bed when Sir Loris came to see her. He must never know, she said. I prefer this song to the other. Leave the great lords out of it. That was for the best. The others, though? Sir Talad had been a hedge knight. Jalabarzo was an exile and a beggar. Clifton was the only one of the little queen's guardsmen. And Osney is the plum that makes the pudding. I know you feel better for having told the truth. You will want to remember that when Marjorie comes to trial. If you were to start lying again... I won't. I'll tell it true. And after... You will be allowed to take the black. You have my word on that. Cersei turned to Kyban. See that his wounds are cleaned and dressed, and give him milk of the poppy for the pain. Your grace is good. Kyban dropped the bloody razor into a pail of vinegar. Marjorie may wonder where her bard has gone. The singers come and go. They're infamous for it. The climb up the dark stone steps from the black cells left Cersei feeling breathless. Oh, I must rest. Getting to the truth was wearisome work, and she dreaded what must follow. I must be strong. What I must do, I do for Tommen and the realm. It was a pity that Maggie the Frog was dead. Piss on your prophecy, old woman. The little queen may be younger than I, but she has never been more beautiful and soon she will be dead. Lady Merriweather was waiting in her bedchamber. It was the black of night, closer to dawn than to dusk. Jocelyn and Dorcas were both asleep, but not Taina. Was it terrible? she asked. You cannot know. I need to sleep, but fear to dream. Taina stroked her hair. It was all for Tommen. It was, I know it was, Cersei shuddered. Oh, my throat is raw. Be a sweet and pour me some wine. If it please you, that is all that I desire. Liar. She knew what Tyena desired. So be it. If the woman was besotted with her, that would help ensure that she and her husband remain loyal. In a world so full of treachery, that was worth a few kisses. She is no worse than most men. At least there is no danger of her ever getting me with child. The wine helped, but not enough. I feel soiled, the queen complained, as she stood beside her window, cup in hand. A bath will set you right, my sweet. Lady Merriweather woke Dorcas and Jocelyn and sent them for hot water. As the tub was filled, 
she helped the queen disrobe, undoing her laces with deft fingers and easing the gown off her shoulders. Then she slipped out of her own dress and let it puddle on the floor. The two of them shared the bath together, with Cersei lying back in Taina's arms. Tommen must be spared the worst of this, she told the Mirish woman. Marjorie still takes him to the Sept every day, so they can ask the gods to heal her brother. Sir Loras still clung to life, annoyingly. He is fond of her cousins as well. It will go hard on him to lose them all. All three may not be guilty, suggested Lady Merryweather. Why, it might well be that one of them took no part. If she was shamed and sickened by the things she saw, she might be persuaded to bear witness against the others, yes. Very good. But which one is the innocent? Allah, the shy one. So she seems, but there is more of sly than shy in her. Leave her to me, my sweet. Gladly. Alone, the blue bard's confession would never suffice. Singers lied for their living, after all. Arla Tyrell would be of great help, if Taina could deliver her. Sir Osney shall confess as well. The others must be made to understand that only through confession can they earn the king's forgiveness and the wall. Jalabazo would find the truth attractive. About the rest she was less certain, but Kyburn was persuasive. Dawn was breaking over King's Landing when they climbed from the tub. The queen's skin was white and wrinkled from her long immersion. Stay with me, she told Hyena. I do not want to sleep alone. She even said a prayer before she crawled beneath her coverlet, beseeching the mother for sweet dreams. It proved a waste of breath, as ever the gods were deaf. Cersei dreamt that she was down in the black cells once again, only this time it was her chained to the wall in place of the singer. She was naked, and blood dripped from the tips of her breasts where the imp had torn off her nipples with his teeth. Please, she begged, please, not my children, do not harm my children. Tyrion only leered at her. He was naked too, covered with coarse hair that made him look more like a monkey than a man. You shall see them crowned, he said, and you shall see them die. Then he took her bleeding breast into his mouth and began to suck, and pain soared through her like a hot knife. She woke shuddering in Tyena's arms. A bad dream, she said weakly. Did I scream? I'm sorry. Dreams turn to dust in light of day. Was it the dwarf again? Why does he frighten you so, this silly little man? He is going to kill me. It was foreseen when I was ten. I wanted to know who I would marry, but she said, She? The Magi. The words came tumbling out of her. She could still hear Malara Heatherspoon insisting that if they never spoke about the prophecies, they would not come true. She was not so silent in the well, though. She screamed and shouted. Tyrion is a Valencar, she said. Do you use that word in Mere? It's High Valerian. It means little brother. She had asked Septa Saranella about the word after Malara drowned. Taina took her hand and stroked it. This was a hateful woman, old and sick and ugly. 
You were young and beautiful, full of life and pride. She lived in Lennersport, you said, so she would have known of the dwarf and how he killed your lady mother. This creature dared not strike you, because of who you were. So she sought to wound you with her viper's tongue. Could it be? Cersei wanted to believe it. Malara died, though, just as she foretold. I never wed Prince Rhaegar, and Joffrey? The dwarf killed my son before my eyes. One son, said Lady Merriweather, but you have another, sweet and strong, and no harm will ever come to him. Never, whilst I live. Saying it helped her believe that it was so. Dreams turn to dust in the light of day, yes. Outside, the morning sun was shining through a haze of cloud. Cersei slipped out from under the blankets. I will break my fast with the king this morning. I want to see my son. All I do, I do for him. Tommen helped restore her to herself. He had never been more precious to her than he was that morning, chattering about his kittens as he dribbled honey onto a chunk of hot black bread fresh from the ovens. Sir Ponce caught a mouse, he told her, but Lady Whiskers stole it from him. I was never so sweet and innocent, Cersei thought. How can he ever hope to rule in this cruel realm? The mother in her wanted only to protect him. The queen in her knew he must grow harder, or the Iron Throne was certain to devour him. Sir Ponce must learn to defend his rights she told him. In this world, the weak are always the victims of the strong. The king considered that, licking honey off his fingers. When Sir Loris comes back, I'm going to learn to fight with lance and sword and morning star, the same way he does. You will learn to fight, the queen promised, but not from Sir Loris. He will not be coming back, Tommen. Marjorie says he will. We pray for him, we ask for the mother's mercy, and for the warrior to give him strength. Eleanor says this is Sir Loris's hardest battle. She smoothed his hair back, the soft golden curls that reminded her so much of Joff. Will you be spending the afternoon with your wife and her cousins? Not today. She has to fast and purify herself, she said. Fast and purify? Oh, for Maiden's Day. It had been years since Cersei had been required to observe that particular holy day. Thrice wed, yet she would still have us believe she is a maid. Demure in white, the little queen would lead her hens to Baylor's sept to light tall white candles at the maiden's feet and hang parchment garlands about her holy neck. A few of her hens, at least. On Maiden's Day, widows, mothers, and whores alike were barred from the sips, along with men, lest they profane the sacred songs of innocence. Only virgin maids could— Mother, did I say something wrong? Cersei kissed her son's brow. You said something very wise, sweetling. Now run along and play with your kittens. Afterward, she summoned Sir Osney Kettleblack, to her solar. He came in sweaty from the yard and swaggering, and as he took a knee, he undressed her with his eyes the way he always did. Rise, sir, 
and sit here next to me. You did me a valiant service once, but now I have a harder task for you. Aye, and I have something hard for you. That must wait. She traced the scars lightly with the tips of her fingers. Do you recall the whore who gave these to you? I'll give her to you when you come back from the war. Would you like that? It's you I want. That was the right answer. First you must confess your treason. A man's sin can poison his soul if left to fester. I know it must be hard for you to live with what you've done. It's past time that you rid yourself of your shame. Shame? Osney sounded baffled. I told Osmond, Marjorie just teases. She never lets me do any more than— It is chivalrous of you to protect her, Cersei broke in. But you are too good a knight to go on living with your crime. No, you must take yourself to the great Scepter Baylor this very night and speak with the High Septon. When a man's sins are so black— only his high holiness himself can save him from hell's torments. Tell him how you bedded Marjorie and her cousins. Osney blinked. What? The cousins, too? Megger and Eleanor, she decided. Never Allah. That little detail would make the whole story more plausible. Allah would sit weeping and plead with the others to stop their sinning. Just Megger and Eleanor. Or Marjorie, too? Oh, Marjorie, most certainly. She was the one behind it all. She told him all she had in mind. As Osney listened, apprehension slowly spread across his face. When she finished, he said, After you cut her head off, I want to take that kiss she never gave me. You may take all the kisses you like. And then the war? For just a little while, Tommen is a forgiving king. Osney scratched at his scarred cheek. Usually, if I lie about some woman, it's me saying how I never fucked them, and them saying how I did. It is. I, I never lied to no I septon before. I think you go to some hell for that. One of the bad ones. The queen was taken aback. The last thing she expected was piety from a kettle black. Are you refusing to obey me? No. Osney touched her golden hair. The thing is, the best lies have some truth in them, to give them flavor, as it were. And you want me to go tell how I fucked a queen? She almost slapped his face. Almost. But she had gone too far, and too much was at stake. All I do, I do for Tommen. She turned her head and caught Sir Osney's hand with her own, kissing his fingers. They were rough and hard, calloused from the sword. Robert had hands like that, she thought. Cersei wrapped her arms around his neck. I would not want it said I made a liar of you, she whispered in a husky voice. Give me an hour and meet me in my bedchamber. We waited long enough. He thrust his fingers inside the bodice of a gown and yanked, and the silk parted with a ripping sound so loud that Cersei was afraid that half of the Red Keep must have heard it. Take off the rest, before I tear that too, he said. You can keep the crown on. I like you in the crown.
The Princess in the Tower Hers was a gentle prison. Ariane took solace from that. Why would her father go to such great pains to provide for her comfort in captivity if he had marked her for a traitor's death? He cannot mean to kill me, she told herself a hundred times. He does not have it in him to be so cruel. I am his blood and seed his heir, his only daughter. If need be, she would throw herself beneath the wheels of his chair, admit her fault, and beg him for his pardon. And she would weep. When he saw tears rolling down her face, he would forgive her. She was less certain whether she would forgive herself. Ario, she had pleaded with her captor, during their long dry ride from the green blood back to Sonspear. I never wanted the girl to come to harm. You must believe me. Hotar made no reply except to grunt. Ariane could feel his anger. Darkstar had escaped him. The most dangerous of all her little group of plotters. He had outraced all his pursuers and vanished into the deep desert with blood upon his blade. You know me, Captain, Ariane had said, as the leagues rolled past. You have known me since I was little. You always kept me safe, as you kept my lady mother safe when you came with her from Great Novas to be her shield in a strange land. I need you now. I need your help. I never meant— What you meant does not matter, little princess, Arya Hotar said. Only what you did. His countenance was stony. I'm sorry. It is for my prince to command, for Hotar to obey. Ariane expected to be brought before her father's high seat, beneath the dome of leaded glass in the Tower of the Sun. Instead, Hotar delivered her to the Spear Tower, and the custody of her father's seneschal, Ricasso, and Sir Manfrey Martel, the castellan. A princess? Picasso said. Uh, you will forgive an old blind man if he does not make the climb with you. These legs are not equal to so many steps. A chamber has been prepared for you. Sir Manfrey will escort you there to await the prince's pleasure. The prince's displeasure, you mean? Will my friends be confined here as well? Ariane had been parted from Garen, Dre, and the others after capture, and Hotar had refused to say what would be done with them. That is for the prince to decide, was all the captain had to say upon the subject. Sir Manfrey proved a bit more forthcoming. They were taken to the Planky Tone and will be conveyed by ship to Gaston Gris until such time as Prince Doran decides their fate. Gaston Gray was a crumbling old castle perched on a rock in the Sea of Dawn a drear and dreadful prison, where the vilest of criminals were sent to rot and die. Does my father mean to kill them? Ariane could not believe it. All they did, they did for love for me. If my father must have blood, it should be mine. As you say, princess. I want to speak with him. He thought you might. Sir Manfred took her arm and marched her up the steps, up and up, until her breath grew short. The spear tower stood a hundred and half feet high, and her cell was nearly at the top. Ariane eyed every door they passed, 
wondering if one of the sand snakes might be locked within. When her own door had been closed and barred, Ariane explored her new home. Her cell was large and airy and did not lack for comforts. There were Myrish carpets on the floor, red wine to drink, books to read. In one corner stood an ornate Sivasi table with pieces carved of ivory and onyx, though she had no one to play with, even if she had been so inclined. She had a feather bed to sleep in and a privy with a marble seat, sweetened by a basket full of herbs. This high up the views were splendid. One window opened to the east, so she could watch the sun rise above the sea. The other allowed her to look down upon the Tower of the Sun and the winding walls and threefold gate beyond. The exploration took less time than it would have taken her to lace a pair of sandals, but at least it served to keep the tears at bay for a time. Ariane found a basin and a flagon of cool water and washed her hands and face, but no amount of scrubbing could cleanse her of her grief. Ares, she thought, my white knight. Tears filled her eyes, and suddenly she was weeping, her whole body racked by sobs. She remembered how Hotar's heavy axe had cleaved through his flesh and bone, the way his head had gone spinning through the air. Why did you do it? Why throw your life away? I never told you to. I never wanted that. I only wanted... I wanted... I wanted... That night she cried herself to sleep, for the first time, if not the last. Even in her dream she found no peace. She dreamt of Ares' oak heart caressing her, smiling at her, telling her that he loved her. But all the while the quarrels were in him, and his wounds were weeping, turning his whites to red. Part of her knew it was a nightmare, even as she dreamt it. Come morning, all of this will vanish, the princess told herself. But when morning came, she was still in her cell. Sir Ares was still dead. And Marcella, I never wanted that, never. I meant the girl no harm. All I wanted was for her to be a queen, if we had not been betrayed. Someone told, Hodar had said. The memory still made her angry. Ariane clung to that, feeding the flame within her heart. Anger was better than tears, better than grief, better than guilt. Someone told someone she had trusted. Ares Oakheart had died because of that, slain by the traitor's whisper as much as by the captain's axe. The blood that had streamed down Marcella's face, that was the betrayer's work as well. Someone told, someone she had loved. That was the cruelest cut of all. She found a cedar chest full of her clothes at the foot of her bed. So she stripped out of the travel-stained garb she had slept in and donned the most revealing garments she could find, wisps of silk that covered everything and hid nothing. Prince Doran might treat her like a child, but she refused to dress like one. She knew such garb would discomfort her father when he came to chastise her for making off with Marcella. She counted on that. If I must crawl and weep, let him be uncomfortable as well. She expected him that day, but when the door finally opened, it proved to be only the servants with her midday meal.
When might I see my father? she asked, but none of them would answer. The kid had been roasted with lemon and honey. With it were grape leaves stuffed with a melange of raisins, onions, mushrooms, and fiery dragon peppers. I am not hungry, Ariane said. Her friends would be eating ship's biscuits and salt beef on their way to Gaston Grey. Take this away and bring me Prince Doran. But they left the food, and her father did not come. After a while, hunger weakened her resolve, so she sat and ate. Once the food was gone, there was nothing else for Ariane to do. She paced around her tower twice and thrice and three times thrice. She sat beside the Saivasi table and idly moved an elephant. She curled up in the window seat and tried to read a book until the words became a blur, and she realized that she was crying again. Ares, my sweet, my white knight, why did you do it? You should have yielded. I tried to tell you, but the words caught in my mouth, you gallant fool. I never meant for you to die. Awful Marcella. Oh, God's be good, that little girl. Finally, she crawled back onto the feather bed. The world had grown dark, and there was little she could do but sleep. Someone told, she thought. Someone told. Garen, Dre, and Spotted Silver were friends of her girlhood, as dear to her as her cousin Tyene. She could not believe they would inform on her, but that left only Darkstar. And if he was the betrayer, why had he turned his sword on poor Marcella? He wanted to kill her instead of crowning her. He said as much at Shandystone. He said that was how I'd get the war I wanted. But it made no sense for Dane to be the traitor. If Sir Gerald had been the worm in the apple, why would he have turned his sword upon Marcella? Someone told could it have been Sir Ares? Had the White Knight's guilt won out over his lust? Had he loved Marcella more than her and betrayed his new princess to atone for his betrayal of the old? Was he so ashamed of what he'd done that he threw his life away at the green blood rather than live to face dishonor? Someone told. When her father came to see her, she would learn which one. Prince Doran did not come the next day, though, nor the day after. The princess was left alone to pace and weep and nurse her wounds. During the daylight hours she would try to read, but the books that they had given her were deadly dull, ponderous old histories and geographies, annotated maps, a dry-as-dust study of the laws of dawn, the seven-pointed star, and lives of the high septons, a huge tome about dragons that somehow made them about as interesting as newts. Ariane would have given much and more for a copy of Ten Thousand Ships or The Loves of Queen Nymeria. Anything to occupy her thoughts and let her escape her tower for an hour or two. But such amusements were denied her. From her window seat, she had only to glance out to see the great dome of gold and colored glass below her, where her father sat in state. He will summon me soon, she told herself. No visitors were permitted her beyond the servants, 
Bores with his stubbly jaw, Tall Timoth dripping dignity, The sisters, Mora and Meli, Pretty little Cedra, Old Belandra, who had been her mother's bedmaid. They brought her meals, changed her bed, and emptied her chamber pot beneath her privy. But none would speak with her. When she required more wine, Timoth would fetch it. If she desired some favorite food, figs or olives or peppers stuffed with cheese, she need only tell Belandra, and it would appear. Mora and Meli took away the dirty clothes and returned them clean and fresh. Every second day a bath was brought for her, and shy little Cedra would soap her back and help her brush her hair. Yet none of them had a word for her, nor would they deign to tell her what was happening in the world outside her sandstone cage. Has a dark star been captured? she asked Bors one day. Are they still hunting for him? The man only turned his back on her and walked away. Have you gone deaf? Ariane snapped at him. Come back here and answer me, I command it. Her only reply was the sound of a door closing. Timoth, she tried another day, what has become of Princess Marcella? I never meant for harm to come to her. The last she had seen of the other princess had been on their ride back to Sunspear. Too weak to sit a horse, Marcella had travelled in a litter, a head bound up in silken bandages where Dark Star slashed at her, her green eyes bright with fever. Tell me that she has not died, I beg you. What harm could come of my knowing that? Tell me how she fares. Timoth would not. Balandra, Ariane said a few days later, if you ever love my lady mother, take pity on her poor daughter, and tell me when my father means to come and see me. Please, please. But Belandra had lost her tongue as well. Is this my father's notion of torment? Not hot irons or the rack, but a simple silence. That was so very like Doran Martell that Ariane had to laugh. He thinks he's being subtle, where he's only being feeble. She resolved to enjoy the quiet, to use the time to heal and fortify herself for what must come. It was no good dwelling endlessly on Sir Ares, she knew. Instead, she made herself think about the sand snakes, Tyene especially. Ariane loved all her bastard cousins, from prickly, hot-tempered Obara to little Louisa, the youngest, only six years old. Tyene had always been the one she loved the most, though the sweet sister that she never had. The princess had never been close to her brothers. Quentin was off in Ironwood, and Tristane was too young. No, it had always been her and Tyene, with Garen and Dre and Spotted Silver. Nim would sometimes join them in their sport, and Sorella was forever pushing in where she did not belong, but for the most part they had been a company of five. They splashed in the pools and fountains of the water gardens and rode into battle perched on one another's naked backs. She and Tyene had learned to read together, learned to ride together, learned to dance together. When they were ten, Ariane had stolen a flagon of wine and the two of them had gotten drunk together. They shared meals and beds and jewellery. They would have shared their first man as well, but Dre got too excited 
and spurted all over Tyne's fingers the moment she drew him from his breeches. Her hands are dangerous. The memory made her smile. The more she thought about her cousins, the more the princess missed them. For all I know, they might be right below me. That night Ariane tried pounding on the floor with the heel of her sandal. When no one answered, she leaned out of a window and peered down. She could see other windows below, smaller than her own, some no more than arrow loops. Tyene, she called. Tyene, are you there? Obara, Nim, can you hear me? Elara, anyone? Tyene. The princess spent half the night hanging out of the window, calling till her throat was raw. But no answering shouts came back to her. That frightened her more than she could say. If the sand snakes were imprisoned in the spear tower, they surely would have heard her shouting. Why didn't they answer? If father has done them harm, I will never forgive him, never, she told herself. By the time a fortnight had passed, her patience had worn paper thin. I will speak with my father now, she told Bors in her most commanding voice. You will take me to him. He did not take her to him. I'm ready to see the prince, she told Timoth, but he turned away as if he had not heard. The next morning Ariane was waiting beside the door when it opened. She bolted past Belandra, sending a platter of spiced eggs to crash against the wall. But the guards caught her before she'd gone three yards. She knew them, too, but they were deaf to her entreaties. They dragged her back to her cell, kicking and squirming. Ariane decided that she must needs be more subtle. Cedra was her best hope. The girl was young, naive, and gullible. Garin had boasted of bedding her once, the princess recalled. The next time she bathed, as Cedra soaped her shoulders, she began to talk of everything and nothing. I know you have been commander not to speak to me, she said, but no one told me not to speak to you. She spoke about the heat of the day and what she'd had last night for supper, and how slow and stiff poor Belandra was becoming. Prince Oberon had armed each of his daughters, so they need never be defenceless. But Arian Martel had no weapon but her guile, and so she smiled and charmed and asked nothing in return of Cedra, neither word nor nod. The next day at supper she natted at the girl again as she was serving. This time she contrived to mention Garin. Cedra glanced up shyly at his name, and almost spilled the wine she was pouring. So it is that way, is it? thought Ariane. During the next bath, she spoke of her imprisoned friends, especially Garin. He's the one I fear for most, she confided to her serving girl. The orphans are free spirits, they live to wonder. Garin needs sunshine and fresh air. If they lock him away in some dank stone cell, how will he survive? He will not last a year at Gaston Grey. Cedra did not reply, but her face was pale when Ariane rose from the water, and she was squeezing the sponge so tightly that soap was dripping on the mirish carpet. Even so, it was four more days and two more bars before the girl was hers. Please, Cedra finally whispered. 
after Ariane had painted a vivid picture of Garin throwing himself from the window of his cell, to taste freedom one last time before he died. You have to help him. Please don't let him die. I can do little and less so long as I am locked up here, she whispered back. My father will not see me. You are the only one who can save Garin. Do you love him? Yes, Cedra whispered, blushing. But how can I help? You can smuggle out a letter for me, said the princess. Will you do that? Will you take the risk? For Garin? Cedra's eyes got big. She nodded. I have a raven, Arian thought triumphantly. But who to send her to? The only one of her conspirators to escape her father's net was Darkstar. By now, Sir Gerald might well have been taken, however. If not, he would surely have fled Dawn. Her next thought was of Garin's mother and the orphans of the Greenblood. No, not them. It must be someone with real power, someone who had no part in our plot, yet might have reason to be sympathetic to us. She considered appealing to her own mother, but Lady Malario was far away in Norvus. Besides, Prince Doran had not listened to his lady wife for many years. Not her either. I need a lord, one great enough to cow my father into releasing me. The most powerful of the Dornish lords was Anders Ironwood, the blood royal, lord of Ironwood and warden of the Stone Way. But Ariane knew better than to look for help from the man who had fostered her brother, Quentin. No. Dre's brother, Sir Diesel Dort, had once aspired to marry her, but he was much too dutiful to go against his prince. Besides, whilst the Knight of Lemonwood might intimidate a petty lord, he did not have the strength to sway the Prince of Dawn. No. The same was true of Spotted Silver's father. No. Ariane finally decided that she had but two real hopes, Harmon Allah, Lord of Hellholt, and Franklin Fowler, Lord of Skyreach and Warden of the Prince's Pass. Half of the Ollers are half mad, the saying went, and the other half are worse. Elaria Sand was Lord Harmon's natural daughter. She and her little ones had been locked away with the rest of the Sand Snakes. That would have made Lord Harmon wroth, and the Ollers were dangerous when wroth. Too dangerous, perhaps. The princess did not want to put any more lives in danger. Lord Fowler might be a safer choice. The old hawk, he was called. He had never gotten on with Anders Ironwood. There was bad blood between their houses going back a thousand years, from when the Fowlers had chosen Martell over Ironwood during Nymera's war. The Fowlers' twins were famous friends of Lady Nim as well. But how much weight would that carry with the old hawk? For days, Ariane wavered as she composed her secret letter. Give the man who brings this to you a hundred silver stags, she began. That should ensure that the message was delivered. She wrote where she was and pleaded for rescue. Whoever shall deliver me from this cell, he shall not be forgotten when I wed. That should bring the heroes running. Unless Prince Doran had attainted her, she remained the lawful heir to Sonspear. 
The man who married her would one day rule Dawn by her side. Ariane could only pray that her rescuer would prove younger than the greybeards her father had offered her over the years. I want a consort with teeth, she had told him when she refused the last. She dare not ask for parchment for fear of rousing the suspicions of her captors. So she wrote the letter on the bottom of a page torn from the seven-pointed star and pressed it into Cedra's hand on the next bath day. There's a place beside the threefold gate where caravans take on ample supplies before crossing the deep sand, Ariane told her. Find some traveller headed for the Prince's Pass and promise him a hundred silver stags if he will put this in Lord Fowler's hand. I will. Cedra hid the message in her bodice. I'll find someone before the sun goes down, Princess. Good, she said. Tell me how it went on the morrow. The girl did not return upon the morrow, however, nor on the day that followed. When it was time for Ariane to bath, it was Mora and Melai who filled her tub and stayed to wash her back and brush her hair. Has Cedra taken ill? The princess asked them, but neither would reply. She has been caught, was all she could think. What else could it be? That night she hardly slept, for fear of what might come next. When Timoth brought her breakfast the next morning, Ariane asked to see Ricasso rather than her father. Plainly she could not compel Prince Doran to attend her, but surely a mere seneschal would not ignore a summons from the rightful heir to Sonspear. He did, though. Did you tell Ricasso what I said? she demanded the next time she saw Timoth. Did you tell him I had need of him? When the man refused to answer her, Ariane seized a flagon of red wine and upended it over his head. The serving man retreated, dripping, his face a mask of wounded dignity. My father means to leave me here to rot, the princess decided, or else he is making plans to marry me off to some disgusting old fool and intends to keep me locked away until the bedding. Ariane Martel had grown up, expecting that one day she would wed some great lord of her father's choosing. That was what princesses were for, she had been taught, though, admittedly, her uncle Oberon had taken a different view of matters. If you would wed, wed, the Red Viper had told his own daughters. If not, take your pleasure where you find it. There's little enough of it in this world. Choose well, though. If you settle yourself with a fool or a brute, don't look to me to rid you of him. I gave you the tools to do that for yourself. The freedom that Prince Oberon allowed his bastard daughters had never been shared by Prince Doran's lawful heir. Ariane must wed. She had accepted that. Dre had wanted her, she knew. So had his brother, Diesel, the Knight of Lemonwood. Damon Sand had gone so far as to ask for her hand. Damon was bastard-born, however, and Prince Doran did not mean for her to wed a Dornishman. Ariane had accepted that as well. One year, King Robert's brother came to visit, and she did her best to seduce him. But she was half a girl, and Lord Renly seemed more bemused than inflamed by her overtures. 
Later, when Hoster Tolly asked her to come to Riveron and meet his heir, she lit candles to the maid in thanks, but Prince Doran had declined the invitation. The princess might even have considered Willis Tyrell, crippled leg and all, but her father refused to send her to Highgarden to meet him. She tried to go despite him, with Tyene's help, but Prince Oberon caught them at Vaith and brought them back. That same year, Prince Doran tried to betroth her to Ben Beesbury, a minor lordling who was eighty if he was a day, and as blind as he was toothless. Beesbury died a few years later. That gave her some small comfort in her present pass. She could not be forced to marry him if he was dead, and the Lord of the Crossing had wed again, so she was safe from him as well. Eldon Estermont is still alive and unwed, though. Lord Rosby, and Lord Grandison as well. Grandison was called the Greybeard, but by the time she'd met him, his beard had gone snow-white. At the welcoming feast, he had gone to sleep between the fish course and the meat. Dre called that apt, since his sigil was a sleeping lion. Garen challenged her to see if she could tie a knot in his beard without waking him, but Ariane refrained. Grandison had seemed a pleasant fellow, less querulous than Estermont, and more robust than Rosby. She would never marry him, however, not even if Huttar stands behind me with his axe. No one came to marry her the next day, nor the day after, nor did Cedra return. Ariane tried to win Mara and Melai the same way, but it was no good. If she had been able to get either one alone, she might have had some hope, but together the sisters were a wall. By that time the princess would have welcomed a touch of hot iron or an evening on the rack. The loneliness was like to drive her mad. I deserve a headsman's axe for what I did, but he will never give me that. He would sooner shut me away and forget I ever lived. She wondered if Maester Calliot was drawing a proclamation to name her brother Quentin heir to dawn. Days came and went, one after the other, so many that Ariane lost count of how long she had been imprisoned. She found herself spending more and more time abed, until she reached the point where she did not rise at all, except to use her privy. The meals the servant brought grew cold, untouched. Ariane slept and woke, and slept again, and still felt too weary to rise. She prayed to the mother for mercy, and to the warrior for courage, then slept some more. Fresh meals replaced the old ones, but she did not eat them either. Once when she felt especially strong, she carried all the food to the window and flung it out into the yard, so it would not tempt her. The effort exhausted her, so afterwards she crawled back into bed and slept for half a day. Then came a day when a rough hand woke her, shaking her by the shoulder. "'Little princess,' said a voice she'd known from childhood, "'up and dress. A princess called for you.' Arya Hotar stood over her, her old friend and protector. He was talking to her. Arian smiled sleepily. It was good to see that seam-scarred face and hear his gruff, deep voice and thick, Norvasi accent. What did you do with Cedra? 
The prince sent her to the water gardens, Atar said. He will tell you. First, you must wash and eat. She must look a wretched creature. Ariane crawled from the bed, weak as a kitten. Have Moira and Melai prepare a bath, she told him, and tell Timoth to bring me up some food. Nothing heavy, some cold broth and a bit of bread and fruit. Aye, said Hatar. Never has she heard a sweeter sound. The captain waited without, whilst the princess bathed and brushed her hair, and ate sparingly of the cheese and fruit they brought her. She drank a little wine to settle her stomach. I am frightened, she realized. For the first time in my life, I am frightened of my father. That made her laugh until the wine came out her nose. When it was time to dress, she chose a simple gown of ivory linen, with vines and purple grapes embroidered round the sleeves and bodice. She wore no jewels. I must be chaste and humble and contrite. I must throw myself at his feet and beg forgiveness, or I may never hear another human voice again. By the time she was ready, dusk had fallen. Ariane had thought that Hotar would escort her to the Tower of the Sun to hear her father's judgment. Instead, he delivered her to the Princess Solar, where they found Doran Martell seated behind a Sivasse table, his gouty legs supported by a cushioned footstool. He was toying with an onyx elephant, turning it in his reddened, swollen hands. The prince looked worse than she had ever seen him. His face was pale and puffy, his joints so inflamed that it hurt her just to look at them. Seeing him this way made Ariane's heart go out to him. Yet somehow she could not bring herself to kneel and beg, as she had planned. Father, she said instead. When he raised his head to look at her, his dark eyes were clouded with pain. Is that the goat? Ariane wondered. Or is it me? A strange and subtle folk, the Valentines, he muttered as he put the elephant aside. I saw Volantus once, on my way to Norvus, where I first met Malario. The bells were ringing and the bears danced down the steps. Ario will recall the day. I remember, echoed Arya Hotar in his deep voice. The bears danced and the bells rang and the prince wore red and gold and orange. <laughs> my lady asked me who it was who shone so bright. Prince Doran smiled wanly. Leave us, Captain. Hotar stamped the butt of his long axe on the floor, turned on his heel, and took his leave. I told them to place a Saivasse table in your chamber, her father said, when the two of them were alone. Who was I supposed to play with? Why is he talking about a game? Has the gout robbed him of his wits? Yourself. Sometimes it's best to study a game before you attempt to play it. How well do you know the game, Ariane? Well enough to play. But not to win. My brother loved the fight for its own sake, but I only play such games as I can win. Saivasi is not for me. He studied her face for a long moment before he said, Why? Tell me that, Ariane. Tell me why. For the honor of a house, 
Her father's word made her angry. He sounded so sad, so exhausted, so weak. You are a prince, she wanted to shout. She should be raging. Your meekness shames all dawn, father. Your brother went to King's Landing in your place, and they killed him. Do you think I do not know that? Oberon is with me every time I close my eyes. Telling you to open them, no doubt. She seated herself across the Sivasi table from her father. I did not give you leave to sit. Then call Hotar back and whip me for my insolence. You are the Prince of Dawn. You can do that. She touched one of the Sivasi pieces, the heavy horse. Have your court, Sir Geralt. He shook his head. Would that we had. You were a fool to make him part of this. Darkstar is the most dangerous man in Dawn. You and he have done us all great harm. Ariane was almost afraid to ask. Marcella, is she dead? No, though Darkstar did his best. All eyes were on your white knight, so no one seems quite certain just what happened. But it would appear that her horse shied away from his at the last instant. Else he would have taken off the top of the girl's skull. As it is, the slash opened her cheek down to the bone and sliced off her right ear. Maester Calliot was able to save her life, but no poultice nor potion will ever restore her face. She was my ward, Ariane, betrothed to your own brother, and under my protection you have dishonoured all of us. I never meant her harm, Ariane insisted. If Hota had not interfered, you would have crowned Marcella queen to raise a rebellion against her brother. Instead of an ear, she would have lost her life only if we'd lost. If, the word is when, Dawn is the least populous of the seven kingdoms. It pleased the young dragon to make all our armies larger when he wrote that book of his, so as to make his conquest that much more glorious. And it has pleased us to water the seed he planted and let our foes think us more powerful than we are. But a princess ought to know the truth. Valor is a poor substitute for numbers. Dawn cannot hope to win a war against the Iron Throne, not alone. And yet, that may well be what you have given us. Are you proud? The prince did not allow her time to answer. What am I to do with you, Ariane? Forgive me, part of her wanted to say, but his words had cut her too deeply. Why, do what you always do. Do nothing. You make it difficult for a man to swallow his anger. Best stop swallowing. You like to choke on it. The prince did not answer. Tell me how you knew my plans. I am the prince of Dorn. Men seek my favor. Someone told. You knew. And yet you still allowed us to make off with Marcella? Why? That was my mistake, and has proved a grievous one. You are my daughter, Ariane, the little girl who used to run to me when she skinned her knee. I found it hard to believe that you would conspire against me. I had to learn the truth. 
Know that you have. I want to know who informed on me. I would as well, in your place. Will you tell me? I can think of no reason why I should. You think I cannot discover the truth on my own? Oh, you're welcome to try. Until such time you must mistrust them all. And a little mistrust is a good thing in a princess. Prince Doran sighed. You disappoint me, Ariane. Said the crow to the raven. You have been disappointing me for years, father. She had not meant to be so blunt with him, but the words came spilling out. There. No, I have said it. I know. I am too meek and weak and cautious, too lenient to our enemies. Just now, though, you are in need of some of that leniency, it seems to me. You ought to be pleading for my forgiveness rather than seeking to provoke me further. I ask leniency only for my friends. Oh, how noble of you. What they did, they did for love for me. They do not deserve to die and Gaston Grey. As it happens, I agree. Aside from Darkstar, your fellow plotters were no more than foolish children. Still, this was no harmless game of Saivasi. You and your friends were playing at treason. I might have had their heads off. You might have, but you didn't. Dane, Dalt, Santigar, no. You would never dare make enemies of such houses. Oh, I dare more than you dream. But leave that for the nonce. Sir Andre has been sent to Norvas to serve your lady mother for three years. Garion will spend his next two years in Tyrosh, from his kin amongst the orphans. I took coin and hostages. Lady Silver received no punishment from me, but she was of an age to marry. Her father has shipped her to Greenstone to wed Lord Eastermont. As for Ares Oakhart, he chose his own fate and met it bravely, a knight of the King's Guard. What did you do to him? I fucked him, father. You did command me to entertain our noble visitors, as I recall. His face grew flushed. Was that all that was required? I told him that once Marcella was the queen, she would give us leave to marry. He wanted me for his wife. You did everything you could. To stop him from dishonoring his vows, I am certain, her father said. It was her turn to flush. Her seduction of Sir Ares had required half a year. Though he claimed to have known other women before taking the white, she would never have known that from the way he acted. His caresses had been clumsy, his kisses nervous, and the first time they were abed together he spent his seed on her thigh as she was guiding him inside her with her hand. Worse, he had been consumed by shame. If she only had a dragon for every time he had whispered, We should not be doing this. She would be richer than the Lannisters. Did he charge at Arya Hotar in hopes of saving me? Arian wondered. Or did he do it to escape me? to wash out his dishonor with his life's blood. He did love me, she heard herself say. He died for me. If so, he may well be the first of many. 
You and your cousins wanted war. You may get your wish. Another Kingsguard knight creeps toward Sunspear, even as we speak. Sir Balon Swan is bringing me the mountain's head. My bannermen have been delaying him to purchase me some time. The whales kept him hunting and hawking for eight days on the Boneway, and Lord Ironwood feasted him for a fortnight when he emerged from the mountains. At present he is at the Tor, where Lady Jordane has arranged games in his honour. When he reaches Ghost Hill, he will find Lady Toland intent on outdoing her. Soon or later, however, Sir Balin must arrive at Sunspear, and when he does, he will expect to see Princess Marcella and Sir Ares, his sworn brother. What shall we tell him, Arian? Shall I say that Oakheart perished in a hunting accident, or from a tumble down some slippery steps? Perhaps Ares went swimming at the water gardens, slipped upon the marble, hit his head, and drowned. No, Arian said. Say that he died defending his little princess. Tell Sir Balon that Darkstar tried to kill her, and Sir Ares stepped between them and saved her life. That was how the white knights of the king's guard were supposed to die, giving up their own lives for those they had sworn to protect. Sir Balin may be suspicious, as you were when the Lannises killed your sister and her children, but he will have no proof until he speaks with Marcella. Or must that brave child suffer a tragic accident as well? If so, it will mean war. No lie will save Dawn from the Queen's wrath, if her daughter should perish whilst in my care. Oh, he needs me. Ariane realized. That's why he sent for me. I could tell Marcella what to say, but why should I? A spasm of anger rippled across her father's face. I warn you, Ariane, I am out of patience. With me? Oh, that is so like him. For Lord Tywin and the Lannisters, you always had the forbearance of Baelor the Blessed, but for your own blood, none. You must take patience for forbearance. I have worked at the downfall of Tywin Lannister since the day they told me of Elia and her children. It was my hope to strip him of all that he held most dear before I killed him. But it would seem his dwarf son has robbed me of that pleasure. I take some small solace in knowing that he died a cruel death at the hands of the monster that he himself begot. Be that as it may, Lord Tywin is howling down in hell, where thousands more will soon be joining him if your folly turns to war. Her father grimaced, as if the very word were painful to him. Is that what you want? The princess refused to be cowed. I want my cousins freed. I want my uncle avenged. I want my rights. Your rights? Dawn. Huh. You will have Dawn after I am dead. Are you so anxious to be rid of me? I should turn that question back on you, father. You have been trying to rid yourself of me for years. That is not true. No? Shall we ask my brother? Tristine? Quentin? What of him? Where is he? 
He is with Lord Ironwood's host in the Boneway. Oh, you do lie well, father. I will grant you that. You did not so much as blink. Quentin has gone to lease. Where'd you get that notion? A friend told me. She could have secrets, too. Your friend lied. You have my word, your brother has not gone to lease. I swear it by sun and spear and seven. Ariane could not be fooled so easily. Is it Merthen? Tyrosh? <laughs> I know he's somewhere across the narrow sea, harring cell swords to steal away my birthright. Her father's face darkened. This mistrust does you no honor, Ariane. Quentin should be the one conspiring against me. I sent him away when he was just a child too young to understand the needs of Dorn. Anders Ironwood has been more a father to him than I have. Yet your brother remains faithful and obedient. Why not? You favor him and always have. He looks like you. He thinks like you, and you mean to give him Dorn. Don't trouble to deny it. I read your letter. The words still burned as bright as far in her memory. One day you will sit where I sit and rule all dawn. You wrote him. Tell me, father, when did you decide to disinherit me? Was it the day that Quentin was born, or the day that I was born? What did I ever do to make you hate me so? To her fury, there were tears in her eyes. I never hated you. Prince Doran's voice was parchment-thin and full of grief. Ariane, you do not understand. Do you deny you wrote those words? No, that was when Quentin first went to Ironwood. I did intend for him to follow me, yes. I had other plans for you. Oh, yes, she said scornfully. Such plans. Giles Rosby, Blind Ben Beesbury, Greybeard Grandison. They were your plans. She gave him no chance to reply. I know it is my duty to provide an heir for Dawn. I have never been forgetful of that. I would have been wed and gladly, but the matches that you brought me were insults. With every one you spit on me. If you ever felt any love for me at all, why offer me to Waldo Frey? Because I knew that you would spurn him. I had to be seen to try to find a consort for you once you'd reached a certain age, else it would have raised suspicions. But I dare not bring you any man you might accept. You were promised, Ariane. Promised? Ariane stared at him incredulously. What are you saying? Is this another lie? You never said the pact was sealed in secret. I meant to tell you. When you were old enough, when you came of age, I thought, but I am three and twenty, for seven years a woman grown. I know. If I'd kept you ignorant too long, it was only to protect you, Ariane. Your nature, to you a secret was only a choice tale to whisper to Garen and Tyene in your bed of a night. Garen gossips as only the orphans can— and Tyene keeps nothing from Obara and the Lady Nim. And if they knew, huh, Obara is too fond of wine, and Nim is too close to the Fowler twins. And who might the Fowler twins confide in? <laughs> I could not take the risk. 
She was lost, confounded. Promised. I was promised. Who is it? Who have I been betrothed to all these years? It makes no matter. He is dead. That left her more baffled than ever. The old ones are so frail. Was it a broken hip? A chill? The gout? It was a pot of molten gold. We princes make our careful plans, and the guards snatch them all awry. Prince Doran made a weary gesture with a chafed red hand. Dawn will be yours. You have my word on that, if my word still has any meaning for you. Your brother Quentin has a harder road to walk. What road? Ariane regarded him suspiciously. What are you holding back? Seven, save me, but I am sick of secrets. Tell me the rest, father, or else name Quentin your heir and send for Hotar and his axe and let me die beside my cousins. Do you truly believe I would harm my brother's children? Her father grimaced. Obera, Nim, and Tyene lack for nothing but their freedom, and Alara and her daughters are happily ensconced at the water gardens. Doria stalks about, knocking oranges off the trees with her morning star, and Elia and Obella have become the terror of the pools. He sighed. It has not been so long since you were playing in those pools. You used to ride the shoulders of an older girl, a tall girl with wispy yellow hair. Jane Fowler, or her sister, Jenilyn. It had been years since Ariane had thought of that. Oh, and Fryn, her father was a smith. Her hair was brown. Garen was my favourite, though. When I rode Garen, no one could defeat us, not even Nim, and that green-haired Tyrushi girl. That green-haired girl was the Arkan's daughter. I was to have sent you to Tyrosh in her place. You would have served the Arkan as a cup-bearer, and met with your betrothed in secret. But your mother threatened to harm herself if I stole another of her children, and I—I <laughs> I could not do that to her. His tale grows even stranger. Is that where Quentin's gone? To Tyrosh? To court the Arkan's green-haired daughter? Her father plucked up a Sivasi piece. I must know how you learned that Quentin was abroad. Your brother went with Cletus Ironwood, Maester Kedry, and three of Lord Ironwood's best young knights on a long and perilous voyage, with an uncertain welcome at its end. He has gone to bring us back our heart's desire. She narrowed her eyes. What is our heart's desire? Vengeance. His voice was soft as if he were afraid that someone might be listening. Justice. Prince Doran pressed the onyx dragon into her palm with his swollen, gouty fingers and whispered, Fire and blood. Elaine. She turned the iron ring and pushed the door open just a crack.
Sweet Robin, she called. May I enter? Of a gear, my lady, warned old Gretchel, wringing her hands. His lordship threw his chamber put at the maester. Then he has none to throw at me. Isn't there some work you should be doing? And you, Maddy? Are all the windows closed and shuttered? Have all the furnishings been covered? All of them, my lady, said Maddy. Best make certain of it. Elaine slipped into the darkened bedchamber. It's only me, sweet Robin. Someone sniffled in the darkness. Are you alone? I am, my lord. Come close, then. Just you. Elaine shut the door firmly behind her. It was solid oak, four inches thick. Maddy and Gretchel might listen all they wished, but they would hear nothing. That was just as well. Gretchel could hold her tongue, but Maddy gossiped shamelessly. Did Maester Coleman send you? the boy asked. No, she lied. I heard my sweet Robin was ailing. After his encounter with the chamber pot, the Maester had come running to Salotha, and Brune had come to her. If my lady can talk him out of bed, nice, the knight said. I won't have to drag him out. Oh, we can't have that, she told herself. When Robert was handled roughly, he was apt to go into a shaking fit. Are you hungry, my lord? she asked the little lord. Shall I send Maddy down for berries and cream, or some warm bread and butter? Too late, she remembered that there was no warm bread. The kitchens were closed, the ovens cold. If he gets Robert out of bed, it would be worth the bother of lighting a fire, she told herself. I don't want food, the little lord said, in a reedy, petulant voice. I'm going to stay in bed today. You could read to me if you want. It is too dark in here for reading. The heavy curtains drawn across the windows made the bedchamber black as night. Has my sweet Robin forgotten what day this is? No, he said, but I'm not going. I want to stay in bed. You could read to me about the winged knight. The winged knight was Sir Artis Aaron. Legend said that he had driven the first men from the vale and flown to the top of the giant's lance on a huge falcon to slay the griffin king. There were a hundred tales of his adventures. Little Robert knew them all so well he could have recited them from memory, but he liked to have them read to him all the same. Sweetling, we have to go, she told the boy but I promise I'll read you two tales of the winged knight when we reach the gates of the moon. Three, he said at once. No matter what you offered him, Robert always wanted more. Three, she agreed. Might I let some sun in? No, the light hurts my eyes. Come to bed, Elaine. She went to the windows anyway, edging round the broken chamber pot. She could smell it better than she saw it. I shan't open them very wide, only enough to see my sweet Robin's face. He sniffled. If you must. The curtains were of plush blue velvet. She pulled one back a finger's length and tied it off. Dust motes danced in a shaft of pale morning light. The small diamond-shaped panes of the window were obscured by frost. Elaine rubbed at one with the heel of her hand. 
enough to glimpse a brilliant blue sky and a blaze of white from the mountainside. The area was wrapped in an icy mantle, the giant's lance above, buried in waist-deep snows. When she turned back, Robert Aaron was propped up against the pillows, looking at her. The lord of the airy and defender of the vale. A woolen blanket covered him below the waist. Above it he was naked. A pasty boy with hair as long as any girl's. Robert had spindly arms and legs, a soft concave chest and little belly, and eyes that were always red and runny. He cannot help the way he is. He was born small and sickly. You look very strong this morning, my lord. He loved to be told how strong he was. Shall I have Maddie and Gretchel fetch hot water for your bath? Maddie will scrub your back for you and wash your hair to make you clean and lordly for your journey. Won't that be nice? No, I hate Maddie. She has a wart on her eye, and she scrubs so hard it hurts. My mummy never hurt me scrubbing. I will tell Maddie not to scrub my sweet robin so hard. You'll feel better when you're fresh and clean. No, bath. I told you my head hurts most awfully. Shall I bring you a warm cloth for your brow, or a cup of dream wine? Only a little one, though. Maya Stone is waiting down at Sky, and she'll be hurt if you go to sleep on her. You know how much she loves you. I don't love her. She's just the mule girl. Robert sniffled. Maester Coleman put something vile in my milk last night. I could taste it. I told him I wanted sweet milk, but he wouldn't bring me any, not even when I commanded him. I am the Lord. He should do what I say. No one does what I say. I'll speak to him, Elaine promised. But only if you get up out of bed. It's beautiful outside, sweet Robin. The sun is shining bright, a perfect day for going down the mountain. The mules are waiting down at sky with Maya. His mouth quivered. I hate those smelly mules. One tried to bite me once. You tell that Maya that I'm staying here. He sounded as if he were about to cry. No one can hurt me so long as I stay here. The airy is impregnable. Who would want to hurt my sweet Robin? Your lords and knights adore you, and the small folk cheer your name. He is afraid, she thought, and with good reason. Since his lady mother had fallen, the boy would not even stand upon a balcony, and the way from the airy to the gates of the moon was perilous enough to daunt anyone. Elaine's heart had been in her throat when she made her own ascent with Lady Lysa and Lord Peter, and everyone agreed that the descent was even more harrowing, since you were looking down the whole time. Maya could tell of great lords and bold knights who had gone pale and wet their small clothes on the mountain, and none of them had the shaking sickness either. Still, it would not serve. On the valley floor, autumn still lingered, warm and golden, but winter had closed around the mountain peaks. They had weathered three snowstorms and an ice storm that transformed the castle into crystal for a fortnight. The area might be impregnable, 
but it would soon be inaccessible as well, and the way down grew more hazardous every day. Most of the castle's servants and soldiers had already made the descent. Only a dozen still lingered up here to attend Lord Robert. "'Sweet Robin,' she said gently, "'the descent will be ever so jolly, you'll see. Sir Lothar will be with us, and Maya. Her mules have gone up and down this old mountain a thousand times.' "'I hate mules,' he insisted. "'Mules are nasty.' I told you, one tried to bite me when I was little. Robert had never learned to ride properly, she knew. Mules, horses, donkeys, it made no matter. To him they were all fearsome beasts, as terrifying as dragons or griffins. He had been brought to the Vale at six, riding with his head cradled between his mother's milky breasts, and had never left the area since. Still, they had to go before the ice closed about the castle, for good. There was no telling how long the weather would hold. Maya will keep the mules from biting, Elaine said, and I'll be riding just behind you. I'm only a girl, not as brave or strong as you. If I can do it, I know you can, sweet Robin. I could do it, Lord Robert said, but I don't choose to. He swiped at his runny nose with the back of his hand. Tell Maya I'm going to stay abed. Perhaps I will come down on the morrow if I feel better. Today is too cold out and my head hurts. You can have some sweet milk too, and I'll tell Gretchel to bring us some honeycombs to eat. We'll sleep and kiss and play games, and you can read me about the winged knight. I will. Three tales as I promised. When we reached the gates of the moon, Elaine was running short of patience. We have to go, she reminded herself, or we'll still be above the snow line when the sun goes down. Lord Nestor has prepared a feast to welcome you. Mushroom soup and venison and cakes. You don't want to disappoint him, do you? Will they be lemon cakes? Lord Robert loved lemon cakes, perhaps because Elaine did. Lemony, lemony, lemon cakes, she assured him, and you can have as many as you like. A hundred, he wanted to know. Could I have a hundred? If it please you. She sat on the bed and smoothed his long, fine hair. He does have pretty hair. Lady Lysa had brushed it herself every night and cut it when it wanted cutting. After she had fallen, Robert had suffered terrible shaking fits whenever anyone came near him with a blade, so Peter had commanded that his hair be allowed to grow. Elaine wound a lock around her finger and said, Now will you get out of bed and let us dress you? I want a hundred lemon cakes and five tails. I'd like to give you a hundred spankings and five slaps. You would not dare behave like this if Peter was here. The little lord had a good, healthy fear of his stepfather. Elaine forced a smile. As my lord desires, but nothing till you've washed and dressed and on your way. Come, before the morning's gone. She took him firmly by the hand and drew him out of bed. Before she could summon the servants, however, sweet Robin threw his skinny arms around her and kissed her. It was a little boy's kiss, and clumsy. Everything Robert Aaron did was clumsy. 
If I close my eyes, I can pretend he is the Knight of Flowers. Sir Loras had given Sansa Stark a red rose once, but he had never kissed her. And no Tyrell would ever kiss Elaine Stone. Pretty as she was, she had been born on the wrong side of the blanket. As the boy's lips touched her own, she found herself thinking of another kiss. She could still remember how it felt when his cruel mouth pressed down on her own. He had come to Sansa in the darkness as green fire filled the sky. He took a song and a kiss and left me nothing but a bloody cloak. It made no matter. The day was done and so was Sansa. Elaine pushed her little lord away. That's enough. You can kiss me again when we reach the gates, if you keep your word. Maddie and Gretchel were waiting outside with Maester Coleman. The maester had washed the night soil from his hair and changed his robe. Robert Squires had turned up as well. Terence and Giles could always sniff out trouble. Lord Robert is feeling stronger, Elaine told the serving women. Fetch hot water for his bath. But see, you do not scold him, and do not pull on his hair when you brush out the tangles. He hates that. One of the squires sniggered, until she said, Terence, lay out his lordship's riding clothes, and his warmest cloak. Giles, you may clean up that broken chamber pot. Giles Grafton made a face. I'm no scrub woman. Do as Lady Elaine commands, or Lothar Brune will hear of it, said Maester Coleman. He followed her along the hallway down the twisting stairs. I am grateful for your intercession, my lady. You have a way with him, he hesitated. Did you observe any shaking while you were with him? His fingers trembled a little bit when I held his hand, that's all. He says you put something vile in his milk. Vile? Coleman blinked at her, and the apple in his throat moved up and down. I, I merely... Is he bleeding from the nose? No. Good, that is good. His chain clinked softly as he bobbed his head atop a ridiculous long and skinny neck. This descent, my lady, it might be safest if I mixed his lordship some milk of the poppy. Maya Stone could lash him over the back of her most sure-footed mule whilst he slumbered. The Lord of the Airy cannot descend from his mountain, tied up like a sack of barleycorn. Of that Elaine was certain. They dare not let the full extent of Robert's frailty and cowardice become too wildly known. Her father had warned her. I wish he were here. He would know what to do. Peter Baelish was clear across the vale, though, attending Lord Lionel Corbury at his wedding. A widower of forty-odd years and childless, Lord Lionel was to wed the strapping sixteen-year-old daughter of a rich Gulltown merchant. Peter had brokered the match himself. The bride's dower was said to be staggering. It had to be, since she was of common birth. Corbray's vassals would be there, with the lords Waxley, Grafton, Linderley, some petty lords and landed knights, and Lord Belmore, who had lately reconciled with her father. The other lords declarant were expected to shun the nuptials, so Peter's presence was essential. Elaine understood all that well enough 
but it meant that the burden of getting Sweet Robin safely down the mountain fell on her. Give his lordship a cup of sweet milk, she told the maester. That will stop him from shaking on the journey down. He had a cup not three days past, Coleman objected, and wanted another last night, which you refused him. It was too soon. My lady, you do not understand. As I have told the Lord Protector, a pinch of sweet sleep will prevent the shaking, but it does not leave the flesh. And in time, time will not matter if his lordship has a shaking fit and falls off the mountain. If my father were here, I know he would tell you to keep Lord Robert calm at all costs. I try, my lady, yet his fits grow ever more violent, and his blood is so thin I dare not leech him any more. Sweet sleep, you are certain that he was not bleeding from the nose? He was sniffling, Elaine admitted, but I saw no blood. I must speak to the Lord Protector. This feast, is that wise, I wonder, after the strain of the descent? It will not be a large feast, she assured him. No more than forty guests. Lord Nestor and his household, the Knight of the Gate, a few lesser lords and their retainers. Lord Robert mislikes strangers, you know that. And there will be drinking, noise, music. <laughs> music frightens him. Music soothes him, she corrected. The high harp especially. It's singing he can't abide, since Marillion killed his mother. Elaine had told the lie so many times that she remembered it that way more often than not. The other seemed no more than a bad dream that sometimes troubled her sleep. Lord Nestor will have no singers at the feast, only flutes and fiddles for the dancing. What would she do when the music began to play? It was a vexing question, to which her heart and head gave different answers. Sansa loved to dance, but Elaine... Just give him a cup of the sweet milk before we go, and another at the feast, and there shall be no trouble. Very well. They paused at the foot of the stairs. But this must be the last for half a year or longer. You had best take that up with the Lord Protector. She pushed through the door and crossed the yard. Coleman only wanted what was best for his charge, Elaine knew but what was best for Robert the boy and what was best for Lord Aaron were not always the same. Peter had said as much, and it was true. Maester Coleman cares only for the boy, though. Father and I have larger concerns. Old snow cloaked the courtyard, and icicles hung down like crystal spears from the terraces and towers. The area was built of fine white stone, and winter's mantle made it whiter still. So beautiful, Elaine thought, so impregnable. She could not love this place, no matter how she tried. Even before the guards and serving men had made their descent, the castle had seemed as empty as a tomb, and more so when Peter Baelish was away. No one sang up there, not since Marillion. No one ever laughed too loud. Even the guards were silent. The airy boasted a sept, but no septon. A guards would, but no heart tree. No prayers are answered here, she often thought, though some days she felt so lonely she had to try. Only the wind answered her, 
sighing endlessly around the seven slim white towers and rattling the moon door every time it gusted. It will be even worse in winter, she knew. In winter, this will be a cold, white prison. And yet the thought of leaving frightened her almost as much as it frightened Robert. She only hid it better. Her father said there was no shame in being afraid, only in showing your fear. All men live with fear, he said. Elaine was not certain she believed that. Nothing frightened Peter Baelish. He only said that to make me brave. She would need to be brave down below, where the chance of being unmasked was so much greater. Peter's friends at court had sent him word that the Queen had men out looking for the imp and Sansa Stark. It will mean my head if I am found, she reminded herself, as she descended a flight of icy stone steps. I must be Elaine all the time, inside and out. Lothar Brun was in the winch room, helping the jailer, Maud, and two serving men wrestle chests of clothes and bales of cloth into six huge oaken buckets, each big enough around to hold three men. The great chain winches were the easiest way to reach the Waycastle sky, six hundred feet below them. Elsewise, you had to descend the natural stone chimney from the undercellar, or go the way Marillion went, and Lady Lysa before him. Boy out of bed? Sir Lothar asked. They're bathing him. He will be ready within the hour. Be best hope he is. Maya won't wait past midday. The winch room was unheated, so his breath misted with every word. She'll wait, Elaine said. She has to wait. Don't be so certain, my lady. <laughs> She's half mule herself, that one. I think she'd leave us all to starve before she'd put those animals at risk. He smiled when he said it. He always smiles when he speaks of Maya Stone. Maya was much younger than Sir Lothar, but when her father had been brokering the marriage between Lord Gorbury and his merchant's daughter, he told her that young girls were always happiest with older men. Innocence and experience makes for a perfect marriage, he had said. Elaine wondered what Maya made of Sir Lothar with his squash-nose, square jaw, and nap of woolly grey hair. Brune could not be called comely, but he was not ugly either. It is a common face, but an honest one. Though he had risen to knighthood, Sir Lothar's birth had been very low. One night he had told her that he was kin to the Brunes of Brown Hollow, an old knightly family from Crackclaw Point. I, I went to them when my father died he confessed. But they shat on me and said I was no blood of theirs. He would not speak of what happened after that, except to say that he had learned all he knew of arms the hard way. Sober, he was a quiet man, but a strong one. And Peter says he's loyal. He trusts him as much as he trusts anyone. Brune would be a good match for a bastard girl like Maya Stone, she thought. It might be different if her father had acknowledged her, but he never did, and Maddie says she's no maid either. Maud took up his whip and cracked it, and the first pair of oxen began to lumber in a circle, turning the winch. 
The chain uncoiled, rattling as it scraped across the stone, the oaken bucket swaying as it began its long descent to sky. Poor oxen, thought Elaine. Maud would cut their throats and butcher them before he left, and leave them for the falcons. Whatever part remained when the area was reopened would be roasted up for the spring feast, if it had not spoiled. A good supply of hard-frozen meat foretold a summer of plenty, old Gretchel claimed. "'My lady,' Sir Lothar said, "'you'd best know. Meyer didn't come up alone. Lady Miranda's with her.' "'Oh! Why would she ride all the way up the mountain, just to ride back down again?' Miranda Royce was Lord Nestor's daughter. The one time that Sansa had visited the Gates of the Moon, on the way up to the Eyrie, with her Aunt Lysa and Lord Peter, she had been away, but Elaine had heard much of her since, from the Eyrie soldiers and serving girls. Her mother was long dead, so Lady Miranda kept her father's castle for him. It was a much livelier court when she was home, than when she was away, according to rumour. Soon or late, you must meet Miranda Royce, Peter had warned her. When you do, be careful. She likes to play the merry fool, but underneath, oh, she's shrewder than her father. Guard your tongue around her. I will, she thought, but I did not know I'd need to start so soon. Robert will be pleased. He liked Miranda Royce. You must excuse me, sir. I need to finish packing. Alone, she climbed the steps back to her room for one last time. The windows had been sealed and shuttered, the furnishings covered. A few of her things had already been removed, the rest stored away. All of Lady Lysa's silks and samites were to be left behind, her sheerest linens and plushest velvets, the rich embroidery and fine mirish lace, all would remain. Down below, Elaine must dress modestly, as befit a girl of mother's birth. It makes no matter, she told herself. I dare not wear the best clothes even here. Gretchel had stripped the bed and laid out the rest of her clothing. Elaine was already wearing woolen hose beneath her skirts over a double layer of small clothes. Now she donned a lamb's wool over tunic and a hooded fur cloak fastening it with an enameled mockingbird that had been a gift from Peter. There was a scarf as well and a pair of leather gloves lined with fur to match her riding boots. When she'd donned it all, she felt as fat and furry as a bear cub. I will be glad of it on the mountain, she had to remind herself. She took one last look at her room before she left. I was safe here, she thought. But down below... When Elaine returned to the winch room, she found Maya Stone waiting impatiently with Lothar Brune and Maud. She must have come up in the bucket to see what was taking her so long. Slim and sinewy, Maya looked as tough as the old riding leathers she wore beneath her silvery ringmail shirt. Her hair was black as a raven's wing so short and shaggy that Elaine suspected that she cut it with a dagger. Maya's eyes were her best feature, big and blue. She could be pretty if she would dress up like a girl. 
Elaine found herself wondering whether Sir Lothar liked her best in her iron and leather, or dreamed of her gowned in lace and silk. Maya liked to say that her father had been a goat and her mother an owl, but Elaine had gotten the true story from Maddy. Yes, she thought, looking at her now. Those are his eyes, and she has his hair, too. The thick black hair he shared with Renly. Where is he? the bastard girl demanded. His lordship is being bathed and dressed. He needs to make some haste. It's getting colder. Can't you feel it? We need to get below snow before the sun goes down. How bad is the wind? Elaine asked her. It could be worse. It will be after dark. Maya pushed a lock of hair from her eyes. If he bears much longer, we'll be trapped up here all winter, with nothing to eat except each other. Elaine did not know what to say to that. Thankfully, she was spared by the arrival of Robert Aaron. The little lord wore sky-blue velvet, a chain of gold and sapphires, and a white bearskin cloak. His squires each held an end, to keep the cloak from dragging on the floor. Maester Coleman accompanied them, in a threadbare grey cloak lined with squirrel fur. Gretchel and Madley were not far behind. When he felt the cold wind on his face, Robert quailed, but Terence and Giles were behind him, so he could not flee. My lord, said Maya, will you ride down with me? Too brusque, Elaine thought. She should have greeted him with a smile, told him how strong and brave he looks. I want Elaine, Lord Robert said. I'll only go with her. The bucket can hold all three of us. I just want Elaine. You smell all stinky, like a mule. As you wish. Maya's face showed no emotion. Some of the winch chains were fixed to wicker baskets, others to stout oaken buckets. The largest of those was taller than Elaine, with iron bands girding its dark brown staves. Even so, her heart was in her throat as she took Robert's hand and helped him in. Once the hatch was closed behind them, the wood surrounded them on all sides. Only the top was open. It is best that way, she told herself. We can't look down. Below them was only sky and sky. Six hundred feet of sky. For a moment she found herself wondering how long it had taken her aunt to fall that distance, and what her last thought had been as the mountain rushed up to meet her. No, I mustn't think of that. I mustn't. "'Away!' came Sir Lothar's shout. Someone shoved the bucket hard. It swayed and tipped, scraped against the floor, then swung free. She heard the crack of Mort's whip and the rattle of the chain. They began to descend by jerks and starts at first, then more smoothly. Robert's face was pale and his eyes puffy, but his hands were still. The airy shrank above them. The sky cells on the lower levels made the castle look something like a honeycomb from below. A honeycomb made of ice, Elaine thought. A castle made of snow. She could hear the wind whistling round the bucket. A hundred feet down, a sudden gust caught hold of them. The bucket swayed sideways, spinning in the air, then bumped hard against the rock face behind them. 
shards of ice and snow rained down on them, and the oak creaked and strained. Robert gave a gasp and clung to her, burying his face between her breasts. My lord is brave, Elaine said, when she felt him shaking. I'm so frightened I can hardly talk, but not you. She felt him nod. The winged knight was brave, and so am I, he boasted to her bodice. I am an Aaron. Will my sweet Robin hold me tight? she asked. He was already holding her so tightly that she could scarcely breathe. If you like, he whispered, and clinging hard to one another, they continued on straight down to sky. Calling this a castle is like calling a, a puddle on a privy floor a lake, Elaine thought, when the bucket was opened so they might emerge within the way castle. Sky was no more than the crescent-shaped wall of old unmortared stone enclosing a stony ledge and the yawning mouth of a cavern. Inside were storehouses and stables, a long natural hall, and the chiseled handholds that led up to the eyrie. Outside the ground was strewn by broken stones and boulders. Earthen ramps gave access to the wall. Six hundred feet above, the eyrie was so small she could hide it with her hand, but far below the veil stretched green and golden. Twenty mules awaited them within the way castle, along with two mule-walkers and the Lady Miranda Royce. Lord Nestor's daughter proved to be a short, fleshy woman, of an age with Maya Stone, but where Maya was slim and sinewy, Miranda was soft-bodied and sweet-smelling, broad of hip, thick of waist, and extremely buxom. Her thick chestnut curls framed round her red cheeks, a small mouth, and a pair of lively brown eyes. When Robert climbed gingerly from the bucket, she knelt in a patch of snow to kiss his hand and cheeks. My lord, she said, you've grown so big. Have I? said Robert, pleased. You will be taller than me soon, the lady lied. She got to her feet and brushed the snow from her skirts. And you must be the Lord Protector's daughter, she added, as the bucket went rattling back up to the airy. I heard that you were beautiful. I see that it is true. Elaine curtsies. Oh, my lady is kind to say so. Kind? Oh, the older girl gave a laugh. How boring that would be. I aspire to be wicked. You must tell me all your secrets on the ride down. May I call you Elaine? If you wish, my lady. But you'll get no secrets from me. I am my lady at the gates, but up here, on the mountain, you may call me Randa. How many years have you, Elaine? Four and ten, my lady. She had decided that Elaine Stone should be older than Sansa Stark. Randa. <laughs> it seems a hundred years since I was four and ten. How innocent I was. Are you still innocent, Elaine? She blushed. You should not. Yes, of course. Saving yourself for Lord Robert, Lady Miranda teased. Or is it some ardent squire dreaming of your favours? No, said Elaine, even as Robert said. She's my friend. Terence and Jaws can't have her. A second bucket had arrived by then, thumping down softly on a mound of frozen snow. 
Maester Coleman emerged with the squires Terence and Giles. The next winch delivered Maddie and Gretchel, who rode with Maya Stone. The bastard girl wasted no time taking charge. We don't want to get bunched up on the mountain, she told the other mule handlers. I'll take Lord Robert and his companions. Ozzie, you bring down Sir Lothar and the rest, but give me an hour's lead. Carrot, you have charge of their chests and boxes. She turned to Robert Aaron, her black hair blowing. Which mule will you ride today, my lord? They're all stinky. I have the grey one with the ear chewed off. I want Elaine to ride with me, and Miranda too. Where the way is wide enough, come, my lord, let's get you on your mule. There's a smell of snow in the air. It was another half hour before they were ready to set out. When all of them were mounted up, Meyerstone gave a crisp command, and two of Skye's men-at-arms swung the gates open. Meyer led them out, with Lord Robert just behind her, swaddled in his bearskin cloak. Elaine and Miranda Royce followed, then Gretchel and Maddie, then Terence Linderley and Giles Grafton. Maester Coleman brought up the rear, leading a second mule laden with his chests of herbs and potions. Beyond the walls, the wind picked up sharply. They were above the tree line here, exposed to the elements. Elaine was thankful that she'd dressed so warmly. Her cloak was flapping noisily behind her, and a sudden gust blew back her hood. She laughed, but a few yards ahead, Lord Robert squirmed and said, It's too cold. We should go back and wait until it's warmer. It will be warmer on the valley floor, my lord, said Meyer. You see when we get down there. I don't want to see, said Robert but Maya paid no mind. Their road was a crooked series of stone steps carved into the mountainside, but the mules knew every inch of it. Elaine was glad of that. Here and there the stone was shattered from the strain of countless seasons, with all their thaws and freezes. Patches of snow clung to the rock on either side of the path, blinding white. The sun was bright, the sky was blue, and there were falcons circling overhead, riding on the wind. Up here, where the slope was steepest, the steps wound back and forth rather than plunging straight down. Sansa Stark went up the mountain, but Elaine Stone is coming down. It was a strange thought. Coming up, Maya had warned her to keep her eyes on the path ahead, she remembered. Look up, not down, she said but that was not possible on the descent. I could close my eyes. The mule knows the way. He has no need of me. But that seems something more Sansa would have done. That frightened girl, Elaine, was an older woman, and bastard brave. At first they rode in single file, but farther down the path widened enough for two to ride abreast, and Miranda Royce came up beside her. We have had a letter from your father, she said, as casually as if they were sitting with their scepter doing needlework. He is on his way home, he says, and hopes to see his darling daughter soon. He writes that Lionel Corbury seems well pleased with his bride, and even more so with a dowry. I do hope Lord Lionel remembers which one he needs to bed. Lady Wainwood, 
turned up with a knight of nine stars for the wedding feast, Lord Peter says, to everyone's astonishment. Anya Wainwood, truly. The Lord's declarant were down from six to three, it would seem. The day he'd departed the mountain, Peter Baelish had been confident of winning Simon Templeton to his side. But not so Lady Wainwood. Eh, was there more? she asked. The area was such a lonely place that she was eager for any bit of news from the world beyond, however trivial or insignificant. Not from your father, no, but we've had other birds. The war goes on everywhere but here. River Run has yielded, but Dragonstone and Storm's End still hold for Lord Stannis. Lady Lysa was so wise to keep us out of it. Miranda gave her a shrewd little smile. Yes, she was the very soul of wisdom, that good lady. She shifted her seat. Why must mules be so bony and ill-tempered? Maya does not feed them enough. A nice fat mule would be more comfortable to ride. There's a new high septon, did you know? Oh, and the knight's watch has a boy commander, some bastard son of Eddard Stark's. John Snow? she blurted out, surprised. Snow, yes, it would be snow, I suppose. She had not thought of John in ages. He was only her half-brother, but still, with Rob and Bran and Rickon dead, John Snow was the only brother that remained to her. I'm a bastard too now, just like him. Oh, it'd be so sweet to see him once again. But of course that could never be. Elaine Stone had no brothers, base-born or otherwise. Our cousin Bronzion had himself a melee at Runestone, Miranda Royce went on, oblivious, a small one just for squires. It was meant for Harry the heir to win his honours, and so he did. Harry the heir, Lady Wainwood's ward, Harold Harding. I suppose we must call him Sir Harry now. Bronzion knighted him. Oh. Elaine was confused. Why should Lady Wainwood's ward be her heir? She had sons of her own blood. One was the knight of the bloody gate, Sir Donald. She did not want to look stupid, though, so all she said was, I pray he proves a worthy knight. Lady Miranda snorted. I pray he gets a pox. He has a bastard daughter by some common girl, you know. My lord father had hoped to marry me to Harry, but Lady Wainwood would not hear of it. I do not know whether it was me she found unsuitable, or just my dowry. She gave a sigh. I do need another husband. I had one once, but I killed him. You did? Elaine said, shocked. Oh, yes. He died on top of me. In me, if truth be told. You do know what goes on in a marriage bed, I hope. She thought of Tyrion, and of the hound, and how he'd kissed her, and gave a nod. That must have been dreadful, my lady. Him dying, there, I mean, whilst, whilst he was fucking me, she shrugged. It was disconcerting, certainly, not to mention discourteous. He did not even have the common decency to plant a child in me. All men have weak seeds, so here I am, a widow, but scarce used. Harry could have done much worse. Oh, I dare say he will. Lady Wainwood would most like marry him to one of her granddaughters or one of Bronzion's. As you say, my lady. Elaine remembered P. 
Peter's warning. Randa, come now, you can say it. Randa. Randa. Much better. I fear I must apologise to you. You will think me a, a dreadful slut, I know. But I bedded that pretty boy, Marillion. I did not know he was a monster. He sang beautifully and could do the sweetest things with his fingers. I would never have taken him to bed if I'd known he was going to push Lady Lysa through the moon door. I do not bed monsters, as a rule. She studied Elaine's face and chest. You are prettier than me, but my breasts are larger. The maesters say large breasts produce no more milk than small ones, but I do not believe it. Have you ever known a wet nurse with small teats? Yours are ample for a girl your age, but uh, they are bastard breasts. I shan't concern myself with them. Miranda edged her mule closer. You know, our Maya's not a maid, I trust. She did. Fat Maddie had whispered it to her one time when Maya brought up their supplies. Uh, Maddie told me. Of course she did. She has a mouth as big as her thighs. And her thighs are enormous. Michael Redfort was the one. He used to be Lynn Corbury's squire, a real squire. Not like that loutish lad Sir Lynn's got squiring for him now. He only took that one on for coin, they say. Michael was the best young swordsman in the Vale, and gallant, or so poor Meyer thought, till he wed one of Bronze John's daughters. Lord Orton gave him no choice in the matter, I'm sure, but it was still a cruel thing to do to Meyer. Sir Lothar is fond of her. Elaine glanced down at the mule girl twenty steps below. More than fond. Lothar Brune? Miranda raised an eyebrow. Does she know? She did not wait for an answer. He has no hope, poor man. <laughs> My father's tried to make a match for Maya, but she'll have none of them. She's half mule, that one. Despite herself, Elaine found herself warming to the older girl. She had not had a friend to gossip with since poor Jane Poole. Do you think Sir Lothar likes her, as she is, in mail and leather? She asked the older girl, who seemed so worldly-wise. Or does he dream of her draped in silks and velvets? He's a man. He dreams of her naked. She's trying to make me blush again. Lady Miranda must have heard her thoughts. You do turn such a pretty shade of pink. When I blush, I look like an apple. I've not blushed for years, though. She leaned closer. Does your father plan to wed again? My father? Elaine had never considered that. Somehow the notion made her squirm. She found herself remembering the look on Lysa Aaron's face as she tumbled through the moon door. We all know how devoted he was to Lady Lysa, said Miranda. But he cannot mourn forever. He needs a pretty young wife to wash away his grief. I imagine he could have his pick of half the noble maidens in the Vale. Who could be a better husband than our own bold Lord Protector? Though I do wish he had a better name than Littlefinger. How little is it? Do you know? His finger? She blushed again. I don't. I never... Lady Miranda laughed so loud that Maya Stone glanced back at them. <laughs> never you mind, Elaine. <laughs> I'm sure it's large enough. They passed beneath a wind-carved arch. 
where long icicles clung to the pale stone, dripping down on them. On the far side the path narrowed and plunged on sharply for a hundred feet or more. Miranda was forced to drop back. Elaine gave the mule his head. The steepness of this part of the descent made her cling tightly to her saddle. The steps here had been worn smooth by the iron-shod hooves of all the mules who'd passed this way until they resembled a series of shallow stone bowls. Water filled the bottom of the bowls, glimmering golden in the afternoon sun. It is water now, Elaine thought, but come dark, all of it will turn to ice. She realized that she was holding her breath and let it out. Myerstone and Lord Robert had almost reached the rock spire where the slope leveled off again. She tried to look at them, and only them. I will not fall, she told herself. Maya's mule will see me through. The wind skirled around her as she bumped and scraped her way down, step by step. It seemed to take a lifetime. Then all at once she was at the bottom, with Maya and her little lord huddled beneath a twisted rocky spire. Ahead stretched a high stone saddle, narrow and icy. Elaine could hear the wind shrieking and feel it plucking at her cloak. She remembered this place from her ascent. It had frightened her then, and it frightened her now. It is wider than it looks. Maya was telling Lord Robert in a cheerful voice, a yard across and no more than eight yards long, that's nothing. N nothing, Robert said, his hand was shaking. Oh no, Elaine thought, please not here, not now. It's best to lead the mules across, Maya said. If it please, my lord, I'll take mine over first, then come back for yours. Lord Robert did not answer. He was staring at the narrow saddle with his reddened eyes. I shan't be long, my lord, Maya promised, but Elaine doubted that the boy could even hear her. When the bastard girl led her mule out from beneath the shelter of the spire, the wind caught her in its teeth. Her cloak lifted, twisting and flapping in the air. Maya staggered, and for half a heartbeat it seemed as if she would be blown over the precipice. But somehow she regained her balance and went on. Elaine took Robert's gloved hand in her own to stop his shaking. Sweet Robin, she said, I'm scared. Hold my hand and help me get across. I know you're not afraid. He looked at her, his pupils small, dark pinpricks and eyes as big and white as eggs. I'm not? No, not you. You're my winged knight. So sweet Robin. The winged knight could fly, Robert whispered. Higher than the mountains, she gave his hand a squeeze. Lady Miranda had joined them by the spire. He could, she echoed, when she saw what was happening. Just sweet Robin, Lord Robert said, and Elaine knew that she dare not wait for Maya to return. She helped the boy dismount, and hand in hand they walked out onto the bare stone saddle, their cloaks snapping and flapping behind them. All around was empty air and sky, the ground falling away sharply to either side. There was ice underfoot, and broken stones just waiting to turn an ankle, and the wind was howling fiercely. It sounds like a wolf, thought Sansa, a ghost wolf, big as mountains. And then they were on the other side, and Maya Stern was laughing and lifting Robert for a hug. 
Be careful, Elaine told her. He can hurt you, flailing. You wouldn't think so, but he can. They found a place for him, a cleft in the rock to keep him out of the cold wind. Elaine tended him until the shaking passed, whilst Maya went back to help the others across. Fresh mules awaited them at snow, and a hot meal of stewed goat and onions. She ate with Meyer and Miranda. So you're brave as well as beautiful, Miranda said to her. No. The compliment made her blush. I'm not. I was so scared. I don't think I could have crossed without Lord Robert. She turned to Meyer Stone. You almost fell. You're mistaken. I never fall. Meyer's hair had tumbled across her cheek, hiding one eye. Almost, I said. I saw you. Weren't you afraid? Maya shook her head. I remember a man throwing me in the air when I was very little. He stands as tall as the sky, and he throws me up so high it feels as though I'm flying. We're both laughing, laughing so much that I can hardly catch a breath. And finally, I laugh so hard, I wet myself. But that only makes him laugh the louder. I was never afraid when he was throwing me. I knew he would always be there to catch me. She pushed her hair back. Then one day, he wasn't. Men come and go. They lie or die or leave you. A mountain is not a man, though, and a stone is a mountain's daughter. I trust my father, and I trust my mules. I won't fall. She put her hand on a jagged spur of rock and got to her feet. Best finish. We have a long way yet to go, and I can smell a storm. The snow began to fall as they were leaving stone, the largest and lowest of the three waycastles that defended the approaches to the Erie. Dusk was settling by then. Lady Miranda suggested that perhaps they might turn back, spend the night at stone, and resume their descent when the sun came up. But Maya would not hear of it. The snow might be five feet deep by then, and the steps treacherous even for my mules, she said. We will do better to press on. We'll take it slow. And so they did. Below stone, the steps were broader and less steep, winding in and out of the tall pines and grey-green sentinels that cloaked the lower steps of the giant's lance. Meyer's mules knew every root and rock on the way down, it seemed, and any they forgot the bastard girl remembered. Half the night was gone before they sighted the lights of the gates of the moon through the falling snow. The last part of their journey was the most peaceful. The snow fell steadily, cloaking all the world in white. Sweet Robin drifted to sleep in the saddle, swaying back and forth with the motion of his mule. Even Lady Miranda began to yawn and complain of being weary. We have apartments prepared for all of you, she told Elaine. But if you like, you may share my bed tonight. It's large enough for four. I should be honoured, my lady. Randa, count yourself fortunate that I am so tired. All I want to do is curl up and go to sleep. Usually when ladies share my bed, they have to pay a pillow tax and tell me all about the wicked things they've done. What if they haven't done any wicked things? Why, then they must confess all the wicked things they want to do. <laughs> Not you, of course. I can see how virtuous you are just by looking at those rosy cheeks and big blue eyes of yours. 
She yawned again. Ah, I hope your feet are warm. I do hate bedmaids with cold feet. By the time they finally reached her father's castle, Lady Miranda was drowsing too, and Elaine was dreaming of her bed. It will be a feather bed, she told herself, soft and warm and deep, piled high with furs. I will dream a sweet dream, and when I wake there will be dogs barking, women gossiping beside the well, swords ringing in the yard, and later there will be a feast with music and dancing. After the deadly silence of the airy, she yearned for shouts and laughter. As the riders were climbing off their mules, however, one of Peter's guardsmen emerged from within the keep. Lady Elaine, he said, the Lord Predictor has been waiting for you. His back, she said, startled, and even for. You'll find him in the West Tower. The hour was closer to dawn than to dusk, and most of the castle was asleep, but not Peter Baelish. Elaine found him seated by a crackling fire, drinking hot mulled wine with three men she did not know. They all rose when she entered, and Peter smiled warmly. Elaine, come give your father a kiss. She hugged him dutifully and kissed him on the cheek. I'm sorry to intrude, father. No one told me you had company. You're never an intrusion, sweetling. <laughs> I was just telling these good knights what a dutiful daughter I had. <laughs> dutiful and beautiful, said an elegant young knight, whose thick blonde mane cascaded down well past his shoulders. Oi, said the second knight, a burly fellow with a thick salt-and-pepper beard, a red nose, bulbous, with broken veins, and gnarled hands as large as hams. You left out that part, my lord. I would do the same if she were my daughter, said the last knight, a short, wiry man with a wry smile, pointed nose and bristly orange hair, particularly around louts like us. Elaine laughed. Are you louts? she said, teasing. Why, I took the three of you for gallant knights. Knights they are, said Peter. Their gallantry has yet to be demonstrated, but we may hope. Allow me to present Sir Byron, Sir Morgoth, and Sir Shadrick. Sirs, the Lady Elaine, my natural and very clever daughter, with whom I must needs confer, if you would be so good as to excuse us. The three knights bowed and withdrew, though the tall one with the blonde hair kissed her hand before taking his leave. Hedge knights? said Elaine, when the door had closed. Hungry knights! <laughs> I thought it best that we have a few more swords about us. The times grow ever more interesting, my sweet, and when the times are interesting, you can never have too many swords. The Merlin kings return to Gulltown, and old Oswell has some tales to tell. She knew better than to ask what sort of tales. If Peter had wanted her to know, he would have told her. I did not expect you to come back so soon, she said. I am glad you've come. I would never have known it from the kiss you gave me. He pulled her closer, caught her face between his hands, and kissed her on the lips for a long time. Now, that's a sort of kiss that says, Welcome home. See that you do better next time. Yes, father. She could feel herself blushing. He did not hold her kiss against her. 
You would not believe half as what is happening in King's Landing, sweetling. Cersei stumbles from one idiocy to the next, helped along by her counsel of the deaf, the dim, and the blind. I always anticipated that she would beggar the realm and destroy herself, but I never expected she would do it quite so fast. It's quite vexing. I had hoped to have four or five quiet years to plant some seeds and allow some fruits to ripen, but now huh, it's a good thing that I thrive on chaos. What little peace and order the five kings left us will not long survive the three queens, I fear. The three queens? She did not understand. Nor did Peter choose to explain. Instead, he smiled and said, I've brought my sweet girl back a gift. Elaine was as pleased as she was surprised. Is it a gown? She had heard there were fine seamstresses in Gulltown, and she was so tired of dressing drably. Something better. Guess again. Jewels? No jewels could hope to match my daughter's eyes. Lemons. Did you find some lemons? She had promised sweet Robin lemon cake, and for lemon cake you needed lemons. Peter Baelish took her by the hand and drew her down onto his lap. I've made a marriage contract for you. A marriage? Her throat tightened. She did not want to wed again. Not now. Perhaps not ever. I do not. I, I cannot marry, father. I. Elaine looked at the door to make certain it was closed. I am married, she whispered. You know. Peter put a finger to her lips to silence her. The dwarf wed Ned Stark's daughter, not mine. Be that as it may, this is only a betrothal. The marriage must needs wait until Cersei is done and Sansa's safely widowed. And you must meet the boy and win his approval. Lady Wainwood would not make him marry against his will. She was quite firm on that. Lady Wainwood? Elaine could hardly believe it. Why would she marry one of her sons to a... to a... Bastard? Well, for a start, you are the Lord Protector's bastard, never forget. The Wainwoods are very old and very proud, but not as rich as one might think, as I discovered when I began buying up their debt. Not that Lady Anya would ever sell a son for gold. A ward, however. <laughs> Young Harry's only a cousin, and the dower that I offered her ladyship was even larger than the one that Lionel Corbray just collected. It had to be, for her to risk Bronzion's wrath. This will put all his plans awry. You are promised to Harold Harding, sweetling, provided you can win his boyish heart, which should not be hard for you. Harry the heir? Elaine tried to recall what Miranda had told her about him on the mountain. He was just knighted, and he has a bastard daughter by some common girl, and another on the way by a different wench. Harry can be a beguiling one, no doubt. Soft sandy hair, deep blue eyes, and dimples when he smiles, and very gallant, I'm told. He teased her with a smile. Bastard born, or no, sweetling, when this match is announced, you will be the envy of every high-born maiden in the Vale, and a few from the Riverlands, and the Reach as well. Why? Elaine was lost. Is Sir Harold, how could he be Lady Wainwood's heir? Doesn't she have sons of her own blood? Three, Peter allowed. She could smell the wine on his breath, the cloves and nutmeg. 
Daughters, too, and grandsons. Uh, won't they come before, Harry? I don't understand. You will. Listen. Peter took her hand in his own and brushed his finger lightly down the inside of her palm. Lord Jasper Aaron, begin with him. John Aaron's father. He begot three children, two sons and a daughter. John was the eldest, so the area and the lordship passed to him. His sister, Alice, wed Sir Ellis Wainwood, uncle to the present Lady Wainwood. He made a wry face. Alice and Alice. <laughs> Isn't that precious? Lord Jasper's younger son, Sir Ronald Aaron, wed a Belmore girl, but only uh, rang her once or twice before dying of a bad belly. Their son, Albert, was being born in one bed, even as poor Ronald was dying in another down the hall. Are you paying close attention, sweetling? Yes, there was John and Alice and Ronald, but Ronald died. Good. Now, John Aaron married thrice, but his first two wives gave him no children, so for long years his nephew, Albert, was his heir. Meantime... Ellis was ploughing Alice quite dutifully, and she was whelping once a year. She gave him nine children, eight girls, and one precious little boy, another Jasper, after which she died, exhausted. Boy Jasper, inconsiderate of the heroic efforts that had gone into begetting him, cut himself kicked in the head by a horse when he was three years old. A pox took two of his sisters soon after, leaving six. The eldest married Sir Dennis Aaron, a distant cousin to the Lords of the Airy. There are several branches of House Aaron scattered across the Vale, all as proud as they are penurious, save for the Gultan Aarons, who had the rare good sense to marry merchants. They're rich, but less than couth, so no one talks about them. Sir Dennis hailed from one of the poor, proud branches, but he was a renowned jouster, handsome and gallant and brimming with courtesy, and he had that magic air and name, which made him ideal for the eldest Wainwood girl. Their children would be errands, and the next heirs to the Vale should any ill befall Elbert. Well, as it happened, Mad King Ares befell Elbert. You know that story? She did. The Mad King murdered him. He did indeed, and soon after, Sir Dennis left his pregnant Wainwood wife to ride to war. He died during the Battle of the Bells of an excess of gallantry and an axe. When they told his lady of his death, she perished of grief, and her newborn son soon followed. No matter, John Aaron had gotten himself a young wife during the war. One he had reason to believe fertile. He was very hopeful, I'm sure. But you and I know that all he ever got from Lysa was stillbirths, miscarriages, and poor sweet Robin. Which brings us back to the five remaining daughters of Ellis and Alice. The eldest had been left terribly scarred by the same pox that killed her sisters, so she became a scepter. Another was seduced by a sellsword. Sir Ellis cast her out, and she joined the Silent Sisters after her bastard died in infancy. The third wed the Lord of the Paps, but uh, proved barren. The fourth was on her way to the Riverlands to marry some bracken, when burned men carried her off. 
that left the youngest, who with a landed knight sworn to the Wainwoods, gave him a son that she named Harold, and perished. He turned her hand over and lightly kissed her wrist. So, tell me, sweetling, why is Harry the heir? Her eyes widened. He is not Lady Wainwood's heir, he's Robert's heir. If Robert were to die... Peter arched an eyebrow. When Robert dies, our poor brave sweet Robin is such a sickly boy, it's only a matter of time. When Robert dies, Harry the heir becomes Lord Harold, defender of the Vale, and Lord of the Airy. John Aaron's bannermen will never love me nor our silly, shaking Robert, but they will love the young falcon. And when they come together for his wedding, and you come out with your long auburn hair, clad in a maiden's cloak of white and grey, with a dire wolf emblazoned on the back, why, every knight in the vale will pledge his sword to win you back your birthright. So those are your gifts for me, my sweet Sansa. Harry the Airy and Winterfell. That's worth another kiss now, don't you think? Brain This is an evil dream, she thought. But if she were dreaming, why did it hurt so much? The rain had stopped falling, but all the world was wet. Her cloak felt as heavy as her mail. The ropes that bound her wrists were soaked through, but that only made them tighter. No matter how Brian turned her hands, she could not slip free. She did not understand who had bound her or why. She tried to ask the shadows, but they did not answer. Perhaps they did not hear her. Perhaps they were not real. Under her layers of wet wool and rusting mail, her skin was flushed and feverish. She wondered whether all of this was just a fever dream. She had a horse beneath her though she could not remember mounting. She lay face down across its hindquarters like a sack of oats. Her wrists and ankles had been lashed together. The air was damp, the ground cloaked in mist. Her head pounded with every step. She could hear voices, but all she could see was the earth beneath the horse's hooves. There were things broken inside of her. Her face felt swollen. Her cheek was sticky with blood and every jounce and bounce sent a stab of agony through her arm. She could hear Podrick calling her, as if from far away. Sir, he kept saying, Sir, my lady, sir, my lady. His voice was faint and hard to hear. Finally, there was only silence. She dreamt she was at Harrenhal, down in the bear pit once again. This time it was Biter facing her, huge and bald and maggot white, with weeping sores upon his cheeks. Naked he came, fonding his member, gnashing his file teeth together. Brian fled from him. My sword! she called. Oathkeeper, please! The watchers did not answer. Renly was there, with Nimble Dick and Caitlin Stark, Shagwell, Pig, and Timion had come and the corpses from the trees with their sunken cheeks, swollen tongues, and empty eye sockets. Brian wailed in horror at the sight of them. 
and Biter grabbed her arm and yanked her close and tore a chunk from her face. Jamie! she heard herself scream. Jamie! Even in the depths of dream, the pain was there. Her face throbbed, her shoulder bled. Breathing hurt. The pain crackled up her arm like lightning. She cried out for a maester. We have no maester, said a girl's voice. Only me. I'm looking for a girl, Brian remembered. A high-born maid of three and ten with blue eyes and auburn hair. My lady, she said. Lady Sansa. A man laughed. Ah, she thinks you're Sansa's Turk. She can't go much further. She'll die. One less lion. I won't weep. Brian heard the sound of someone praying. She thought of Septon Merribald, but all the words were wrong. The night is dark and full of terrors and sour dreams. They were riding through a gloomy world, a dank, dark, silent place where the pines pressed close. The ground was soft beneath her horse's hooves, and the tracks she left behind filled up with blood. Beside her rode Lord Renly, Dick Crabbe, and Varga Hote. Blood ran from Renly's throat. The goat's torn ear oozed pus. Where are we going? Brian asked. Where are you taking me? None of them would answer. How can they answer? All of them are dead. Did that mean that she was dead as well? Lord Renly was ahead of her, her sweet, smiling king. He was leading her horse through the trees. Brian called out to tell him how much she loved him. But when he turned to scowl at her, she saw he was not Renly after all. Renly never scowled. He always had a smile for me, she thought. Except... Cold, her king said, puzzled, and a shadow moved without a man to cast it, and her sweet lord's blood came washing through the green steel of his gorget to drench her hands. He had been a warm man, but his blood was cold as ice. This is not real, she told herself. This is another bad dream, and soon I'll wake. Her mount came to a sudden halt. Rough hands seized hold of her. She saw shafts of red afternoon light slanting through the branches of a chestnut tree. A horse rooted amongst the dead leaves after chestnuts, and men moved nearby, talking in quiet voices. Ten, twelve, maybe more. Brain did not recognize her faces. She was stretched out on the ground, her back against a tree trunk. Drink this, milady, said the girl's voice. She lifted a cup to Brian's lips. The taste was strong and sour. Brian spat it out. Water, she gasped. Please, water. Water won't help the pain. This will, a little. The girl put the cup to Brian's lips again. It even hurt to drink. Wine ran down her chin and dribbled on her chest. When the cup was empty, the girl filled it from her skin. Brian sucked it down until she sputtered, No more! More! You have a broken arm, and some of your ribs is cracked. Two, maybe three. Biter, Brian said, remembering the weight of him, the way his knee had slammed into her chest. Aye, <laughs> a real monster, that one. It all came back to her. Lightning above and mud below, 
the rain pinging softly against the dark still of the hound's helm, the terrible strength in Biter's hands. Suddenly she could not stand being bound. She tried to wrench free of her ropes, but all that did was chafe her worse. Her wrists were tied too tightly. There was dried blood on the hemp. Is he dead? She trembled. Bite her. Is he dead? She remembered his teeth tearing into the flesh of her face. The thought that he might still be out there somewhere, breathing, made Brian want to scream. He's dead. Gentry shoved her spear point through the back of his neck. Drink, me lady, or I'll pour it down your throat. She drank. I'm looking for a girl, she whispered between swallows. She almost said, my sister. A high-born maid of three and ten, she has blue eyes and auburn hair. I'm not her. No, Brian could see that. The girl was thin to the point of looking starved. She wore her brown hair in a braid, and her eyes were older than her years. Brown hair, brown eyes, plain. Willow, six years older. You're the sister, the innkeep. I might be, the girl squinted. What if I am? Do you have a name? Brian asked. Her stomach gurgled. She was afraid that she might retch. Edel, same as Willow. Jane Edel. Jane, untie my hands. Please have pity. The ropes are chafing my wrists. I'm bleeding. It's not allowed. You ought to stay bound till... Till you stand before me, lady. Renly stood behind the girl, pushing his black hair out of his eyes. Not Renly. Gendry. My lady means for you to answer for your crimes. My lady? The wine was making her head spin. It was hard to think. Stonar, is that who you mean? Lord Randall had spoken of her back at Maidenpool. Lady Stoneheart. Some call her that. Some call her other things. The Silent Sister, Mother Merciless, the Hangwoman. The Hangwoman? When Brian closed her eyes, she saw the corpses swaying underneath the bare brown limbs, their faces black and swollen. Suddenly she was desperately afraid. Podrick, my squire, where is Podrick? And the others? Sir Hyle, uh, Septon Merrybull, Dog, what did you do with Dog? Gendry and the girl exchanged a look. Brian fought to rise and managed to get one knee under her before the world began to spin. It was you who killed a dog, milady, she heard Gentry say, just before the darkness swallowed her again. Then she was back at the whispers, standing amongst the ruins and facing Clarence Crabb. He was huge and fierce, mounted on an oryx shaggier than he was. The beast poured the ground in fury, tearing deep furrows in the earth. Crab's teeth had been filed into points. When Brian went to draw her sword, she found her scabbard empty. No, she cried as the Clarence charged. It wasn't fair. She could not fight without her magic sword. Sir Jamie had given it to her. The thought of failing him, as she had failed Lord Renly, made her want to weep. My sword, please. I have to find my sword. The wench wants her sword back, a voice declared. And I want Cersei Lannister to suck my cock. So what? Jamie called it Oathkeeper, please. But the voices did not listen, and Clarence Crabb thundered down on her and swept off her head. Brian spiraled down into a deeper darkness.
she dreamed that she was lying in a boat, her head pillowed on someone's lap. There were shadows all around them, hooded men in mail and leather, paddling them across a foggy river with muffled oars. She was drenched in sweat, burning, yet somehow shivering too. The fog was full of faces. Beauty, whispered the willows on the bank. But the reed said, Freak, freak. Brain shuddered. Stop, she said. Someone make them stop. The next time she woke, Jane was holding a cup of hot soup to her lips. Onion broth, Brain thought. She drank as much of it as she could until a bit of carrot caught in her throat and made her choke. Coughing was agony. Easy, the girl said. Gendry, she wheezed. I have to talk with Gendry. He turned back at the river, milady. He's gone back to his forge, to Willow, and the little ones, to keep them safe. No one can keep them safe, she began to cough again. Ah, oh, let her choke. Save us a rope. One of the shadow men shoved the girl aside. He was clad in rusted rings and a studded belt. At his hip hung longsword and dirk. A yellow great cloak was plastered to his shoulders, sudden and filthy. From his shoulders rose a steel dog's head, its teeth bared in a snarl. No, Brian moaned. No, you're dead. I killed you. The hound laughed. You got that backwards. <laughs> It'll be me killing you. I'd do it now, but my lady wants to see you hanged. Hanged? The word sent a jot of fear through her. She looked at the girl, Jane. She is too young to be so hard. Bread and salt, Brian gasped. The inn, Septon Merrivale, fed the children. We broke bread with your sister. Guessed right don't mean as much as it used to, said the girl. Not since my lady come back from the wedding. Some of them, swinging down by the river, figured they were guests too. We figured different, said the hound. They wanted beds. We gave them trees. We got more trees, though, put in another shadow, one-eyed beneath a rusty pothelm. We always got more trees. When it was time to mount again, they yanked a leather hood down over her face. There were no eye holes. The leather muffled the sounds around her. The taste of onions lingered on her tongue, sharp as the knowledge of her failure. I mean to hang me. She thought of Jamie, of Sansa, of her father back on Tarth, and was glad for the hood. It helped hide the tears welling in her eyes. From time to time she heard the outlaws talking, but she could not make out their words. After a while she gave herself up to weariness and the slow, steady motion of her horse. This time she dreamed that she was home again, at Evenfall. Through the tall, arched windows of her Lord Father's Hall, she could see the sun just going down. I was safe here. I was safe. She was dressed in silk brocade, a quartered gown of blue and red, decorated with golden suns and silver crescent moons. On another girl it might have been a pretty gown, but not on her. She was twelve, ungainly, and uncomfortable, waiting to meet the young knight her father had arranged for her to marry, a boy six years her senior, sure to be a famous champion one day. She dreaded his arrival. 
Her bosom was too small, her hands and feet too big. Her hair kept sticking up, and there was a pimple nestled in the fold beside her nose. He will bring a rose for you, her father promised her. But a rose was no good. A rose could not keep her safe. It was a sword she wanted. Oath keeper, I have to find the girl. I have to find his honor. Finally, the doors opened, and her betrothed strode into her father's hall. She tried to greet him, as she had been instructed, only to have blood come pouring from her mouth. She had bitten her tongue off as she waited. She spat it at the young knight's feet and saw the disgust on his face. Brain the beauty, he said in a mocking tone. I've seen sows more beautiful than you. He tossed the rose in her face as he walked away. The griffins on his cloak rippled and blurred and changed to lions. Jamie, she wanted to cry. Jamie, come back for me. But her tongue lay on the floor by the rose, drowned in blood. Brain woke suddenly, gasping. She did not know where she was. The air was cold and heavy, and smelled of earth and worms and mould. She was lying on a pallet beneath a mound of sheepskins, with rock above her head and roots poking through the walls. The only light came from a tallow candle, smoking in a pool of melted wax. She pushed aside the sheepskins. Someone had stripped her of her clothes and armor, she saw. She was clad in a brown woolen shift, thin but freshly washed. Her forearm had been splintered and bound up with linen, though. One side of her face felt wet and stiff. When she touched herself, she found some sort of damp poultice covering her cheek and jaw and ear. Bite her. Brian got to her feet. Her legs felt weak as water, her head as light as air. Is anyone there? Something moved in one of the shadowed alcoves behind the candle. An old grey man clad in rags. The blankets that had covered him slipped to the floor. He sat up and rubbed his eyes. Lady Brian, he gave me a fright I was dreaming. No, she thought. That was me. What place is this? Is this a dungeon? A cave? Like rats, we must run back to our holes when the dogs come sniffing after us, and there are more dogs every day. He was clad in the ragged remains of an old robe, pink and white. His hair was long and grey and tangled. The loose skin of his cheeks and chin was covered with coarse stubble. Are you hungry? Could you keep down a cup of milk, perhaps some bread and honey? I want my clothes, my sword. She felt naked without her mail, and she wanted Oathkeeper at her side. The way out, show me the way out. The floor of the cave was dirt and stone, rough beneath the soles of her feet. Even now she felt light-headed, as if she were floating. The flickering light cast queer shadows. Spirits of the slain, she thought, dancing all about me, hiding when I turned to look at them. Everywhere she saw holes and cracks and crevices, but there was no way to know which passage led out, which would take her deeper into the cave, and which went nowhere. All were black as pitch. Might I feel your brow, my lady? 
Her jailer's hand was scarred and hard with callous, yet strangely gentle. Your fever has broken, he announced in a voice flavoured with the accents of the free cities. Well and good, just yesterday your flesh felt as if it were on fire. Jane feared that we might lose you. Jane, the tall girl, the very one, though she's not so tall as you, my lady. <laughs> Long Jane, the man called her, it was she who set your arm and splinted it, as well as any mister. Uh, she did what she could for your face as well, washing out the wounds with boiled ale to stop the mortification. Even so, a human bite is a filthy thing. That is where the fever came from, I'm certain. The grey man touched her bandaged face. We had to cut away some of the flesh. Your face will not be pretty, I fear. It never has been pretty. Scars, you mean? My lady, that creature chewed off half your cheek. Brian could not help but flinch. Every knight has battle scars, Sir Goodwin had warned her, when she asked him to teach her the sword. Is that what you want, child? Her old master-at-arms had been talking about sword-cuts, though. He could never have anticipated biter's pointed teeth. Why set my bones and wash my wounds, if you only mean to hang me? Why, indeed? He glanced at the candle, as if he could no longer bear to look at her. He fought bravely at the inn, they tell me. Lem should not have left the crossroads. He was told to stay close, hidden, to come at once if he saw smoke rising from the chimney. But when word reached him that the mad dog of salt pans had been seen making his way north along the Green Fork, he took the bait. We have been hunting that lot for so long. Still, he ought to have known better. As he was, it was half a day before he realised that the mummers had used a stream to hide their tracks and doubled back behind him. And then he lost more time circling around a column of fray knights. If not for you, only corpses might have remained at the inn by the time that Lem and his men got back. That was why Jane dressed your wounds, mayhaps. Whatever else you may have done, you won those wounds honourably, in the best of causes. Whatever else you may have done? What is it that you think I've done? she said. Who are you? We were king's men when we began, the man told her, but king's men must have a king, and we have none. We were brothers too, but now our brotherhood is broken. I do not know who we are, if truth be told, nor where we might be going. I only know the road is dark. The fires have not shown me what lies at its end. I know where it ends. I've seen the corpses in the trees. Fires, Brian repeated. All at once she understood. You are the Mirish priest, the Red Wizard. He looked down to his ragged robes and smiled ruefully. The pink pretender, rather. <laughs> I am a Saurus, later Mir. Aye, a bad priest and a worse wizard. You ride with Dondarian, the Lightning Lord. Lightning comes and goes, and then is seen no more. So too with men. 
Lord Berwick's fire has gone out to this world, I fear. A grimmer shadow leads us in his place. The hound? The police pursed his lips. The hound is dead and buried. I saw him in the woods. <laughs> A fever dream, my lady. He said he would hang me. Even dreams can lie. My lady, how long has it been since you've eaten? Surely you're famished. She was, she realised. Her belly felt hollow. Food? Food will be welcome, thank you. A meal, then. Sit. We will talk more. But first a meal. Wait here. Thoris lit a taper from the sagging candle and vanished into a black hole beneath a ledge of rock. Brian found herself alone in the small cave. For how long, though? She prowled the chamber, looking for a weapon. Any sort of weapon would have served. A staff, a club, a dagger. She found only rocks. One fit her fist nicely, but she remembered the whispers. And what happened when Shagwell tried to pit a stone against a knife? When she heard the priest's returning footsteps, she let the rock fall to the cavern floor and resumed her seat. Thoris had bread and cheese and a bowl of stew. I am sorry, he said. The last of the milk has soured, and the honey is all gone. <laughs> Food grows scant. Still, this will fill you. The stew was cold and greasy, the bread hard, the cheese harder. Brian had never eaten anything half so good. Are my companions here? she asked the priest, as she was spooning up the last of the stew. The septon was set free to go upon his way. There was no harm in him. The others are here, awaiting judgment. Judgment? she frowned. Podrick Payne is just a boy. He says he is a squire. You know how boys will boast. The imp squire, he has fought in battles by his own admission, is even killed to hear him tell it. A boy, she said again, have pity. My lady, Thora said, I do not doubt that kindness and mercy and forgiveness can still be found somewhere in these seven kingdoms, but do not look for them here. This is a cave, not a temple. When men must live like rats in the dark beneath the earth, they soon run out of pity, as they do of milk and honey. And justice? Cannot be found in caves? Justice, <laughs> Thora smiled wanly. I remember justice. It had a pleasant taste. Justice was what we were about when Beric led us, or so we told ourselves. We were king's men, knights and heroes, but some nights are dark and full of terror, my lady. War makes monsters of us all. Are you saying you are monsters? I am saying we are human. You're not the only one with wounds, Lady Brian. Some of my brothers were good men when this began. Some were, well, less good, shall we say. Though there are those who say it does not matter how a man begins, but only how he ends. I suppose it's the same for women. The priest got to his feet. Our time together is at an end, I fear. I hear my brothers coming. Our lady sends for you. Brian heard their footsteps and saw torchlight flickering in the passage. You told me she had got a fair market. And so she had. 
She returned whilst we were sleeping. She never sleeps herself. I will not be afraid, she told herself, but it was too late for that. I will not let them see my fear, she promised herself instead. There were four of them, hard men with haggard faces, clad in mail and scale and leather. She recognized one of them, the man with one eye from her dreams. The biggest of the four wore a stained and tattered yellow cloak. Enjoy the food? he asked. I hope so. It's the last food you're ever like to eat. He was brown-haired, bearded, brawny, with a broken nose that had healed badly. I know this man, Brian thought. You are the hound, he grinned. His teeth were awful, crooked, and streaked brown with rot. I suppose I am, seeing as how my lady went and killed the last one. He turned his head and spat. She remembered lightning flashing, the mud beneath her feet. It was Rorge I killed. He took the elm from Cleggan's grave, and you stole it off his corpse. I didn't hear him objecting. Thora sucked in his breath in dismay. Is this true? A dead man's elm? Have we fallen that low? The big man scowled at him. It's good steel. There's nothing good about that elm, nor the men who wore it, said the red priest. Sandor Clegane was a man in torment, and Rouge a beast in human skin. I'm not them. Then why show the world their face? Savage, snarling, twisted? Is that who you would be, Lem? The sight of it will make my foes afraid. The sight of it makes me afraid. Close your eyes, then. The man in the yellow cloak made a sharp gesture. Bring the whore! Brian did not resist. There were four of them, and she was weak and wounded, naked beneath the woolen shift. She had to bend her neck to keep from hitting her head as they marched her through the twisting passage. The wearhead rose sharply, turning twice before emerging in a much larger cavern full of outlaws. A fire pit had been dug in the centre of the floor, and the air was blue with smoke. Men clustered near the flames, warming themselves against the chill of the cave. Others stood along the walls or sat cross-legged on straw pallets. There were women, too, and even a few children peering out from behind their mother's skirts. The one face Brian knew belonged to Long Jane Heddle. A trestle table had been set up across the cave in a cleft in the rock. Behind it sat a woman, all in grey, cloaked and hooded. In her hand was a crown, a bronze circlet ringed by iron swords. She was studying it, her fingers stroking the blades as if to test their sharpness. Her eyes glimmered under her hood. Grey was the colour of the silent sisters, the handmaidens of the stranger. Brian felt her shiver climb up her spine. Stoneheart! My lady, said the big man, here she is. I, and the one-eyed man, the king slayers her. She flinched. Why would you call me that? If I had a silver stag for every time you said his name, oh, I'd be as rich as your friends, the Lannisters. That was only... You do not understand. Uh, don't we, though? The big man laughed. I think we might. There's a stink of lion about you, lady. That's not so. 
Another of the outlaws stepped forward, a younger man in a greasy, sheepskin jerkin. In his hand was Oathkeeper. This says it is. His voice was frosted with the accents of the North. He slid the sword from its scabbard and placed it in front of Lady Stoneheart. In the light from the fire pit, the red and black ripples in the blade almost seemed to move. But the woman in grey had eyes only for the pommel. A golden lion's head, with ruby eyes that shone like two red stars. There is this as well. Thoris of Myr drew a parchment from his sleeve and put it down next to the sword. It bears the boy king's seal and says the bearer is about his business. Lady Stoneheart set the sword aside to read the letter. The sword was given me for a good purpose, said Brian. Sir Jamie swore an oath to Caitlin Stark before his friends cut her throat for her. That must have been, said the big man in the yellow cloak. Oh, we all know about the Kingslayer and his oaths. That's no good, Brian realized. No words of mine will sway them. She plunged ahead despite that. He promised Lady Caitlin her daughters, but by the time we'd reached King's Landing, they were gone. Jamie sent me out to seek the Lady Sanser. And if you had found her, asked the young Northman, what were you to do with her? Protect her. Take her somewhere safe. The big man laughed. Where's that? Cersei's dungeon? No. Deny it all you want. The sword says you're a liar. Are we supposed to believe the Lannisters are handing out gold and ruby swords to foes? <laughs> that the Kingslayer meant for you to hide the girl from his own twin? I suppose the paper with a boy king seal was just in case you needed to wipe your ass. And then there's a company you keep. The big man turned and beckoned. The ranks of outlaws parted, and two more captives were brought forth. The boy was the imp's own squire, my lady, he said to Lady Stoneheart. Toller is one of Randall Bloody Tarley's bloody household knights. Hyle Hunt had been beaten so badly that his face was swollen almost beyond recognition. He stumbled as they shoved him and almost fell. Padraig caught him by the arm. Sir, the boy said miserably, when he saw Brain. My lady, I mean, sorry. You have nothing to be sorry for. Brian turned to Lady Stoneheart. Whatever treachery you think I may have done, my lady, Podrick and Sir Hyle were no part of it. They're lions, said the one-eyed man. That's enough. I say they hang. Tarly's hanged a score of ours. Past time we strung up some of his. Sir Hyle gave Brian a faint smile. My lady... He said, you should have wet me when I made my offer. Now I fear you're doomed to die a maid, and me, <laughs> a poor man. Let them go, Brian pleaded. The woman in grey gave no answer. She studied the sword, the parchment, the bronze and iron crown. Finally, she reached up under her jaw and grasped her neck, as if she meant to throttle herself. Instead, she spoke. Her voice was halting, broken, tortured. The sound seemed to come from her throat, part croak, part wheeze, part death rattle. The language of the damned, thought Brian. 
I don't understand. What does she say? She asked the name of this blade of yours, said the young Northman in his sheepskin jerkin. Oathkeeper, Brian answered. The woman in grey hissed through her fingers. Her eyes were two red pits burning in the shadows. She spoke again. No, she says. Call it Oathbreaker, she says. It was made for treachery and murder. She names it False Friend, like you. To whom have I been false? To her, the Northman said. Can it be that my lady has forgotten that you once swore her, your service? There was only one woman that the maid of Tarth had ever sworn to serve. That cannot be, she said. She's dead. Huh? Death and guessed right, muttered Long Jane Heddle. They don't mean so much as they used to, neither one. Lady Stoneheart lowered her hood and unwound the grey wool scarf from her face. Her hair was dry and brittle, white as bone. Her brow was mottled green and grey, spotted with the brown blooms of decay. The flesh of her face clung in ragged strips from her eyes down to her jaw. Some of the rips were crusted with dried blood, but others gaped open to reveal the skull beneath. Her face, Brian thought, her face was so strong and handsome, her skin so smooth and soft. Lady Caitlin? Tears filled her eyes. They said, they said that you were dead. She is, said Thoris of Mere. The phrase slashed her throat from ear to ear. When we found her by the river, she was three days dead. Arwen begged me to give her the kiss of life, but it had been too long. I would not do it, so Lord Berwick put his lips to hers instead, and the flame of life passed from him to her, and uh, she rose. May the Lord of Light protect us. She rose. Am I dreaming still? Brian wondered. Is this another nightmare, born from biter's teeth? I never betrayed her. Tell her that. I, I, I swear it by the seven. I swear it by my sword. The thing that had been Caitlin Stark took hold of her throat again, fingers pinching at the ghastly long slash in her neck, and choked out more sounds. Words are wind, she says. The Northman told Brian, she says that you must prove your faith. How? asked Brian. With your sword. Oathkeeper, you call it? Then keep your oath to her, milady says. What does she want of me? She wants her son alive, or the men who killed him dead, said the big man. She wants to feed the crows like they did at the Red Wedding. Frays and Bolton's eye will give her those, as many as she likes. All she asks from you is Jamie Lannister. Jamie? The name was a knife twisting in her belly. Lady Caitlin, I, you do not understand. Jamie, uh, he saved me from being raped when the bloody mummers took us, and later he came back for me. He leapt into the bear pit empty-handed. I swear to you, he is not the man he was. He sent me after Sansa to keep her safe. He could not have had a part in the Red Wedding. Lady Caitlin's fingers dug deep into her throat, and the words came rattling out, choked and broken, 
a stream as cold as ice. The Northman said, She says you must choose, take the sword and slay the kingslayer, or be hanged for a betrayer. The sword or the noose, she says. Choose, she says. Choose. Brian remembered her dream, waiting in her father's hall for the boy she was to marry. In the dream she had bitten off her tongue. My mouth was full of blood. She took a ragged breath and said, I will not make that choice. There was a long silence. Then Lady Stoneheart spoke again. This time Brian understood her words. There were only two. Hang them, she croaked. As you command, my lady, said the big man. They bound Brian's wrists with rope again and led her from the cavern up a twisting stony path to the surface. It was morning outside, she was surprised to see. Shafts of pale dawn light were slanting through the trees. So many trees to choose from, she thought. They will not need to take us far. Nor did they. Beneath a crooked willow, the outlaw slipped a noose about her neck, jerked it tight, and tossed the other end of the rope over a limb. Hyle Hunt and Podrick Payne were given elms. Sir Hyle was shouting that he would kill Jamie Lannister, but the hound cuffed him across the face and shut him up. He had done the helm again. If you got crimes to confess to your gods, this would be the time to see them. Podrick has never harmed you. My father will ransom him. Tarth is called the Sapphire Isle. Send Podrick with my bones to Evenfall, and you'll have sapphire, silver, whatever you want. I want my wife and daughter back, said the hound. Can your father give me that? If not, he can get buggered. The boy will rot beside you. Wolves will gnaw your bones. Do you mean to hang her, Lem? asked the one-eyed man. Or do you figure to talk the bitch to death? The hound snatched the end of the rope from the man holding it. Let's see if she can dance, he said, and gave a yank. Brian felt the hemp constricting, digging into her skin, jerking her chin upwards. Sir Hyle was cursing them eloquently, but not the boy. Podrick never lifted his eyes, not even when his feet were jerked up off the ground. If this is another dream, it's time for me to awaken. If this is real, it's time for me to die. All she could see was Podrick, the noose around his thin neck, his legs twitching. Her mouth opened. Pod was kicking, choking, dying. Brian sucked the air in desperately, even as the rope was strangling her. Nothing had ever hurt so much. She screamed a word. Cersei Scepter Moel was a white-haired harridan, with a face as sharp as an axe and lips pursed in perpetual disapproval. This one still has her maidenhead, I'll wager, Cersei thought, though by now it's hard and stiff as boiled leather. Six of the High Sparrow's knights escorted her, with the rainbow sword of their reborn order emblazoned on their kite shields. Scepter, 
Cersei sat beneath the Iron Throne, clad in green silk and golden lace. Tell his High Holiness that we are vexed with him. He presumes too much. Emeralds glimmered on her fingers and in her golden hair. The eyes of court and city were upon her, and she meant for them to see Lord Tywin's daughter. By the time this mama's farce was done, they would know they had but one true queen. But first, we must dance the dance and never miss a step. Lady Marjorie is my son's true and gentle wife, his helpmate and consort. His High Holiness had no cause to lay his hands upon her person, or to confine her and her young cousins, who are so dear to all of us. I demand that he release them. Scepter Moel's stern expression did not flicker. I shall convey your grace's words to his High Holiness, but it grieves me to say that the young queen and her ladies cannot be released until and unless their innocence has been proved. Innocence? Why, you only need to look upon their sweet young faces to see how innocent they are. A sweet face oft hides a sinner's heart. Lord Merriweather spoke up from the council table. What offence have these young maids been accused of, and by whom? The scepter said, Mega Tyrell and Eleanor Tyrell stand accused of lewdness, fornication, and conspiracy to commit high treason. Alla Tyrell has been charged with witnessing their shame and helping them conceal it. All this Queen Marjorie also has been accused of, as well as adultery and high treason. Cersei put a hand to her breast. Tell me, who is spreading such calumnies about my good daughter? I do not believe a word of this. My sweet son loves Lady Marjorie with all his heart. She could never have been so cruel as to play him false. The accuser is a knight of your own household. Sir Osney Kettleblack has confessed his carnal knowledge of the Queen to the High Septon himself before the altar of the Father. At the council table, Harry Swift gasped and Grand Maester Pycelle turned away. A buzz filled the air, as if a thousand wasps were loose in the throne room. Some of the ladies in the galleries began to slip away, followed by a stream of petty lords and knights from the back of the hall. The gold cloaks let them go, but the Queen had instructed Sir Usfred to make a note of all who fled. Suddenly the Tyrell rose does not smell so sweet. Sir Osney is young and lusty, I will grant you, the Queen said, but a faithful knight for all that. If he says that he was part of this, no, it cannot be. Marjorie is a maiden. She is not, I examined her myself, at the behest of his high holiness. Her maidenhead is not intact. Scepter Aglantine and Scepter Millicent will say the same, as will Queen Marjorie's own Scepter, Nisterica, who has been confined to a penitent cell 
for her part in the Queen's shame. Lady Mega and Lady Eleanor were examined as well. Both were found to have been broken. The wasps were growing so loud that the Queen could hardly hear herself think. I do hope the little Queen and her cousins enjoyed those rides of theirs. Lord Merriweather thumped his fist on the table. Lady Marjorie had sworn solemn oaths at testing to her maidenhood, to her grace, the queen, and her late father. Many here bore witness. Lord Tyrell has also testified to her innocence, as has the Lady Olena, whom we all know to be above reproach. Would you have us believe that all of these noble people lied to us? Perhaps they were deceived as well, my lord, said Septimoel. I cannot speak to this, I can only swear to the truth of what I discovered for myself when I examined the queen. The picture of this sour old crone poking her wrinkled finger up Marjorie's little pink cunt was so droll that Cersei almost laughed. We insist that His High Holiness allow our own maesters to examine my good daughter to determine if there is any shred of truth to these slanders. Grand Maester Pysel shall accompany Scepter Moel back to beloved Baylor Sept and return to us with the truth about our Marjorie's maidenhead. Pysel had gone the collar of curdled white. At council meetings, the wretched old fool cannot say enough, but now that I need a few words from him, he's lost the power of speech, the queen thought. Before the old man finally came out with, There is no need for me to examine her, her private parts, his voice was a quaver. I grieve to say, Queen Marjorie is no maiden. She has required me to make her moon tea. Not once, but many times. The uproar that followed was all that Cersei Lannister could have ever hoped for. Even the royal herald, beating on the floor with his staff, did little to quell the noise. The queen let it wash over her for a few heartbeats, savouring the sounds of the little queen's disgrace. When it had gone on long enough, she rose, stone-faced, and commanded that the gold cloaks clear the hall. Marjorie Tyrell is done, she thought, exulting. Her white knights fell in around her as she made her exit through the king's door beyond the iron throne. Boris Blunt, Merrin Trent, and Osmond Kettleblack, the last of the king's guard, still remaining in the city. Moonboy was standing beside the door, holding his rattle in his hand and gaping at the confusion with his big round eyes. A fool he may be, but he wears his folly honestly. Maggie the Frog should have been in Motley, too, for all she knew about the morrow. Cersei prayed the old fraud was screaming down in hell. The younger queen, whose coming she had foretold, was finished, and if that prophecy could fail, so could the rest. No golden shrouds, no vanancar. I am free of your croaking malice at last. The remnants of her small council followed her out. Harry Swift appeared dazed. 
He stumbled at the door and might have fallen before Rain Waters had not caught him by the arm. Even Orton Merriweather seemed anxious. These small folk are fond of the little queen, he said. They will not take well to this. I fear what might happen next, Your Grace. Lord Merriweather is right, said Lord Waters. If it please, Your Grace, I will launch the rest of our new drummonds. The sight of them upon the black water, with King Thomas' banner flying from their masts, will remind the city who rules here, and keep them safe should the mobs decide to run riot again. He left the rest unspoken. Once on the black water, his drummers could stop Maesterell from bringing his army back across the river, just as Tyrion had one stop Stannis. High Garden had no sea power of its own this side of Westeros. They relied upon the Redwind fleet, presently on his way back to the arbor. A prudent measure, the Queen announced. Until the storm has passed, I want your ships crewed and on the water. Sir Harry Swift was so pale and damp, he looked about to faint. When word of this reaches Lord Tyrell, his fury will know no bounds. There will be blood in the streets. <laughs> the night of the yellow chicken, Sassy Muse. You ought to take a worm for your sigil, sir. A chicken is too bold for you. If Mace Tyrell were not even a salt storm's end, how do you imagine he would ever dare attack the guards? When he was done blathering, she said, it must not come to blood, and I mean to see that it does not. I will go to Baylor's Sept myself to speak to Queen Marjorie and the High Septon. Tommen loves them both, I know, and would want me to make peace between them. Peace? Sir Harris dabbed at his brow with a velvet sleeve. If peace is possible, that is very brave of you. Some sort of trial may be necessary, said the Queen to disprove these base calumnies and lies and show the world that our sweet Marjorie is the innocent we all know her to be. Aye, said Merriweather, but this high septon may want to try the queen himself, as the faith once tried men of old. I hope so, Cersei thought. Such a court was not like to look with favour on treasonous queens who spread their legs for singers and profaned the maiden's holy rites to hide their shame. The important thing is to find the truth. I'm sure we all agree, she said. And now, my lord, you must excuse me. I must go see the king. He should not be alone at such a time. Tommen was fishing for cats when his mother returned to him. Dorcas had made him a mouse with scraps of fur and tied it on a long string at the end of an old fishing pole. The kittens loved to chase it, and the boy liked nothing better than jerking it about the floor as they pounced after it. He seemed surprised when Circe gathered him up in her arms and kissed him on his brow. What's that for, mother? Why are you crying? Because you're safe, she wanted to tell him. Because no harm will ever come to you. You are mistaken. A lion never cries. There would be time later to tell him about Marjorie and her cousins. There are some warrants that I need you to sign. For the king's sake, the queen had left the names of the arrest warrants. Tommen signed them blank and pressed his seal into the warm wax happily, as he always did. Afterward, 
she sent him off with Jocelyn Swift. Sir Osfred Kettleblack arrived as the ink was drying. Cersei had written in names herself. Sir Talad the Tall, Jalabazo, Hamish the Harper, Hugh Clifton, Mark Mullendore, Bayard Norcross, Lambert Turnbury, Horace Redwin, Hobber Redwin, and a certain churl named Watt, who called himself the Blue Bard. So many, Sir Osfred shuffled through the warrants, as weary of the words as if they had been roaches crawling across the parchment. None of the kettleblacks could read. Ten. You have six thousand gold cloaks, sufficient for ten, I would think. Some of the clever ones may have fled, if the rumours reach their ears in time. If so, it makes no matter. Their absence only makes them look that much more guilty. Sir Talad is a bit of an oaf, and may try to resist you. See that he does not die before confessing, and do no harm to any of the others. A few may well be innocent. It was important that the Redwind twins be found to have been falsely accused. That would demonstrate the fairness of the judgments against the others. We'll have them all before the sun comes up, Your Grace, Sir Osfred hesitated. There's a crowd gathering outside the door of Baylor Sept. What sort of crowd? Anything unexpected made her wary. She remembered what Lord Waters had said about the riots. I had not considered how the small folk might react to this. Marjorie has been their little pet. How many? A hundred or so. They're shouting for the Eye Septant to release the little queen. We can send them running, if you like. No, let them shout until they're hoarse. It will not sway the sparrow. He only listens to the gods. There was a certain irony in his high holiness, having an angry mob encamped upon his doorstep, since such a mob had raised him to the crystal crown, which he promptly sold. The faith has its own knights now. Let them defend the sept. Oh, and close the city gates as well. No one is to enter or leave King's Landing without my leave, until all this is done and settled. Are you come on, Your Grace? Sir Osfred bowed and went off to find someone to read the warrants to him. By the time the sun went down that day, all of the accused traitors were in custody. Hamish the Harper had collapsed when they came for him, and Sir Taylor the Tall had wounded three gold cloaks before the others overwhelmed him. Cersei ordered that the Redwind twins be given comfortable chambers in a tower. The rest went down to the dungeons. Hamish as having difficulty breathing, Kyburn informed her when he came to call that night. He's calling for a maester. Well, tell him he can have one as soon as he confesses, she thought a moment. He is too old to have been amongst the lovers, but no doubt he was made to play and sing for Marjorie while she was entertaining other men. We will need details. I shall help him to remember them, your grace. The next day Lady Merriweather helped Cersei dress for their visit to the little queen. Nothing too rich or colourful, she said, something suitably devout and drab for the high septum. He's like to make me pray with him. In the end she chose a soft woollen dress that covered her from throat to ankle, with only a few small vines 
embroidered on the bodice, and the sleeves in golden thread to soften the severity of its lines. Even better, Brown would help conceal the dirt if she was made to kneel. Whilst I am comforting my good daughter, you shall speak with the three cousins, she told Hyena. Win Allah if you can, but be careful what you say. The guards may not be the only ones listening. Jamie always said that the hardest part of any battle is just before, waiting for the carnage to begin. When she stepped outside, Cersei saw that the sky was grey and bleak. She could not take the risk of being caught in a downpour, and arriving at Baylor Sept soaked and bedraggled. That meant the litter. For her escort, she took ten Lannister houseguards and Boris Blunt. Marjorie's mob may not have their wit to tell one kettle black from another, she tells her husband, and I cannot have you cutting through the commons. Best we keep you out of sight for a time. As they made their way across King's Landing, Taina had a sudden doubt. This a trail, she said in a quiet voice. What if Marjorie demands that her guilt or innocence be determined by wager of battle? A smile brushed Cersei's lips. As queen, her honor must be defended by a knight of the king's guard. Why, every child in Westeros knows how Prince Aemon the Dragonite championed his sister, Queen Naerys, against Sir Mogul's accusations. With Sir Lora so gravely wounded, though, I fear Prince Aemon's part must fall to one of his sworn brothers. She shrugged. Who, though? Sir Aerys and Sir Balon are far away in dawn. Jamie is off at Riveron, and Sir Osmond is the brother of the man accusing her, which leaves only, oh dear, Boris Blunt and Marin Trant. Lady Taina laughed. Yes, and uh, Sir Marin has been feeling ill of late. Remind me to tell him that when we return to the castle. I shall, my sweet. Taina took her hand and kissed it. I pray that I never offend you. You are terrible when aroused. Any mother would do the same to protect her children, said Cersei. When do you mean to bring the boy of yours to court? Russell, was that his name? He could train with Tommen. That would thrill the boy, I know, but things are so uncertain just now. I thought it best to wait until the danger passed. Soon enough, promised Cersei. Send word to Longtable and have Russell pack his best doublet and his wooden sword. A new young friend will be just the thing to help Tommen forget his loss after Marjorie's little head has rolled. They descended from the litter under Blessed Baylor's statue. The Queen was pleased to see that the bones and filth had been cleaned away. Sir Osfrid had told it true. The crowd was neither as numerous nor as unruly as the sparrows had been. They stood about in small clumps, gazing sullenly at the doors of the great sept, where a line of novice septons had been drawn up with quarterstaffs in their hands. No steel, Cersei noted. That was either very wise or very stupid. She was not sure which. No one made any attempt to hinder her. Small folk and novices alike parted as they passed. Once inside the doors, they were met by three knights in the Hall of Lamps, each clad in the rainbow-striped robes of the warrior's sons. "'I am here to see my good daughter,' Cersei told them. 
His High Holiness has been expecting you. I am Sir Theodan the True, formerly Sir Theodan Wells. If your grace will come with me. The High Sparrow was on his knees as ever. This time he was praying before their father's altar. Nor did he break off his prayer when the Queen approached, but made her wait impatiently until he had finished. Only then did he rise and bow to her. Your Grace, this is a sad day. Oh, very sad. Do we have your leave to speak with Marjorie and her cousins? She chose a meek and humble manner. With this man, that was like to work the best. If that is your wish, come with me afterward, my child. We must pray together, you and I. The little queen had been confined atop one of the great sep's slender towers. Her cell was eight feet long and six feet wide, with no furnishings but a straw-stuffed pallet and a bench for prayer, a ewer of water, a copy of the seven-pointed star, and a candle to read it by. The only window was hardly wider than an arrow-slit. Sassifan Marjorie, barefoot and shivering, clad in the rough-spun shift of another sister. Her locks were all a-tangle, and her feet were filthy. They took my clothes from me, the little queen told her, once they were alone. I wore a gown of ivory lace with fresh-water pearls on the bodice, but the scepters laid their hands on me and stripped me to the skin. My cousins, too. Mega sent one scepter crashing into the candles and set her robe afire. I fear for Allah, though. She went as white as milk, too frightened even to cry. Poor child! There were no chairs, so Cersei sat beside the little queen on her pallet. Lady Tyena has gone to speak with her, to let her know that she has not forgotten. He will not even let me see them, fumed Marjorie. He keeps each of us apart from the others. Until you came, I was allowed no visitors but scepters. One comes every hour to ask if I wish to confess my fornications. They will not even let me sleep. They wake me to demand confessions. Last night I confessed to Scepter Yunella that I wished to scratch her eyes out. A shame you did not do it, Cersei thought. Blinding some poor old Scepter would certainly persuade the high sparrow of your guilt. They are questioning your cousins the same way. Damn them, then, said Marjorie. Damn them all to seven hells. Arla is gentle and shy. How can they do this to her? And Mega? She laughs as loud as a duckside whore, I know. But inside, she's still just a little girl. I love them all, and they love me. If this sparrow thinks to make them lie about me... They stand accused as well, I fear. All three. My cousins? Marjorie paled. Alla and Mega are hardly more than children. Your Grace, this... This is obscene. Will you take us out of here? Oh, would that I could. Her voice was full of sorrow. His High Holiness has his new knights guarding you. To free you, I would need to send the gold cloaks and profane this holy place with killing. Cersei took Marjorie's hand in hers. I have not been idle, though. I have gathered up all those that Sir Osney named as your lovers. They will tell his High Holiness of your innocence, I am certain, and swear to it at your trial. Trial? There was real fear in the girl's voice now. Must there be a trial? How else will you prove your innocence? Cersei gave Marjorie's hand a reassuring squeeze. 
It is your right to decide the manner of the trial, to be sure. You are the queen. The knights of the king's guard are sworn to defend you. Marjorie understood at once. A trial by battle. Loris is hurt, though. Elsewise, he... He has six brothers. Marjorie stared at her, then pulled her hand away. Is that a jape? Boris is a craven. Merrin is old and slow. Your brother is maimed. The other two are off in dawn, and Osmond is a bloody kettle-black. Loris has two brothers, not six. If there's to be a trial by battle, I want Garland as my champion. Sir Garland is not a member of the King's Guard, the Queen said. When the Queen's honour is at issue, law and custom require that her champion be one of the King's sworn seven. The High Septon will insist, I fear. I will make certain of it. Marjorie did not answer at once, but her brown eyes narrowed in suspicion. Blunt or Trant, she said at last. It would have to be one of them. You'd like that, wouldn't you? Osney Kettleblack would cut either one to pieces. Oh, seven hells. Cersei donned a look of hurt. You wrong me, daughter. All I want is your son. All for yourself. He will never have a wife that you don't hate. And I am not your daughter. Thank the gods. Leave me. You are being foolish. I am only here to help you. To help me to my grave. I ask for you to leave. "'Will you make me call my jailers and have you dragged away, you vile, scheming, evil bitch?' Cersei gathered up her skirts and dignity. "'This must be very frightening for you. I shall forgive those words. Here, as at court, one never knew who might be listening. I would be afraid as well in your place. Grand Maester Pycelle has admitted providing you with moon tea and your blue bard.' If I were you, my lady, I would pray to the crone for wisdom, and to the mother for her mercy. I fear you may soon be in dire need of both. Four shriveled scepters escorted the queen down the tower steps. Each of the crones seemed more feeble than the last. When they reached the ground, they continued down, into the heart of Visenya's hill. The steps ended well below the earth, where a line of flickering torches lit a long hallway. She found the High Septon waiting for her in a small seven-sided audience chamber. The room was sparse and plain, with bare stone walls, a rough-hewn table, three chairs, and a prayer bench. The faces of the seven had been carved into the walls. Cersei thought the carvings crude and ugly, but there was a certain power to them, especially about the eyes. Orbs of onyx, Malachite and yellow moonstone that somehow made their faces come alive. You spoke with the queen, the high septon said. She resisted the urge to say, I am the queen. I did. All men sin, even kings and queens, I have sinned myself and been forgiven. Without confession, though, there can be no forgiveness. The queen will not confess. Perhaps she is innocent. Oh, she is not. Holy scepters have examined her and testified that her maidenhead is broken. She has drunk a moon tea to murder the fruit of her fornications in her womb. An anointed knight has sworn upon his sword to having carnal knowledge of her and two of her three cousins. 
Others have lain with her as well, he says, and names, many names, of men both great and humble. My girl cloaks have taken all of them to the dungeons, Cersei assured him. Only one has yet been questioned, a singer called the Blue Bard. What he had to say was disturbing. Even so, I pray that when my good daughter is brought to trial, her innocence may yet be proved. She hesitated. Tommen loves his little queen so much, your holiness, I fear it might be hard for him or his lords to judge her justly. Perhaps the faith should conduct the trial. The high sparrow steepled his thin hands. I have had the self-same thoughts, your grace, just as Magor the Cruel once took the swords from the faith. So Jehiris the Conciliator deprived us of the scales of judgment. Yet who is truly fit to judge a queen, save the seven above, and the god sworn below? A sacred court of seven judges shall sit upon this case. Three shall be of your female sex, a maiden, a mother, and a crone. Who could be more suited to judge the wickedness of women?' That would be for the best. To be sure, Marjorie does have the right to demand that her guilt or innocence be proven by wager of battle. If so, her champion must be one of Tom and Seven. The knights of the King's Guard have served as rightful champions of King and Queen since the days of Aegon the Conqueror. Crown and faith speak as one on this. Cersei covered her face with her hands as if in grief. When she raised her head again, a tear glistened in one eye. These are sad days indeed, she said, but I am pleased to find us so much in agreement. If Tommen were here, I know he would thank you. Together you and I must find the truth. We shall. I must return to the castle. With your leave I will take Sir Osney Kettleblack back with me. The small council want to question him and hear his accusations for themselves. No, said the High Septon. It was only a word, one little word, but to Cersei it felt like a splash of icy water in her face. She blinked, and her certainty flickered just a little. Sir Osney will be held securely, I promise you. He is held securely here. Come, I will show you. Cersei could feel the eyes of the seven staring at her, eyes of jade and malachite and onyx, and a sudden shiver of fear went through her, cold as ice. I am the queen, she told herself, Lord Tywin's daughter. Reluctantly, she followed. Sir Osney was not far. The chamber was dark and closed by a heavy iron door. The high septon produced the key to open it and took a torch down from the wall to light the room within. After you, your grace. Within, Osney Kettleblack hung naked from the ceiling, swinging from a pair of heavy iron chains. He had been whipped, his back and shoulders been laid almost bare, and cuts and welts crisscrossed, his legs and arse as well. The queen could hardly stand to look at him. She turned back to the high septon. What have you done? We have sought after the truth most earnestly. He told you the truth. He came to you of his own free will and confessed his sins. 
Aye, he did that. I've heard many men confess your grace, but seldom have I heard a man so pleased to be so guilty. You whipped him? There can be no penance without pain. No man should spare himself the scourge, as I told Sir Osney. I seldom feel so close to God as when I'm being whipped for mine own wickedness, though my darker sins are no wise near as black as his. B but she sputtered, you preach the mother's mercy. Sir Osney shall taste of that sweet milk in the afterlife. In the seven-pointed star it is written that all sins may be forgiven, but crimes must still be punished. Osney Kettleblack is guilty of treason and murder, and the wages of treason are death. He's just a priest. He cannot do this. It is not for the faith to condemn a man to death, whatever his offence. Whatever his offence. The High Septon repeated the words slowly, weighing them. Strange to say, Your Grace, the more diligently we applied the scourge, the more Sir Osney's offences seemed to change. He would now have us believe that he never touched Marjorie Tyrrell. Is that not so, Sir Osney? Osney Kettleblack opened his eyes. When he saw the Queen standing there before him, he ran his tongue across his swollen lips and said, The wall! You promised me the wall! He is mad, said Circe. You have driven him mad. Sir Osney, said the High Septon, in a firm, clear voice, did you have carnal knowledge of the Queen? Aye. The chains rattled softly as Osney twisted in his shackles. That one there, she's a queen, I fucked. The one sent me to kill the old High Septon. He never had no guards. I'd just come in when he was sleeping and pushed a pillow down across his face. Circe whirled and ran. The high septon tried to seize her, but he was some old sparrow, and she was a lioness of the rock. She pushed him aside and burst through the door, slamming it behind her with a clang. The Kettleblacks. I need the Kettleblacks. I will send in Usfrid with the gold cloaks and Usman with the king's guard. Usney will deny it all. Once they cut him free, and I'll rid myself of this high septon just as I did the other. The four old scepters blocked her way and clutched at her with wrinkled hands. She knocked one to the floor and clawed another across the face and gained the steps. Halfway up, she remembered Tyena Merriweather. It made her stumble, panting. Seven, save me, she prayed. Tyena knows it all. If they take her too and whip her. She ran as far as the sept, but no further. There were women waiting for her there. More septers and silent sisters too, younger than the four old crones below. I am the queen! she shouted, backing away from them. I will have your heads for this. I will have all your heads. Let me pass. Instead, they laid hands upon her. Circe ran to the altar of the mother, but they caught her there, a score of them, and dragged her, kicking up the tower steps. Inside the cell, three silent sisters held her down as a scepter named Scalera stripped her bare. She even took her small clothes. Another scepter tossed a rough-spun shift at her. You cannot do this, the queen kept screaming at them. I am a Lannister, unhand me. My brother will kill you. 
Jamie will slice you open from throat to cunt. Unhand me. I am the queen. The queen should pray, said Scepter Scalera, before they left her naked in the cold, bleak cell. She was not meek Marjorie Tyrrell to don her little shift and submit to such captivity. I will teach them what it means to put a lion in a cage, Cersei thought. She tore the shift into a hundred pieces, found a ewer of water, and smashed it against the wall, then did the same with the chamber pot. When no one came, she began to pound on the door with her fists. Her escort was below, on the plaza. Ten Lannister guardsmen and Sir Boris Blunt. Once they hear, they'll come free me, and we'll drag the bloody high sparrow back to the Red Keep in chains. She screamed and kicked and howled until her throat was raw, at the door and at the window. No one shouted back, nor came to rescue her. The cell began to darken. It was growing cold as well. Cersei began to shiver. How can they leave me like this, without so much as a fire? I am their queen. She began to regret tearing apart the shift they'd given her. There was a blanket on the pallet in the corner, a threadbare thing of thin brown wool. It was rough and scratchy, but it was all she had. Cersei huddled underneath to keep from shivering, and before long she had fallen into an exhausted sleep. The next she knew, a heavy hand was shaking her awake. It was black as pitch inside the cell, and a huge, ugly woman was kneeling over her, a candle in her hand. "'Who are you?' the queen demanded. "'Are you come to set me free?' "'I am set to you, Nella. I've come to hear you tell of all your murders and fornications.' Cersei knocked her hand aside. "'I will have your head. Do not presume to touch me. Get away!' The woman rose. Your grace, I will be back in an hour. Mayhaps by then you'll be ready to confess. An hour, and an hour, and an hour. So passed the longest night that Cersei Lannister had ever known, save for the night of Joffrey's wedding. Her throat was so raw from shouting that she could hardly swallow. The cell turned freezing cold. She had smashed the chamber pot, so she had to squat in a corner to make her water and watch it trickle across the floor. Every time she closed her eyes, Yunella was looming over her again, shaking her, and asking her if she wanted to confess her sins. Day brought no relief. Scepter Moel brought her a bowl of some watery, grey gruel as the sun was coming up. Cersei flung it at her head. When they brought a fresh ewer of water, though, she was so thirsty she had no choice but to drink. When they brought another shift, grey and thin and smelling of mildew, she put it on over her nakedness. And that evening, when Moel appeared again, she ate the bread and fish and demanded wine to wash it down. No wine appeared, only Scepter Eunella making her hourly visit to ask if the queen was ready to confess. What can be happening? Cersei wondered, as the thin slice of sky outside her window began to darken once again. Why has no one come to pry me out of here? She could not believe that the Kettle Blacks would abandon their brother. What was her counsel doing? Cravens and traitors, when I get out of here I will have the lot of them beheaded and find better men to take their place. 
Thrice that day she heard the sound of distant shouting, drifting up from the plaza. But it was Marjorie's name that the mob was calling, not hers. It was near dawn on the second day, and Cersei was licking the last of the porridge from the bottom of the bowl, when her cell door swung open unexpectedly to admit Lord Kyburn. It was all she could do not to throw herself at him. Kyburn, she whispered, oh, gods, I'm so glad to see your face. Take me home. That will not be allowed. You are to be tried before a holy court of seven, for murder, treason, and fornication. Cersei was so exhausted that the words seemed nonsensical to her at first. Tommen, tell me of my son. Is he still king? He is, your grace. He is safe and well, secure within the walls of Magor's Holdfast, protected by the king's guard. He is lonely, though, fretful. He asks for you, and for his little queen. As yet, no one has told him of your, um, your, uh, difficulties? she suggested. What of Marjorie? She is to be tried as well by the same court that conducts your trial. I had the blue bar delivered to the High Septon, as your grace commanded. He is here now, somewhere down below us. My whisperers tell me that they are whipping him, but so far he is still singing the same sweet song we taught him. The same sweet song. Her wits were dull for want of sleep. What his real name is what? If the gods were good, what might die beneath the lash, leaving Marjorie with no way to disprove his testimony? Where are my knights? Sir Osfrid. The High Septon means to kill his brother, Osney. His gold cloaks must— Osfrid Kettleblack no longer commands a city watch. The king has removed him from office and raised the captain of the Dragon Gate in his place. A certain— Humphrey Waters. Cersei was so tired, none of this made any sense. Why would Tommen do that? The boy is not to blame. When his council puts a decree in front of him, he signs his name and stamps it with his seal. My council? Who? Who would do that? Not you. Alas, I have been dismissed from the council although for the nonce they allow me to continue my work with the eunuchs, whisperers. The realm is being ruled by Sir Harry Swift and Grand Maester Pycelle. They have dispatched a raven to Castle Rock, inviting your uncle to return to court and assume the regency. If he means to accept, he had better make haste. Maesterell has abandoned his siege of Storm's End and is marching back to the city with his army, and Randall Tarley is reported on his way down from Maidenpool as well. Has Lord Merriweather agreed to this? Merriweather has resigned his seat on the council and fled back to Longtable with his wife, who was the first to bring us news of the accusations against uh, your grace. They let Tyena go? That was the best thing she had heard since the High Sparrow had said no. Tyena could have doomed her. What of Lord Waters, his ships? If he brings his crews ashore, he should have enough men to— As soon as word of your grace's present troubles reached the river, Lord Waters raised sail, unshipped his oars, and took his fleet to sea. 
Sir Harry's fears he means to join Lord Stannis. Pycelle believes that he is sailing to the Stepstones to set himself up as a pirate. All my lovely Drummonds, Cersei almost laughed. My Lord Father used to say that bastards are treacherous by nature. Would that I had listened. She shivered. I am lost, Kyburn. No, he took her hand. Hope remains. Your Grace has the right to prove your innocence by battle. My Queen, your champion stands ready. There is no man in all the Seven Kingdoms who can hope to stand against him. If you will only give the command. This time she did laugh. It was funny, terribly funny, hideously funny. The guards make japes of all our hopes and plans. I have a champion no man can defeat, but I am forbidden to make use of him. I am the queen, Kyber. My honor can only be defended by a sworn brother of the king's guard. I see. The smile died on Kyburn's face. Your grace, I am at a loss. I do not know how to counsel you. Even in her exhausted, frightened state, the queen knew she dare not trust her fate to a court of sparrows. Nor could she count on Sir Kevin to intervene, after the words that had passed between them at their last meeting. It will have to be a trial by battle. There's no other way. Kyvan, for the love you bear me, I beg you, send a message for me. A raven, if you can, a rider, if not. You must send to Riveron to my brother. Tell him what has happened, and write, write. Yes, your grace? She licked her lips, shivering. Come at once, help me, save me. I need you now as I have never needed you before. I love you, I love you, I love you. Come at once. As you command. I love you thrice. Thrice. She had to reach him. He will come. I know he will. He must. Jamie is my only hope. My queen, said Kyburn, have you forgotten? Sir Jamie has no sword hand. If he should champion you and lose, we will leave this world together, as we once came into it. He will not lose. Not Jamie. Not with my life at stake. Jamie. The new lord of Riveron was so angry that he was shaking. We have been deceived, he said. This man had played us false. Pink spittle flew from his lips as he jabbed a finger at Edmure Tully. I will have his head off. I rule in River Run by the king's own decree. Emmon, said his wife, the Lord Commander knows about the king's decree. Sir Edmure knows about the king's decree. The stable boys know about the king's decree. I am the Lord, and I will have his head. For what crime? Thin as he was, Edmure still looked more lordly than Emmon Frey. He wore a quilted doublet of red wool with a leaping trout embroidered on its chest. His boots were black, his breeches blue. His auburn hair had been washed and barbered, his red beard neatly trimmed. I did all that was asked of me. Oh? Jamie Lannister had not slept since River Run had opened its gates, and his head was pounding. 
I do not recall asking you to let Sir Brynden escape. You required me to surrender my castle, not my uncle. Am I to blame if your men let him slip through their siege lines? Jamie was not amused. Where is he? he said, letting his irritation show. His men had searched River Run thrice over, and Brynden Tully was nowhere to be found. He never told me where he meant to go. And you never asked? How did he get out? Fish swim. Even black ones, Edmure smiled. Jamie was sorely tempted to crack him across the mouth with his golden hand. A few missing teeth would put an end to his smiles. For a man who was going to spend the rest of his life a prisoner, Edmure was entirely too pleased with himself. We have oubliettes beneath the castle rock that fit a man as tight as a suit of armor. You can't turn in them, or sit, or reach down to your feet when the rats start gnawing at your toes. Would you care to reconsider that answer? Lord Edmure's smile went away. He gave me your word that I would be treated honorably, as befits my rank. So you shall, said Jamie. Nobler knights than you have died whimpering in those oubliettes, and many a high lord, too, even a king or two, if I recall my history. Your wife can have the one beside you, if you like. I would not want to part you. He did swim, said Edmure sullenly. He had the same blue eyes as his sister, Caitlin, and Jamie saw the same loathing there that he had once seen in hers. We raised the portcullis on the water gate, not all the way, just three feet or so, enough to leave a gap under the water, though the gate still appeared to be closed. My uncle is a strong swimmer. After dark he pulled himself beneath the spikes, and he slipped under our boom the same way, no doubt. A moonless night, bored guards, a black fish in a black river, floating quietly downstream. If Rottiger or you or any of their men heard a splash, they would put it down to a turtle or a trout. Edmure had waited most of the day before hauling down the dire wolf of Stark in token of surrender. In the confusion of the castle changing hands, it had been the next morning before Jamie had been informed that the blackfish was not among the prisoners. He went to the window and gazed out over the river. It was a bright autumn day, and the sun was shining on the waters. By now, the blackfish could be ten leagues downstream. You have to find him, insisted Emmonfrey. He'll be found. Jamie spoke with a certainty he did not feel. I have hounds and hunters sniffing after him even now. Sir Adam Marbrandt was leading the search on the south side of the river, Sir Dermot of the Rainwood on the north. He had considered enlisting the river lords as well, but Vance and Piper and their ilk were more like to help the blackfish escape than clap him into fetters. All in all, he was not hopeful. He may elude us for a time, he said, but eventually he must surface. What if he should try and take my castle back? You have a garrison of two hundred. Too large a garrison, in truth, but Lord Emmon had an anxious disposition. At least he would have no trouble feeding them. The blackfish had left River Ron amply provisioned, just as he had claimed. After the trouble, Sir Brynden took to leave us. I doubt that he'll come skulking back, unless it is 
at the head of a band of outlaws. He did not doubt that the blackfish meant to continue the fight. This is your seat, Lady Jenner told her husband. It is for you to hold it. If you cannot do that, put it to the torch and run back to the rock. Lord Emmon rubbed his mouth. His hand came away red and slimy from the sour leaf. And to be sure, River Ron is mine, and no man shall ever take it from me. He gave Edmure Tollio one last suspicious look as Lady Jenna drew him from the solar. Is there any more that you would care to tell me? Jamie asked Edmure when the two of them were alone. This was my father, Solar, said Tolly. He ruled the Riverlands from here, wisely and well. He liked to sit beside that window. The light was good there, and whenever he looked up from his work, he could see the river. When his eyes were tired, he would have Cat read to him. Littlefinger and I built a castle out of wooden blocks once, there beside the door. <laughs> you will never know how sick it makes me to see you in this room, Kingslayer. You will never know how much I despise you. He was wrong about that. I have been despised by better men than you, Edmure. Jamie called for a guard. Take his lordship back to his tower and see that he's fed. The lord of River Run went silently. On the morrow he would start west. Sir Forley Presta would command his escort a hundred men, including twenty knights. Best double that. Lord Beric may try to free Edmure before they reach the Golden Tooth. Jamie did not want to have to capture Tolly for a third time. He returned to Huster Tolly's chair, pulled over the map of the trident, and flattened it beneath his golden hand. Where would I go if I were the blackfish? Lord Commander! A guardsman stood in the open door. Lady Westling and her daughter are without, as you commanded. Jamie shoved the map aside. Show them in. At least the girl did not vanish, too. Jane Westling had been Rob Stark's queen, the girl who cost him everything. With a wolf in her belly, she could have proved more dangerous than the blackfish. She did not look dangerous. Jane was a willowy girl, no more than fifteen or sixteen, more awkward than graceful. She had narrow hips, breasts the size of apples, a mop of chestnut curls, and the soft brown eyes of a doe. Pretty enough for a child, Jamie decided, but not a girl to lose a kingdom for. Her face was puffy, and there was a scab on her forehead, half hidden by a lock of brown hair. What happened there? he asked her. The girl turned her head away. Oh, it is nothing, insisted her mother a stern-faced woman in a gown of green velvet. A necklace of gold seashells looped about her long, thin neck. She would not give up the little crown the rebel gave her, and when I tried to take it from her head, the willful child fought me. It was mine, James sobbed. You had no right. Rob had it made for me. I loved him. Her mother made to slap her, but Jamie stepped between them. Uh, none of that. He warned Lady Sybil. Sit down, both of you. The girl curled up in her chair like a frightened animal, but her mother sat stiffly, her head high. Will you have wine? He asked them. The girl did not answer. No, thank you, said her mother. As you will. 
Jamie turned to the daughter. I'm sorry for your loss. The boy had courage. I'll give him that. There is a question I must ask you. Are you carrying his child, my lady? Jane burst from her chair and would have fled the room if the guard at the door had not seized her by the arm. She is not, said Lady Sybil, as her daughter struggled to escape. I made certain of that, as your lord father bid me. Jamie nodded. Tywin Lannister was not a man to overlook such details. Unhand the girl, he said. I'm done with her for now. As Jane fled sobbing down the stairs, he considered her mother. House Westerling has its pardon, and your brother Rolf has been made Lord of Castamere. What else would you have of us? Your lord father promised me worthy marriages for Jane and her younger sister. Lords or heirs, he swore to me, not younger sons nor household knights. Lords or heirs, to be sure. <laughs> the Westlings were an old house and proud, but Lady Sybil herself had been born a spicer from a line of up-jumped merchants. Her grandmother had been some sort of half-mad witch-woman from the East, he seemed to recall, and the Westlings were impoverished. Younger sons would have been the best that Sybil Spice's daughters could have hoped for in the ordinary course of events, but a nice fat pot of Lannister gold would make even a dead rebel's widow look attractive to some lord. "'You'll have your marriages,' said Jamie, "'but Jane must wait two full years before she weds again. If the girl took another husband too soon, and had a child by him, inevitably there would come whispers that the young wolf was the father. I have two sons as well, Lady Westling reminded him. Rolam is with me, but Reynald was a knight and went with the rebels to the twins. If I'd known what was to happen there, I would never have allowed that. There was a hint of reproach in her voice. Reynald knew naught of any of the understanding with your lord father. He may be a captive at the twins. Or he may be dead. Walter Frey would not have known of the understanding either. I will make inquiries. If Sir Reynold is still a captive, we'll pay his ransom for you. Mention was made of a match for him as well, a bride from Castle Rock. Your lord father said that Reynald should have the joy of him, if all went as we hoped. Even from the grave. Lord Tywin's dead hand moves us all. Joy is my late uncle Geryon's natural daughter. A betrothal can be arranged, if that is your wish, but any marriage will need to wait. Joy was nine or ten when I last saw her. His natural daughter? Lady Sybil looked as if she had swallowed a lemon. You want a westerling to wed a bastard? No more than I want Joy to marry the son of some scheming turncloak bitch. She deserves better. Jamie would happily have strangled the woman with her seashell necklace. Joy was a sweet child, albeit a lonely one. Her father had been Jamie's favourite uncle. Your daughter is worth ten of you, my lady. You'll leave with Edmure and Sir Forley on the morrow. Until then, you would do well to stay out of my sight. He shouted for a guardsman, and Lady Sybil went off with her lips pressed primly together. 
Jamie had to wonder how much Lord Gowan knew about his wife's scheming. How much do we men ever know? When Edmure and the Westlings departed, four hundred men rode with them. Jamie had double the escort again at the last moment. He rode with them a few miles to talk with Sir Forley Prester, though he bore a bull's head upon his surcoat and horns upon his helm, Sir Forley could not have been less bovine. He was a short, spare, hard-bitten man. With his pinched nose, bald pate, and grizzled brown beard, he looked more like an innkeep than a knight. We don't know where the blackfish is, Jamie reminded him, but if he can cut Edmure free, he will. That will not happen, my lord. Like most innkeeps, Sir Forlier was no man's fool. Scouts and outriders will screen our march, and will fortify our camps by night. I've picked ten men to stay with Tully day and night, my best lung bowman. If he should ride so much as a foot off the road, they will lose so many shafts at him that his own mother would take him for a goose. Good. Jamie would as lief have Tolly reach Castle Rock safely, but better dead than fled. Best keep some archers near Lord Westerling's daughter as well. Sir Forley seemed taken back. Go and go. She's the young wolf's widow, Jamie finished, and twice as dangerous as Edmure if she were ever to escape us. As you say, my lord, she will be watched. Jamie had to canter past the Westerlings as he rode down the column on his way back to Riveron. Lord Gowan nodded gravely as he passed, but Lady Sybil looked through him with eyes like chips of ice. Jane never saw him at all. The widow rode with downcast eyes, huddled beneath a hooded cloak. Underneath its heavy folds her clothes were finely made, but torn. She ripped them herself. As a mark of mourning, Jamie realized. That could not have pleased her mother. He found himself wondering if Cersei would tear her gown, if she should ever hear that he was dead. He did not go straight back to the castle, but crossed the tumblestone once more to call on Edwin Frey and discuss the transfer of his great-grandfather's prisoners. The Frey host had begun to break up within hours of River Run surrender as Lord Walder's bannermen and free-riders pulled up stakes to make for home. The Freys, who still remained, were striking camp, but he found Edwin with his bastard uncle in the latter's pavilion. The two of them were huddled over a map, arguing heatedly, but they broke off when Jamie entered. Lord Commander, River said with cold courtesy, but Edwin blurted out, My father's blood is in your hands, sir. That took Jamie a bit aback. How so? You were the one who sent him home, were you not? Someone had to. Has some ill befallen Sir Ryman? Hanged with all his party, said Walder Rivers. The outlaws caught them two leagues south of Fair Market. Dondarian? Him, or Thoris? Or this woman, Stoneheart? Jamie frowned. Ryman Frey had been a fool, a craven, and a sot and no one was like to miss him much, least of all his fellow phrase. If Edwin's dry eyes were any clue, even his own sons would not mourn him long. Still, these outlaws are growing bold, 
If they dare hang Lord Walder's heir, not a day's ride from the twins. How many men did Sir Ryman have with him? he asked. Three knights and a dozen men at arms, said Rivers. It's almost as if they knew that he would be returning to the twins and with a small escort. Edwin's mouth twisted. My brother had a hand in this, I'll wager. He allowed the outlaws to escape after they murdered Merritt and Peter. And this is why. With our father dead, there's only me left between Black Walder and the twins. You have no proof of this, said Walder Rivers. I do not need proof. I know my brother. Your brother is at Seaguard. Rivers insisted. How could he have known that Sir Ryman was returning to the twins? Someone told him, said Edwin, in a bitter tone. He has his spies in our camp, you can be sure. And you have yours at Seaguard. Jamie knew that the enmity between Edwin and Blackwater ran deep, but cared not a fig which of them succeeded their great-grandfather as Lord of the Crossing. If you will pardon me for uh, intruding on your grief, he said in a dry tone, we have other matters to consider. When you return to the twins, please inform Lord Walder that King Tommen requires all the captives you took at the Red Wedding. Sir Walder frowned. These prisoners are valuable, sir. His grace would not ask them if they were worthless. Frey and Rivers exchanged a look. Edwin said, My Lord Grandfather will expect a recompense for these prisoners. And he'll have it, as soon as I grow a new hand, thought Jamie. We all have expectations, he said mildly. Tell me, is a Sir Reynold Westling amongst these captains? The Knight of Seashells, Edwin sneered. You'll find that one feeding the fish at the bottom of the Green Fork. He was in the yard when our men came to put the direwolf down, said Walter Rivers. Warden demanded his sword, and he gave it over meekly enough. But when the cross bowman began feathering the wolf, he seized Warren's axe and cut the monster loose of the net they'd thrown over him. Warren says he took a quarrel in his shoulder and another in the gut, but still managed to reach the wall walk and throw himself into the river. He left a trail of blood on the steps, said Edwin. Did you find his corpse afterward? asked Jamie. We found a thousand corpses afterward. Once they've spent a few days in the river, they all look much the same. I've heard the same is true of hanged men, said Jamie, before he took his leave. By the next morning little remained of the fray encampment, but flies, horse dung, and Sir Ryman's gallows standing forlorn beside the tumblestone. His cars wanted to know what should be done with it, and with the siege equipment he had built, his rams and sows and towers and trebuchets. Devon proposed that they drag it all to Raventree and use it there. Jamie told him to put everything to the torch, starting with the gallows. I mean to deal with Lord Titus myself. It won't require a siege tower. Devon grinned through his bushy beard. Single combat, cause <laughs> scarce seems fair. Titus is an old grey man. An old grey man with two hands. That night he and Sir Ilian fought for three hours. It was one of his better nights. 
If they had been in earnest, pain only would have killed him twice. Half a dozen deaths were more the rule, and some nights were worse than that. If I keep at this for another year, I may be as good as Peck, Jamie declared, and Sir Ilian made that clacking sound that meant he was amused. Come, let's drink some more of Hoster Tolly's good red wine. Wine had become a part of their nightly ritual. Sir Ian made the perfect drinking companion. He never interrupted, never disagreed, never complained, or asked for favours, or told long, pointless stories. All he did was drink and listen. I should have the tongues removed from all my friends, said Jamie, as he filled their cups, and from my kin as well. Ah, a silent Circe would be sweet, though I'd miss her tongue when we kissed. He drank. The wine was a deep red, sweet and heavy. It warmed him going down. I can't remember the first time we kissed. It was innocent at first. Until it wasn't. He finished the wine and set his cup aside. Tyrion once told me that most whores will not kiss you. They fuck you blind, he said, but you'll never feel their lips on yours. Do you think my sister kisses Kettleback? Sir Ilian did not answer. I don't think it would be proper for me to slay mine own sworn brother. What I need to do is geld him and send him to the wall. That's what they did with Lucamore the Lusty. Sir Osmond may not take kindly to the gelding, to be sure, and there are his brothers to consider. Brothers can be dangerous. After Aegon the Unworthy put Sir Terence Toyne to death for sleeping with his mistress, Toyne's brothers did their best to kill him. Their best was not quite good enough, thanks to the Dragon Knight, but it was not for want of trying. It's written down in the White Book, all of it, save what to do with Cersei. Sir Ilian drew a finger across his throat. No, said Jamie, Tommen has lost a brother, and the man he thought of is his father. If I were to kill his mother, he would hate me for it, and that sweet little wife of his would find a way to turn that hatred to the benefit of High Garden. Sir Ilian smiled, in a way Jamie did not like. An ugly smile, an ugly soul. You talk too much, he told the man. The next day, Sir Dermot of the Rainwood returned to the castle empty-handed. When asked what he had found, he answered, Wolves! Hundreds of the bloody beggars! He'd lost two centuries to them. The wolves had come out of the dark to savage them. Armed men, in mail and boiled leather, and yet the beasts had no fear of them. Before he died, Jate said the pack was led by a she-wolf of monstrous size. A dire-wolf! To hear him tell it. The wolves got in amongst our horse lions, too. The bloody bastards killed my favourite bay. A ring of fires around your camp might keep them off, said Jamie, though he wondered. Could Sir Dermot's direwolf be the same beast that had mauled Joffrey near the crossroads? Wolves or no, Sir Dermot took fresh horses and more men, and went out again the next morning to resume the search for Brynden Tully. That same afternoon the lords of the Triton came to Jamie, asking his leave to return to their own lands. He granted it. Lord Piper also wanted to know about his son, Mark. All the captives will be ransomed, Jamie promised. 
As the river lords took their leave, Lord Carl Vance lingered to say, Lord Jamie, you must go to Raventree. So long as it is Jonas at his gates, Titus will never yield. And I know he will bend his knee for you. Jamie thanked him for his counsel. Strongbore was the next to depart. He wanted to return to Derry as he'd promised and fight the outlaws. We rode a course half the bloody realm, and for what? So you can make Edmure Tully piss his britches? There's no song in that. I need a fight. I want the arm, Jamie. Him or the martial lord. The hound's head is yours, if you can take it, Jamie said. But Beric Dondarrion is to be captured alive, so he can be brought back to King's Landing. A thousand people need to see him die, or else he won't stay dead. Strongbow grumbled at that, but finally agreed. The next day he departed with his squire and men-at-arms, plus beardless John Betley, who had decided that hunting outlaws was preferable to returning to his famously homely wife. Supposedly she had the beard that Betley lacked. Jamie still had the garrison to deal with. To a man they swore they knew nothing of Sir Brynden's plans or where he might have gone. They are lying, Emmon Frey insisted. But Jamie thought not. If you share your plans with no one, no one can betray you, he pointed out. Lady Jenner suggested that a few of the men might be put to the question. He refused. I gave Edmure my word that if he yielded, the garrison could leave unharmed. And it was chivalrous of you, his aunt said, but it's strength that's needed here, not chivalry. Huh. Ask Edmure how chivalrous I am, thought Jamie. Ask him about the trebuchet. Somehow he did not think the maesters were like to confuse him with Prince Aemon the Dragonite when they wrote their histories. Still, he felt curiously content. The war was all but won. Dragonstone had fallen, and Storm's End would soon enough. He could not doubt, and Stannis was welcome to them all. The Northmen would love him no more than the Storm Lords had. If Roose Bolton did not destroy him, Winter would. And he had done his own part here at Riveron, without actually ever taking up arms against the Starks or Tullys. Once he found the Blackfish— he would be free to return to King's Landing, where he belonged. My place is with my king, with my son. Would Tommen want to know that? The truth could cost the boy his throne. Would you sooner have a father or a chair, lad? Jamie wished he knew the answer. Oh, he does like stamping papers with his seal. The boy might not even believe him, to be sure. Cersei would say it was a lie. My sweet sister, the deceiver, he would need to find some way to winkle Tommen from her clutches before the boy became another Joffrey, and whilst at that he should find the lad a new small council too. If Cersei can be put aside, Sir Kevin may agree to serve as Tommen's hand, and if not, well, the Seven Kingdoms did not lack for able men, Forley pressed her would make a good choice, or Roland Craighall, 
If someone other than a Westerman was needed to appease the Tyrells, there was always Mathis Rowan, or even Peter Baelish. Littlefinger was as amiable as he was clever, but too low-born to threaten any of the great lords, with no swords of his own. The perfect hand. The Tully garrison departed the next morning, stripped of all their arms and armour. Each man was allowed three days' food and the clothing on his back, after he swore a solemn oath never to take up arms against Lord Emmon or House Lannister. "'If you're fortunate, one man in ten may keep that vow,' Lady Jenna said. "'Good. I'd sooner face nine men than ten. The tenth might have been the one who would have killed me.' "'The other nine will kill you just as quickly.' Better than to die in bed, or on the privy. Two men did not choose to depart with the others. Sir Desmond Grell, Lord Huster's old master-at-arms, prepared to take the black. So did Sir Robin Ryger, River Run's captain of guards. This castle has been my home for forty years said Grell. You say I'm free to go, but where? I'm too old and too stout to make a hedge knight, but men are always welcome at the wall. As you wish, said Jamie, though it was a bloody nuisance. He allowed them to keep their arms and armour, and assigned a dozen of Gregor Clegane's men to escort the two of them to Maidenball. The command he gave to Raffert, the one they called the Sweetling. See to it that the prisoners reach Maidenpool unspoiled, he told the man. Or what Sir Gregor did to the goat will seem a jolly lark compared to what I'll do to you. More days passed. Lord Emmon assembled all of River Run in the yard, Lord Edmure's people and his own, and spoke to them for close on three hours about what would be expected of them now that he was their lord and master. From time to time he waved his parchment, as stable boys and serving girls and smiths listened in sullen silence, and a light rain fell down upon them all. The singer was listening too, the one that Jamie had taken from Sir Ryman Frey. Jamie came upon him standing inside an open door where it was dry. His lordship should have been a singer, the man said. This speech is longer than a marcher's ballad. And I don't think he stopped for breath. Jamie had to laugh. Lord Emmon does not need to breathe, so long as he can chew. Are you going to make a song of it? Ah, a funny one. I'll call it Talking to the Fish. Just don't play it when my aunt can hear. Jamie had never paid the man much mind before. He was a small fellow, garbed in ragged green breeches and a frayed tunic of a lighter shade of green, with brown leather patches covering the holes. His nose was long and sharp, his smile big and loose. Thin brown hair fell to his collar, snaggled and unwashed. Fifty, if he's a day, thought Jamie. A hedge harp? And hard used by life. Weren't you Sir Ryman's man when I found you? he asked. Only for a fortnight. I would have expected you to depart with the phrase. <laughs> that one up there's a fray, the singer said, nodding at Lord Emmon. And this castle seems a nice snug place to pass a winter. White smile what? 
went home with Sir Forley, so I thought I'd see if I could win his place. What's got that high, sweet voice that the likes of me can't hope to match? But I know twice as many bawdy songs as he does. <laughs> Begging my lord's pardon. You should get on famously with my aunt, said Jamie. If you hope to winter here, see that your playing pleases Lady Jenner. She's the one that matters. Not you? <laughs> my place is with the king. I shall not stay here long. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that, my lord. I know better songs than the reigns of Castamere. <laughs> I could have played you, uh, oh, all sorts of things. Some other time, said Jamie. Do you have a name? Tom of Seven Streams, if it please, my lord. The singer doffed his hat. Most call me Thomas Evans, though. Sing sweetly, Thomas Evans. That night he dreamt that he was back in the great sept of Baylor, still standing vigil over his father's corpse. The sept was still and dark, until a woman emerged from the shadows and walked slowly to the bier. Sister? he said. But it was not Cersei. She was all in grey, a silent sister. A hood and veil concealed her features, but he could see the candles burning in the green pools of her eyes. Sister, he said, what would you have of me? His last word echoed up and down the sept, me, 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 me. I am not your sister, Jamie. She raised a pale, soft hand and pushed her hood back. Have you forgotten me? Can I forget someone I never knew? The words caught in his throat. He did know her, but it had been so long. Will you forget your own Lord Father, too? I wonder if you ever knew him truly. Her eyes were green, her hair spun gold. He could not tell how old she was. Fifteen, he thought, or fifty. She climbed the steps to stand above the bier. He could never abide being laughed at. That was the thing he hated most. Who are you? He had to hear her say it. Question is, who are you? This is a dream, is it? She smiled sadly. Count your hands, child. One. One hand clasped tight around the sword-hilt. Only one. In my dreams, I always have two hands. He raised his right arm and stared uncomprehending at the ugliness of his stump. We all dream of things we cannot have. Tywin dreamed that his son would be a great knight, that his daughter would be a queen. He dreamed they would be so strong and brave and beautiful that no one would ever laugh at them. I am a knight, he told her, and Cersei is a queen. A tear rolled down her cheek. The woman raised her hood again and turned her back on him. Jamie called after her, but already she was moving away, her skirt whispering lullabies as it brushed across the floor. Don't leave me! He wanted to call, but of course she'd left them long ago. He woke in darkness, shivering. The room had grown cold as ice. Jamie flung aside the covers with the stump of his sword hand. The fire in the hearth had died, he saw. 
and the windows had blown open. He crossed the pitch-dark chamber to fumble with the shutters, but when he reached the window, his bare foot came down in something wet. Jamie recoiled, startled for a moment. His first thought was of blood, but blood would not have been so cold. It was snow, drifting through the window. Instead of closing the shutters, he threw them wide. The yard below was covered by a thin white blanket growing thicker even as he watched. The merlons on the battlements wore white cowls. The flakes fell silently, a few drifting in the window to melt upon his face. Jamie could see his own breath. Snow in the Riverlands? If it was snowing here, it could well be snowing on Lennersport as well and on King's Landing. Winter is marching south, and half our granaries are empty. Any crops still in the field were doomed. There would be no more plantings, no more hopes of one last harvest. He found himself wondering what his father would do to feed the realm, before he remembered that Tywin Lannister was dead. When morning broke, the snow was ankle-deep, and deeper in the godswood, where drifts had piled up under the trees. Squires, stable-boys, and high-born pages turned to children again, under its cold white spell, and fought a snowball war up and down the wards and all along the battlements. Jamie heard them laughing. There was a time, not long ago, when he might have been out making snowballs with the best of them, to fling at Tyrion when he waddled by or slipped down the back of Cersei's gown. You need two hands to make a decent snowball, though. There was a rap upon his door. See who that is, Peck. It was River Run's old maester, with a message clutched in his lined and wrinkled hand. Vyman's face was as pale as the new-fallen snow. I know, Jamie said, there has been a white raven from the citadel. Winter has come. No, my lord, the bird was from King's Landing. I took the liberty. I did not know. He held the letter out. Jamie read it in the window seat, bathed in the light of that cold white morning. Kyban's words were terse and to the point. Circe's fevered and fervent. Come at once, she said. Help me. Save me. I need you now, as I have never needed you before. I love you. I love you. I love you. Come at once. Vyman was hovering by the door, waiting, and Jamie sensed that Peck was watching too. Does my lord wish to answer? the maester asked, after a long silence. A snowflake landed on the letter. As it melted, the ink began to blur. Jamie rolled the parchment up again, as tight as one hand would allow, and handed it to Peck. No, he said. Put this in the fire. Samwell the most perilous part of the journey was the last. The Red Wind Straits were swarming with longships, as they had been warned in Tyrosh. With the main strength of the Arbor's fleet on the far side of Westeros, 
The Iron Man had sacked Ryamsport and taken Vinetown and Starfish Harbour for their own, using them as bases to prey on shipping bound for Old Town. Thrice longships were sighted by the crow's nest. Two were well astern, however, and the cinnamon wind soon outdistanced them. The third appeared near sunset, to cut them off from whispering sound. When they saw her oars rising and falling, lashing the copper waters white, Kojo Mo sent her archers to the castles with their great bows of golden heart that could send a shaft farther and truer than even Dornish you. She waited till the longship came within two hundred yards before she gave the command to loose. Sam loosed with them, and this time he thought his arrow reached the ship. One volley was all it took. The longship veered south in search of tamer prey. A deep blue dusk was falling as they entered Whispering Sound. Gillier stood beside the prow with the babe, gazing up at a castle on the cliffs. Three towers, Sam told her, the seat of House Costain. Etched against the evening stars with torchlight flickering from its windows, the castle made a splendid sight. But he was sad to see it. Their voyage was almost at its end. It's very tall, said Jilly. Wait till you see the high tower. Della's babe began to cry. Jilly pulled open her tunic and gave the boy her breast. She smiled as he nursed and stroked his soft brown hair. She has come to love this one as much as the one she left behind, Sam realized. He hoped that the gods would be kind to both of the children. The iron men had penetrated even to the sheltered waters of Whispering Sound. Come morning, as the cinnamon wind continued on toward Old Town, she began to bump up against corpses, drifting down to the sea. Some of the bodies carried compliments of crows, who rose into the air complaining noisily when the swanship disturbed their grotesquely swollen rafts. Scorched fields and burned villages appeared on the banks, and the shallows and sandbars were strewn with shattered ships. Merchanters and fishing boats were the most common, but they saw abandoned longships too, and the wreckage of two big drummonds. One had been burned down to the waterline, whilst the other had a gaping splintered hole in her side where her hull had been rammed. Battle here, said Zander. Not so long. Who would be so mad as to raid this close to Old Town? Zondo pointed to a half-sunken longship in the shallows. The remnants of a banner drooped from her stern, smoke-stained and ragged. The charge was one Sam had never seen before, a red eye with a black pupil beneath a black iron crown supported by two crows. "'Whose banner is that?' Sam asked. Zondo only shrugged. The next day was cold and misty. As the cinnamon wind was creeping past another plundered fishing village, a war galley came sliding from the fog, stroking slowly toward them. Huntress was the name she bore, behind a figurehead of a slender maiden clad in leaves and brandishing a spear. A heartbeat later, 
Two smaller galleys appeared on either side of her, like a pair of matched greyhounds stalking at their master's heels. To Sam's relief, they flew King Tommen's stag and lion banner above the stepped white tower of Old Town with its crown of flame. The captain of the Huntress was a tall man in a smoke-gray cloak with a border of red satin flames. He brought his galley in alongside the cinnamon wind, raised his oars, and shouted that he was coming aboard. As his crossbowmen and Kojomo's archers eyed each other across the narrow band of water, he crossed over with half a dozen knights, gave Kahuromo a nod, and asked to see his holes. Father and daughter conferred briefly, then agreed. Ah, my apologies, the captain said, when his inspection was complete. It grieves me that honest men must suffer such discourtesy, but sooner that than iron men in Old Town. Only a fortnight ago, some of those bloody bastards captured a Tyroshi merchantman in the Straits. They killed her crew, donned their clothes, and used the dyes they found to color their whiskers half a hundred colors. Once inside the walls, they meant to set the port ablaze and open a gate from within, whilst we fought the fire. It might have worked, but they ran afoul of the Lady of the Tower, and her oarsmaster has a Tyrushi wife. When he saw all the green and purple beards, he hailed them in the tongue of Tyrush, <laughs> and not one of them had the words to hail him back. Sam was aghast. They cannot mean to raid Old Town. The captain of the Huntress gave him a curious look. These are no mere reavers. The iron men have always raided where they could. They would strike sudden from the sea, carry off some gold and girls, and sail away. But there were seldom more than one or two longships, and never more than half a dozen. Hundreds of their ships afflict us now, sailing out of the Shield Islands and some of the rocks around the arbor. They have taken Stone Crab Key, the Isle of Pigs, and the Mermaid's Palace, and their other nests on Horseshoe Rock and Bastard's Cradle. Without Lord Redwin's fleet, we lack the ships to come to grips with them. What is Lord Itow doing? Sam blurted. My father always said he was as wealthy as the Lannisters, and could command thrice as many swords as any of High Garden's other bannermen. Uh, more, if he sweeps the cobblestones, the captain said, but swords are no good against the iron men, unless the men who wield them know how to walk on water. The eye tower must be doing something. Uh, to be sure, Lord Leighton's locked atop his tower, with the mad maid consulting books of spills. Might be he'll raise an army from the deeps, or not. Baylor's building galleys. Gunther has charge of the harbor. Garth is training new recruits, and Humphrey's gone to lease to hire sail sails. If he can winkle a proper fleet out of his whore of a sister, we can start paying back the iron men with some of their own coin. Ah, till then, the best we can do is guard the sound and wait for the bitch queen in King's Landing to let Lord Paxter off his leash. The bitterness of the captain's final words shocked Sam as much as the things he'd said. If King's Landing loses Old Town and the harbour, the whole realm will fall to pieces, he thought 
as he watched the huntress and her sisters moving off. It made him wonder if even Horn Hill was truly safe. The Tarly lands lay inland amidst the thickly wooded foothills, a hundred leagues northeast of Old Town, and a long way from any coast. They should be well beyond the reach of ironmen and longships. Even with his lord father off fighting in the riverlands, and the castle lightly held. The young wolf had no doubt thought the same was true of Winterfell, until the night that Theon Turncloak scaled his walls. Sam could not bear the thought that he might have brought Gilly and her baby all this long way to keep them out of harm, only to abandon them in the midst of war. He wrestled with his doubts through the rest of the voyage, wondering what to do. He could keep Gilly with him in Old Town, he supposed. The city's walls were much more formidable than those of his father's castle, and had thousands of men to defend them, as opposed to the handful Lord Randall would have left at Horn Hill when he marched to Highgarden to answer his liege lord's summons. If he did, though, he would need to hide her somehow. The Citadel did not permit its novices to keep wives or paramours, at least not openly. Besides, if I stay with Jilly very much longer, how will I ever find the strength to leave her? He had to leave her, or desert. I said the words, Sam reminded himself. If I desert, it will mean my head. And how will that help Jilly? He considered begging Kojo Mo and her father to take the wilding girl with them to the Summer Isles. That path had its perils too, however. When the cinnamon wind left O-Town, she would need to cross the Red Wind Straits again, and this time she might not be so fortunate. What if the wind died, and the summer islanders found themselves becalmed? If the tales he'd heard were true, Jilly would be carried off for a thrall or salt wife, and the babe was like to be chucked into the sea as a nuisance. It has to be Ornhill, Sam finally decided. Once we reach Old Town, I'll hire a wagon and some horses and take her there myself. That way he could make certain of the castle and its garrison, and if any part of what he saw or heard gave him pause, he could just turn around and bring Jilly back to Old Town. They reached Old Town on a cold, damp morning, when the fog was so thick that the beacon of the high tower was the only part of the city to be seen. A boom stretched across the harbour linking two dozen rotted hulks. Just behind it stood a line of warships, anchored by three big drummonds and Lord Hightower's towering four-deck bannership, the honour of Old Town. Once again the cinnamon wind had to submit to inspection. This time it was Lord Leighton's son, Gunther, who came aboard, in a cloth of silver cloak and a suit of grey enamel scales. Sir Gunther had studied at the Citadel for several years and spoke the summer tongue, so he and Kahuromo adjoined to the captain's cabin for a private conference. Sam used the time to explain his plans to Jilly. First, the Citadel, to present John's letters and tell them of Master Eamon's death. I expect the archmaesters will send a cart for his body. "'Then I will arrange for horses and a wagon to take you to my mother at Horn Hill. "'I will be back as soon as I can, but it may not be until the morrow.' "'The morrow,' she repeated, and gave him a kiss for luck. "'At length, 
Sir Gunther re-emerged and gave the signal for the chain to be opened so the cinnamon wind could slip through the boom to dock. Sam joined Kojo Mo and three of her archers near the gangplank as the swan ship was tying up. The summer islanders resplendent. In the feathered cloaks they only wore ashore. He felt a shabby thing beside them in his baggy blacks, faded cloak, and salt-stained boots. How long will you remain in port? Two days, ten days, who can say? However long it takes to empty our holes and fill them again. Kojo grinned. My father must visit the Greymasters as well. He has books to sell. Can Jilly stay aboard till I return? Gillie can stay as long as she likes. She pokes Sam in the belly with a finger. She does not eat so much as some. I'm not as fat as I was before, Sam said defensively. The passage south had seen to that. All those watchers and nothing to eat but fruit and fish. Summer islanders love fruit and fish. Sam followed the archers across the plank. But once ashore, they parted company and went their separate ways. He hoped he still remembered the way to the citadel. Old Town was a maze, and he had no time for getting lost. The day was damp, so the cobblestones were wet and slippery underfoot, the alleys shrouded in mist and mystery. Sam avoided them as best he could, and stayed on the river road that wound along beside the honey wine through the heart of the old city. It felt good to have solid ground beneath his feet again instead of a rolling deck but the walk made him feel uncomfortable all the same. He could feel eyes on him, peering down from balconies and windows, watching him from the darkened doorways. On the cinnamon wind he had known every face. Here, everywhere he turned, he saw another stranger. Even worse was the thought of being seen by someone who knew him. Lord Randall Tarley was known in Old Town, but little loved. Sam did not know which would be worse to be recognized by one of his Lord Father's enemies or by one of his friends. He pulled his cloak up and quickened his pace. The gates of the citadel were flanked by a pair of towering green sphinxes with the bodies of lions, the wings of eagles, and the tails of serpents. One had a man's face, one a woman's. Just beyond stood Scribe's Hearth, where old towners came in search of acolytes to write their wills and read their letters. Half a dozen bored scribes sat in open stalls waiting for some custom. At other stalls books were being bought and sold. Sam stopped at one that offered maps, and looked over a hand-drawn map of the citadel to ascertain the shortest way to the Seneschal's court. The path divided where the statue of King Darien I sat astride his tall stone horse, his sword lifted toward dawn. A seagull was perched on the young dragon's head, and two more on the blade. Sam took the left fork, which ran beside the river. At the weeping dock he watched two acolytes help an old man into a boat for the short voyage to the bloody isle. A young mother climbed in after him a babe not much older than Jilly's, squalling in her arms. Beneath the dock, some cook's boys waded in the shallows gathering frogs. A stream of pink-cheeked novices hurried by him towards the septory. I should have come here when I was their age, Sam thought. 
If I had run off and taken a false name, I could have disappeared amongst the other novices. Father could have pretended that Dickon was his only son. I doubt he would even have troubled to search for me, unless I took a mule to ride. Then he would have hunted me down, but only for the mule. Outside the Seneschal's court, the rectors were locking an older novice into the stocks, stealing food from the kitchen, one explained to the acolytes who were waiting to pelt the captive with rotting vegetables. They all gave Sam curious looks as he strode past, his black cloak billowing behind him like a sail. Beyond the doors he found a hall with a stone floor and high arched windows. At the far end a man with a pinched face sat upon a raised dais, scratching in a ledger with a quill. Though the man was clad in a maester's robe, there was no chain about his neck. Sam cleared his throat. "'Good morrow!' The man glanced up and did not appear to approve of what he saw. "'You smell of novice. I hope to be one soon.' Sam drew out the letters John Snow had given him. "'I came from the wall with Maester Eamon, but he died during the voyage. If I could speak with the Seneschal—' "'Your name?' "'Samwell. Samwell Tarley.' The man wrote the name in his ledger and waved his quill at a bench along the wall. Sit. You'll be called when wanted. Sam took a seat on the bench. Others came and went. Some delivered messages and took their leave. Some spoke to the man on the dais and were sent through the door behind him and up a turnpike stair. Some joined Sam on the benches, waiting for their names to be called. A few of those who were summoned had come in after him, he was almost certain. After the fourth or fifth time that happened, he rose and crossed the room again. How much longer will it be? The Seneschal is an important man. I came all the way from the wall. And you'll have no trouble going a bit farther. He waved his quill. To that bench just there, beneath the window. Sam returned to the bench. Another hour passed. Others entered spoke to the man on the dais, waited a few moments, and were ushered onward. The gatekeeper did not so much as glance at Sam in all that time. The fog outside grew thinner as the day wore on, and pale sunlight slanted down through the windows. He found himself watching dust motes dance in the light. A yawn escaped him, then another. He picked at a broken blister on his palm, then leaned his head back and closed his eyes. He must have drowsed. The next he knew, the man behind the dais was calling out a name. Sam came lurching to his feet, then sat back down again when he realized it was not his name. You'll need to slip lock us a penny or you'll be waiting here three days, a voice beside him said. What brings the night's watch to the citadel? The speaker was a slim, slight, comely youth, clad in doeskin breeches and a snug green brigadine with iron studs. He had skin the colour of a light brown ale and a cap of tight black curls that came to a widow's peak above his big black eyes. The Lord Commander is restoring the abandoned castles, Sam explained. We need more maesters for the ravens. Did you say a penny? A penny will serve. 
For a silver stag, Locus will carry you up to the seneschal on his back. He has been fifty years an acolyte. He hates novices, particularly novices of noble birth. How could you tell I was of noble birth? The same way you can tell that I'm half Dornish. The statement was delivered with a smile in a soft Dornish drawl. Sam fumbled for a penny. Are you a novice? An acolyte, Alarus, by some called Sphinx. The name gave Sam a jolt. The Sphinx is the riddle, not the riddler, he blurted. Do you know what that means? No, is it a riddle? I wish I knew. I'm Sam Wiltarley. Sam. Well met, and what business does Sam Wiltarley have with Archmaester Theobald? Is he the seneschal? said Sam, confused. Maester Eamon said his name was Norrin, and not for the past two turns. There is a new one every year. They fill the office by lot from amongst the archmaesters, most of whom regard it as a thankless task that takes them away from their true work. This year the Blackstone was drawn by Archmaester Walgrave, but Walgrave's wits are prone to wonder, so Theobald stepped up and said he'd serve his term. He's a gruff man, but a good one. Did you say Maester Eamon? Aye, Eamon Targaryen. Once. Most just call him Maester Eamon. He died during our voyage south. How is it that you know of him? How not? He was more than just the oldest living maester. He was the oldest man in Westeros, and lived through more history than Archmaester Periston has ever learned. He could have told us much and more about his father's reign and his uncle's. How old was he, do you know? One hundred and two. What was he doing at sea, at his age? Sam chewed on the question for a moment, wondering how much he ought to say. The Sphinx is the riddle, not the riddler. Could Maester Eamon have meant this Sphinx? It seemed unlikely. Lord Commander Snow sent him away to save his life, he began hesitantly. He spoke awkwardly of King Stannis and Melisandre of Versailles, intending to stop at that, but one thing led to another, and he found himself speaking of Mance Raider and his wildlings, King's blood and dragons, and before he knew what was happening, all the rest came spilling out, the whites at the fist of first men, the other on his dead horse, the murder of the old bear at Craister's Keep, Jilly and their flight, White Tree and Small Paul, Cold Hands and the Ravens, John's becoming Lord Commander, the Blackbird, Darien, Bravos, the Dragon Zondosaur in Carth, the Cinnamon Wind and all that Maester Eamon whispered toward the end. He held back only the secrets that he had sworn to keep, about Bran Stark and his companions, and the babes Jon Snow had swapped. Daenerys is the only hope, he concluded. Eamon said the Citadel must send her a maester at once to bring her home to Westeros before it is too late. Alaris listened intently. He blinked from time to time, but he never laughed and never interrupted. When Sam was done, he touched him lightly on the forearm with a slim brown hand and said, Save your penny, Sam. 
Theobald will not believe half of that. But there are those who might. Will you come with me? Where? To speak with an archmaester. You must tell them, Sam, Maester Eamon had said. You must tell the archmaesters. Very well. He could always return to the seneschal on the morrow, with a penny in his hand. How far do we have to go? Or not far, the Isle of Ravens. They did not need a boat to reach the Isle of Ravens. A weathered wooden drawbridge linked it to the eastern bank. The Ravenry is the oldest building at the Citadel, Alaris told him, as they crossed over the slow-flowing waters of the Honeywine. In the Age of Heroes it was supposedly the stronghold of a pirate lord, who sat here robbing ships as they came down the river. Moss and creeping vines covered the walls, Sam saw, and ravens walked its battlements in place of archers. The drawbridge had not been raised in living memory. It was cool and dim inside the castle walls. An ancient weirwood filled the yard, as it had since those stones had first been raised. The carved face on its trunk was grown over by the same purple moss that hung heavy from the tree's pale limbs. Half of the branches seemed dead, but elsewhere a few red leaves still rustled, and it was there the ravens liked to perch. The tree was full of them, and there were more in the arch windows overhead around the yard. The ground was speckled by their droppings. As they crossed the yard, one flapped overhead, and he heard the others quawking to each other. Archmaester Walgrave has his chambers in the West Tower, below the White Rookery, Alaris told him. The White Ravens and the Black Ones quarrel like Dornishmen and marchers, so they keep them apart. Will Archmaester Walgrave understand what I am telling him? wondered Sam. You said his wits were prone to wonder. He has good days and bad ones, said Alarus, but it is not Walgrave you're going to see. He opened the door to the North Tower and began to climb. Sam clambered up the steps behind him. There were flutterings and mutterings from above, and here and there an angry scream, as the ravens complained of being woken. At the top of the steps a pale blond youth, about Sam's age, sat outside a door of oak and iron, staring intently into a candle flame with his right eye. His lift was hidden beneath a fall of ash-blond hair. "'What are you looking for?' Alaris asked him. "'Your destiny? Your death?' The blond youth turned from the candle, blinking. "'Naked women,' he said. Who's this now? Samuel, a new novice, come to see the mage. The citadel is not what it was, complained the blonde. They will take anything these days, dusky dogs and dornishmen, pig boys, cripples, cretins, and now a black-clad whale. And here I thought leviathans were grey. A half-cape, striped in green and gold, draped one shoulder. He was very handsome, though his eyes were sly and his mouth cruel. Sam knew him. Leo Terrell! Saying the name made him feel as if he was still a boy of seven, about to wet his small clothes. I am Sam, from Horn Hill, Lord Randall Tarley's son. Truly? 
Leo gave him another look. I suppose you are. Your father told us all that you were dead. <laughs> or was it only that he wished you were? <laughs> he grinned. Are you still a craven? No, lied Sam. John had made it a command. I went beyond the wall and fought in battles. They call me Sam the Slayer. He did not know why he said it. The words just tumbled out. Leo laughed, but before he could reply, the door behind him opened. Get in here, Slayer, growled the man in the doorway. And you, Sphinx, now! Sam, said Alaris, this is Archmister Marwyn. Marvin wore a chain of many metals round his bull's neck. Save for that, he looked more like a duck-side thug than a maester. His head was too big for his body, and the way it thrust forward from his shoulders, together with that slab of jaw, made him look as if he were about to tear off someone's head. Though short and squat, he was heavy in the chest and shoulders, with a round, rock-hard, ale belly, straining at the laces of the leather jerkin he wore in place of robes. Bristly white hair sprouted from his ears and nostrils. His brow beetled, his nose had been broken more than once, and sour leaf had stained his teeth a mottled red. He had the biggest hands that Sam had ever seen. When Sam hesitated, one of those hands grabbed him by the arm and yanked him through the door. The room beyond was large and round. Books and scrolls were everywhere, strewn across the tables and stacked up on the floor in piles four feet high. Faded tapestries and ragged maps covered the stone walls. A fire was burning in the hearth, beneath a copper kettle. Whatever was inside of it smelled burned. Aside from that, the only light came from a tall black candle in the center of the room. The candle was unpleasantly bright. There was something queer about it. The flame did not flicker, even when Archmaester Marwyn closed the door so hard that papers blew off a nearby table. The light did something strange to colors, too. Whites were bright as fresh-fallen snow, yellow shone like gold, reds turned to flame. But the shadows were so black they looked like holes in the world. Sam found himself staring. The candle itself was three feet tall and slender as a sword, ridged and twisted, glittering black. Is that, uh, obsidian? said the other man in the room, a pale, fleshy, pasty-faced young fellow with round shoulders, soft hands, close-set eyes, and food stains on his robes. Call it dragon glass. Archmaster Marvin glanced at the candle for a moment. It burns, but it's not consumed. What feeds the flame? asked Sam. What feeds a dragon's fire? Marvin seated himself upon a stool. All Valerian sorcery was rooted in blood or fire. The sorcerers of the Freehold could see across mountain seas and deserts with one of these glass candles. They could enter a man's dreams and give him visions, and speak to one another half a world apart, seated before their candles. Do you think that might be useful, Slayer? We would have no more need of ravens. Only after battles, 
The archmaster peeled a saw leaf off a bale, shoved it in his mouth, and began to chew it. Tell me all you told our Dornish Sphinx. I know much of it and more, but some small parts may have escaped my notice. He was not a man to be refused. Sam hesitated a moment, then told his tale again, as Marwyn, Alaris, and the other novice listened. Mr. Eamon believed that Daenerys Targaryen was the fulfilment of a prophecy. Her, not Stannis, nor Prince Rhaegar, nor the princeling, whose head was dashed against the wall, born amidst salt and smoke, beneath a bleeding star. <laughs> I know the prophecy. Marvin turned his head and spat a gob of red phlegm onto the floor. No, I would trust it. Goran of old guess once wrote that a prophecy is like a treacherous woman. She takes your member in her mouth, and you moan with the pleasure of it, and think how sweet, how fine, how good this is. And then her teeth snap shut, and your moans turn to screams. That is the nature of prophecy, said Goran. Prophecy will bite your prick off every time. He chewed a bit. Still, Alaris stepped up next to Sam. Eamon would have gone to her if he'd had the strength. He wanted us to send a maester to her, to counsel her and protect her and fetch her safely home. Did he? Archmaester Marwyn shrugged. Perhaps it's good that he died before he got to Old Town. Elsewise, the grey sheep might have had to kill him. And that would have made the poor old dears wring their wrinkled hands. Kill him? Sam said, shocked. Why? If I tell you, they may need to kill you too. Marvin smiled a ghastly smile, the juice of the saw leaf running red between his teeth. Who do you think killed all the dragons the last time round? Gallant dragon slayers armed with swords? <laughs> He spat. The world the Citadel is building has no place in it for sorcery or prophecy or glass candles, <laughs> much less for dragons. Ask yourself why Aemon Targaryen was allowed to waste his life upon the wall, when by rights he should have been raised to Archmaester. His blood was why. He could not be trusted. No more than I can. What will you do? asked Alaris the Sphinx. Get myself to Slaver's Bay in Aemon's place. The swan ship that delivered Slayer would serve my needs well enough. The grey sheep will send their man on a galley, I don't doubt. With fair winds, I should reach her first. Marvin glanced at Sam again and frowned. You, <laughs> you should stay and forge your chain. If I were you, I would do it quickly. A time will come when you'll be needed on the wall. He turned to the pasty-faced novice. Find Slayer a dry cell. He'll sleep here and help you tend the ravens. But, 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 Sam spotted, the other archmaesters, the seneschal. What should I tell them? Tell them how wise and good they are. Tell them that Eamon commanded you to put yourself into their hands. Tell them that you have always dreamed that one day you might be allowed to wear the chain and serve the greater good. 
that service is the highest honour and obedience the highest virtue. But say nothing of prophecies or dragons, unless you fancy poison in your porridge. Marwin snatched a stained leather cloak off a peg near the door and tied it tight. Sphinx, look after this one. I will, Alaris answered, but the archmaester was already gone. They heard his boots stumping down the steps. Where has he gone? asked Sam, bewildered. To the docks. The mage is not a man who believes in wasting time. Alrus smiled. I have a confession. Ours was no chance encounter, Sam. The mage sent me to snatch you up before you spoke to Theobald. He knew that you were coming. How? Alrus nodded at the glass candle. Sam stared at the strange pale flame for a moment, then blinked and looked away. Outside the window, it was growing dark. There's an empty sleeping cell under mine in the West Tower, with steps that lead right up to Walgrave's chambers, said the pasty-faced youth. If you don't mind the ravens corking, there's a good view of the honey wine. Will that serve? I suppose. He had to sleep somewhere. I will bring you some woolen coverlets. Stone walls turn cold at night, even here. My thanks. There was something about the pale, soft youth that he misliked. But he did not want to seem discourteous, so he added, My name's not Slayer, truly. I'm Sam. Samuel Tarley. I'm Pate, the other said. Like the pig boy. We hope you have enjoyed this unabridged production of A Feast for Crows, Book 4 of A Song of Ice and Fire, by George R. R. Martin, read for you by Roy Detrice. This program was recorded and produced by Douglas Keane, text copyright 2005 by George R. R. Martin, production copyright 2011, HarperCollins Audio UK. All rights reserved. Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program.